You've got a headache And I've got some strange disease Don't worry about it This pill will set your mind at ease It's called Progenitoravox It's made by Squab Merle Co It's a life-enhancing miracle But there are some things you should know It may cause agitation, palpitations Excessive salivation, constipation, male lactation Rust-colored urination, hallucinations, bad vibrations, mild electric shock sensations. But it's worth it for the drugs I need. My disease may not be fatal, but I can ease my fears by taking two $12 pills each day for 50 years. They've spent billions to convince me, so now I realize Progenitorivox beats diet and exercise I've got insurance At least for now I do And if I bought generic It would cut my cost in two But I want Progenitorivox Cause I saw it on TV Those families look so functional That Paisley pills for me But it may cause Deprivation, humiliation Debtors, prison and deportation Dark depictions, dire predictions, life as seen in Dickens fiction. Empty pockets, court dockets, may cause eyes to pop from sockets. But it's worth it for the drugs I need. But it's worth it in Canada. They get this for a song. But it's worth it for the drugs I need. The opinions expressed in this song are not necessarily those of Spobinal Co. or its subsidiaries. Progenitor Box is not available anywhere. Offer void in Wisconsin. Any resemblance to actual drugs, living or dead, is purely coincidental. Any unauthorized use of your own judgment in the application of Progenitor Box is strictly prohibited. Progenitor Box may not be reproduced without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Progenitor Box may cause drowsiness or restlessness in lab animals. Do not resume sexual activity while operating heavy machinery without consulting your physician for directions left. Longer than four hours, insert your own joke here. If you experience psychotic episodes, you're crazy. If death occurs, discontinue use of Progenitorvox immediately. If symptoms persist, consult your physician. All sales final. Battery's not included. For the drugs I need. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is being brought to you live and recorded live. On March 26, 2021, the time right now, 9.58 p.m. We have a free roll that started at 9.45. You still have plenty of time to get in. You have until 10.10 for late registration with a full stack. $75 is being given away this week on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. As we always have it, go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, to understand the rules. As far as qualifying, you need a separate account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It's separate from the forum, but you do need a forum account in good standing or prior permission to play. It's all explained on the free roll page. I can pay you in a whole variety of ways, so please let me know which way you'd like to get paid. I can send it to you by Zelle, by Cash App, by many other services online that you might be able to think of. I can send you cryptocurrency. I, I, I can send it a lot of different ways. I can't send you ACR money, though. I still don't have an ACR account. I get that question all the time. But $75 this week, and uh, it came from three sources. It came from uh, John from New Hampshire, who donated $26. Uh, Winona86 gave another 15 I appreciate that. 
And Eric Benzema can always appreciate from him. He's been the most generous donor over the last several years on this site, $30. In fact, he offered more, and I said, nah, we'll stick with 75 total this week since we already have 45. So I said, I'll just take 30 from you, Eric, even though he wanted to give more. And I said, we'll hold the rest for next week in case we don't have as many donations. So $75 this week, it breaks down to where first place is $40. So nice first place prize and a small field free roll. $40 for first, that'll be uh, then uh, 22 for second and 13 for third. So it's 40, 22, and 13. Yes, yeah, a little bit top-heavy, but I think it's good that you play to win. Started already at 9.45, and you have uh, nine more minutes to get in there on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You need your account validated on that poker room, so if you're not signed up there yet, don't bother for this week, but next week is always a possibility. PM Belly Buster, that's Belly Space Buster on the forum to get validated, and if for whatever reason he doesn't respond, uh, you can PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff, or text me at the number I'm going to give shortly. Speaking of that number, if you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can call or text that number. If you call the number during the show, then I will answer your call and throw you on the air, provided it is a convenient time. I usually don't like to take calls during segments, but kind of in between segments, I'll take calls. So if you hear a segment winding down or just ending, uh, give a call in. I will probably take your call. And uh, you can always text me at that number during the show, before the show, after the show, whenever you'd like, whenever you like, anytime, day or night. And I probably will respond to you. If you text during the show, make sure that you mention if you don't want to have it read on the air. Otherwise, I will assume you do. The opening song, by the way, The Drugs I Need is what it's called. I'm not even sure who made it. It was made in 2006. And it was kind of a jab at the pharmaceuticals industry for not disclosing the side effects well enough for kind of just saying them really, really quickly at the end of the commercials as required. But basically, uh, it was an indictment of the pharmaceutical industry that they're just trying to get you addicted to pills for your condition and don't really make it clear what you're signing up for. I don't agree with all the points the song's making. And in fact, the pharmaceutical industry really proved itself as uh, not a villain this year and last year, I guess, when they developed the COVID vaccine in really record-breaking time by a wide margin. I mean, it's amazing not only how fast it got done, but how well it got done. Look how, how much better these COVID vaccines are than the flu vaccine, for example. So this, this is a, an amazing triumph of science, and it was not done by the government. It was done by private industry, by the pharmaceutical companies that had been long vilified. So it shows that all the money they're making is not necessarily going to waste. They are uh, spending a lot of money on research and development to come up with a lot of uh, new medications that can really save our lives or improve our lives. And that has to be taken into consideration. Uh, in a perfect world, they would just sink tons of money into research and development and not worry about profits. But that's not how uh, capitalism works. That's not how profit works. And a lot of times a uh, profit is a motivating factor that can motivate people and companies to do good things and to do better things. That's not to say there shouldn't be some reform in the pharmaceutical area. There should be. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm just saying that uh, big pharma was like a dirty phrase all the way through 2019. 
I think some people's opinions are going to change, especially if uh, COVID gets wiped out or severely reduced as a threat as a result of the vaccines that came out. But at the same time, I can kind of relate to all the side effect things they were joking about on this uh, song because, you know, that's it's always something you got to be aware of before you take any medication is what is it going to do to you? What What is the downside to it? And I'm always a believer that less is more when it comes to surgery, when it comes to treatment, when it comes to medication. I'm not someone who won't take something if it's necessary, but I don't just jump and do what is suggested to me by a doctor. I will do my own research as well and decide whether that is the right way to go. I had to make a very important decision two and a half years ago, and that was, do I get on long-term psychiatric medication, which is very difficult to get off once you start. And I determined that as tough as it was for me then, and as much hell as I was going through every day, which it was terrible, and I didn't know if there'd ever be relief. I said, even though it's being suggested to me to get on these, I haven't experienced this long enough to commit myself to this. So I took an alternate approach, which uh, kept me off the long-term medications, and I'm still not on them. That's not to say I don't still have uh, some issues, but I would have these issues with or without the medication, and not being on the medication has a lot of advantages. By the way, one of the big advantages is that uh, those type of medications, a lot of times guys cannot get it up on the medications, like usually. So that's uh, a big reason for dudes not to get on that stuff. Anyway, let's go on here uh, and, and uh, give the rest of the intro, and then I will get on with the rest of the show. There's a call to listen line, which can be used to listen to the show anytime, day or night. You can listen live. When we're not on live, it'll be streaming reruns of one of our many shows we've done weekly since 2012. We have almost 400 at this point. 400th shows is actually coming up pretty soon. We'll do something for that. The phone number for the call to listen line is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, the call to listen line, and then the alternate call to listen line, 641-741-1095. These are regular phone numbers. You call them up just as you would any phone number, and you listen to the show. You can't interact with the show, but you can listen to the show, and it does not require a smartphone, doesn't require a data plan, it doesn't use up any data, it does not require the internet or a computer no, 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 no. You just call up. It's an old school phone number. You just call up and you'll listen. And the best thing is it never freezes and never buffers. The call to listen line, it's a lovely thing. And uh, very few shows that are on the internet have it. I mean, go ahead and look. You'll you'll find some out there, but they tend to be call to listen lines for very large shows that are on uh, regular broadcast radio. You don't find these very often for shows like these, but I have one because I think it's a nice thing to have, especially because of the no buffering thing. The no buffering thing is the most important because that's the worst part about streaming is the buffering. If you want to chat, we have a chat room. It now works with any device. Just go to the chat button on Poker Fraud Alert near the top of the screen. You need a form account in good standing to get in there. Don't bother going in if you're listening in the archives, but if you're listening live, the chat room tends to have people in it. 
we have most of our listeners that don't listen live. Most people listen in the archives, but there's always some people in the chat room, including right now. And I try to read this a few times a show. I do everything here. I run it from a technical standpoint. I have to think about what to say next. I, I'm basically running the entire show in every way, shape, and form. So there's only so much I can do to read the chat room. And if I spend too much time reading the chat room, I'd have to pause and there'll be dead air and it'll sound crappy. So for that reason, I, I don't read the chat room all that much, but I look a few times a show to catch the comments there. I see uh, Sutri in the chat is asking, is the free roll live? And someone said, yeah, you got two minutes. Yeah, I was about to say that. <laughs> you actually have one minute now. So he's a little bit late. If you hurry up, you can squeeze in there. Bobby Orr is saying it's a rerun. We'll see if he falls for it. I guess he's if he's got it on, he won't fall for it because I'm reading the chat room directly. But we do have a chat room that runs every single show, and it used to be something you couldn't get in unless you had a Flash-enabled device. And that's not true anymore because there's no more Flash. Flash is gone. So I did away with our Flash chat, and I put some time and effort into installing a chat that does not require Flash. Okay, so let's go on to our agenda, and then we will get going. You may wonder why I missed last week. You may have seen on the Twitter, twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert, which I suggest you follow if you listen to this show, twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert. But you may have seen there that I had some kind of weird illness last week and couldn't do the show, and that's true. And it's still not all better, and I don't understand what it is. So I'll tell you about what I've been going through here for now about a week and a half and what I think it is. The main story tonight is about, again, Vanessa Cade. We've covered her a lot on this show. This will be, I think, the fifth show when we cover Vanessa Cade because there's just so much stuff going on with her. She went from like a pretty unknown poker player as late as November 2020 to being someone who's talked about all the time now in poker. It's kind of weird. And it's for a bunch of different reasons, some related, some not. But uh, two big news items with her this week. I guess this week and last because we weren't on last week. So we'll talk all about uh, Vanessa Cade again and what's going on with her. Some interesting stuff happened. Max Silver has claimed on Twitter that he was scammed of over $140,000 by a sports betting Bitcoin scammer. So I will read his allegations that he posted on a forum called Bitcoin Talk and also his tweet about it. And then we will talk about the situation, how it happened, whether he should have seen this coming and how you can avoid something like this. So we're going to talk about the Max Silver situation. Doug Polk has announced that he is leaving Las Vegas, not temporarily, that he's really moving out of Las Vegas and he's beginning a new chapter in his life. So I will read his tweets, and we will discuss what is next for Doug Polk. Hyatt Hotels claims it has a partnership with Rio Las Vegas. Remember, the Rio sold, but is still currently being operated by Caesars as it has for a very long time. They claim that it's going to become a Hyatt and that it's going to be uh, renovated and Hyatt brand branded. It's not going to be owned by Hyatt, but it's going to be a Hyatt brand, and it's going to be renovated. So... We'll talk about that and its likely impact on the World Series, including whether there will be an impact this year. A gender reveal party at the Rio led to a man being shot in January. Yes, you heard me right. A gender reveal party led to a man being shot at the Rio 
in January. So we'll talk about that weird story. Virgin Hotels Las Vegas has opened. They opened yesterday, March 25th. But that's not the big story here. I mean, yeah, they opened, but whatever. But the bigger story is that they will charge you for your comp room if you don't play enough. So if you get a comp room and they feel you don't play enough, then upon checkout time, they will present you with a bill for the room. That is bad. That is very bad. And we'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about another ridiculous policy they had that they rescinded that was even worse than this one. Well, I'm not sure worse. It's pretty close. Two really awful policies. One I just told you about. The other I'll tell you about when we do the segment. Caesars is suing an insurance company, actually several insurance companies, for over $2 billion regarding the losses they took during COVID. The insurance companies would not pay And Caesars claims that their policies should cover these losses. So this will be an interesting suit to see where it goes, because people really weren't considering a pandemic and uh, getting like pandemic insurance. I bet we'll be seeing that in the future. But the question is, does does existing insurance, kind of general insurance policies, would this cover losses from a pandemic? And that is the question at hand here. I'm not even sure what the answer is, but... I will tell you what Caesars is claiming when we get to that segment. Driverless cars. That seems like a strange thing to an older gentleman like myself. I learned how to drive in 1988, which is now 33 years ago. In fact, I have been a licensed driver for 33 years since I was 16. And uh, I like driving. I like having control when I'm driving. I don't like the thought of a machine driving me. I really don't. I like doing the driving. The only exception would be if I like were really tired or in some other state where I would feel like I couldn't drive safely. Then I would prefer to have a machine drive me. Other than that, I really prefer to drive. But uh, driverless cars are going to become a reality more and more in the coming years. In fact, uh, that may be the biggest difference we see in the world between 2020 and 2030. Uh, In 2023, though, they might become part of Uber and Lyft. And we're going to talk about that and the fact that these driverless cars are currently being tested on the streets of Las Vegas. Then I will analyze the current state of legalized online poker. I've done this before on the show, but I just wanted to give another update on that where legalized online poker stands. We have been in the COVID-related shutdowns for about a year now, so we'll check on how online poker is doing on the legalized sites, and I'll predict where it's going to go from here. Then we have two coronavirus news segments, and that will be that. So I want to talk about the illness I got. This is really weird. So over the weekend of uh, March 13th, two weeks ago, my parents visited me. That's why I couldn't do the show on Saturday. Remember I said I was going to be busy on Saturday the 13th? Well, that was why. My parents were coming. I hadn't seen them in about uh, almost two months. And I had only seen them uh, prior to that, like two months before that. So I I really had only seen them once in a a four-month period. Uh, They are fully vaccinated. They had just taken a trip to Jamaica, 
which I was very happy for them to be taking because they like to travel and they weren't able to travel for the last year for obvious reasons. So they were very happy to take a trip. They had a very good time in Jamaica and I was happy to see them enjoy themselves like that after this year of lockdown. I was glad to also see that my parents did not get COVID. They weren't quite as careful as I was, which is a little bit strange that the younger person (laughs) was the more careful one. But uh, I'm not saying they were reckless. They just were less careful than I was, but there's only so much I could do. Everybody makes these decisions for themselves. But anyway, neither of them got COVID and they got the vaccine wasn't easy, as I've described before at the beginning when uh, it was tough to get appointments and all that, but they managed to get it after a lot of effort. Fortunately, that they are computer savvy and they're still sharp at their age and they were able to get this done. So it was safe for them to come see me. I had a little bit of a concern that uh, I had a little concern. What if they bring COVID to me? You may say, well, they're vaccinated, right? Well, yes, but it hasn't been proven that people who are vaccinated can't carry COVID. It's thought that the vaccines greatly reduce the risk of transmitting COVID, but it's not known if that's actually true. They had one study in Israel, which seems to point that way, but it has not been proven. So at the moment, the theory is that you can't, or it's not you can't, but you're not likely to transmit COVID if you're vaccinated. But there's a lot to learn about that. And it's possible this will end up being incorrect and that you can easily transmit COVID and you're just simply not showing symptoms. So the question really is, does the vaccine just suppress symptoms or does it also suppress the disease? We don't know fully yet. So I was a little afraid to have them come right after they returned from Jamaica, because they returned from Jamaica on March 12th, and they came to see me on March 13th. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I should tell them to, like, wait a week, because <laughs> I was I was a little afraid with all the exposure they had there, and they had a lot of exposure. They ate indoors. They were obviously uh, going all throughout the resort. They were in both the airport in Jamaica and in the L.A. airport. There's a lot of different forms of exposure they had. They had the taxi ride, a a lot of different forms of exposure they had. And while neither of them were sick, I thought, okay, well, they could be asymptomatic carriers. The only thing that made me feel better about this, aside from the Israel study that showed that it's much harder to transmit COVID if you've been vaccinated. Again, that's not a very conclusive study, but that's what they're seeing. They had a COVID test. They had a mandatory COVID test before returning to the U.S. The U.S. would not let them back in without a mandatory COVID test in Jamaica. So they took a mandatory COVID test two days before coming back, or one day before coming back. So that was two days before they saw me. And it was negative for both of them, of course. So I said, okay, on March 11th, they had a negative COVID test and they had the vaccine. So, all right, I'll take the chance. So I didn't tell them to stay away, and they came. I usually don't get takeout. The reason I don't get takeout food, in fact, I just about never get it. And the reason for that is that I don't know whether that can carry COVID. I know that surfaces don't carry COVID very well, or maybe not at all. But as far as eating something, like if let's say someone preparing your food sneezes on it and they have COVID, and then you eat it, can you get COVID? And that's not known. It's possible you could. 
It's possible, no. It, it depends the way COVID infects you. Now, you could definitely get a cold that way. If somebody with a cold sneezes on your food and then you eat it, then there's a decent chance you will get a cold. That's a way people will transmit colds to one another. There, there's several ways colds can transmit, but that's one of them. COVID, it may have to go through your air passages, in which case eating it would not harm you. So I'm not sure, but I've never wanted to chance it. So I have not been getting takeout food. Well, we did take out food that night. I said, okay, well, you know, my parents are coming. They like doing takeout food. So fine, we'll do, we'll do the takeout food. So I did take out food. And about two or three days, I think about two and a half days after they were here, I started feeling sick and my girlfriend started feeling sick. And that was really strange because independently we felt it and didn't say anything to each other at first. And then she said to me, hey, you know, I kind of feel like I have a sore throat today and I kind of feel like I'm getting sick. It's really weird. It kind of feels like I'm getting a cold. And I said, that's weird because I was just thinking I have a sore throat and I was wondering like if it's real. So <laughs> it's not like one of us convinced the other, like I have a sore throat and then the other like felt it. Like we independently felt it and then one said it to the other. And... The question was, at that point, what did we have? Did we have COVID somehow? Did we really get COVID from my parents? Or is it something else? And if something else or COVID, how did we get it? Because remember, I don't go indoors anywhere. I don't see anybody. I don't get close to anybody. So how am I catching anything is the question. Well, the sore throat lasted about a day for me. And I think for her too. Then it vanished. Now that is very cold-like, as I'm sure you probably know. You've probably had a lot of colds in your life where it starts out with a sore throat, then about a day later, the sore throat is gone, and then it turns into cold symptoms. That's very common. Once in a while, I have a sore throat that'll last like up to a week and a half, but most of the time I get a cold, the sore throat's there for about a day and then vanishes and then turns into something else. Well, that's what happened here. The sore throat vanished after a day. So at that point, I thought it was most likely that we caught a cold, but how? How do we catch a cold? Well, it could be from a few sources. You can catch a cold from surfaces. That's not the only way you can catch it, but you can catch it from surfaces. You can catch it from uh, saliva, like if somebody uh, sneezes onto something. So, or you can catch it through the air. So there's a number of ways you can catch a cold to where even though it's uh, less contagious than COVID, it's actually contagious in more ways than COVID. COVID seems like it's very contagious, but really only one or two ways, and that is through uh, droplets or, uh, or, or through uh, an aerosol format. Not through surfaces and maybe not even through food, though we're not sure about that. Well, cold you can get in any of those ways. It just isn't quite as contagious. So I thought, okay, maybe it was the groceries we picked up. Maybe someone who had a cold uh, left the virus on the groceries and that I touched them and my girlfriend touched them and we both got it. Or maybe it was in the food. Maybe someone had a cold who was making the food at the place we took it out from and we ate it. Now, my parents who ate the same food did not get a cold. They did not get sick at all. But there's a possible explanation for that. The most common type of cold in December January, and March, and February. December, January, 
and February and March, mostly like the winter and early spring, the most common type of cold is a coronavirus. Yes. Colds are sometimes coronaviruses. Now, they're more often rhinoviruses, but in the winter and the early spring, it is more common to have a cold be a coronavirus than a rhinovirus. So if we caught a coronavirus cold, it is possible that my parents did not catch that cold because they had the COVID vaccine, and that might also fight coronavirus colds, and that just may not be realized yet. Because there has been talk, by the way, that the COVID vaccines could be preventing coronavirus colds. They're just not sure, and they're not wasting the time and energy to study that right now because it's not that important. It's just a cold. So this will be something that's studied later, but it is possible it's already happening. It's possible if you have the COVID vaccine that this will protect you from coronavirus colds, but not rhinovirus colds, which isn't good news for you given that coronavirus colds are going to kind of fade out as they always seem to do around this time of year and then be replaced by pretty much all rhinoviruses. But the coronavirus colds, which are most common in winter and early spring, it is possible that you will be immune to them after getting the COVID vaccine. So we'll find out about that in subsequent months or years when this is eventually studied. But it is possible that's what's going on here. There's no way to know. And there's no test for having a cold. Now, you may wonder, how am I feeling today? Well, the whole thing's kind of weird the way it's progressed. I developed a cough, which I still have. If I breathe deeply, I have a cough now, which started shortly after this whole thing started. Prior to that, I had no cough. Uh, I do not have a fever. I have not had a fever throughout this entire thing. Uh, I do not have fatigue. I haven't had fatigue, I think I guess a little bit at the beginning, but I haven't had significant fatigue throughout this entire thing. I had some body aches before, but those are gone. But this cough is sticking around. And then my girlfriend has just kind of felt uh, generally sick for the last uh, week and a half. Some days it's better, some days it's worse. But she can't really shake it, nor can I. And yet neither of us have had really obvious cold symptoms. Like we haven't had a runny nose where we had to blow our nose all the time. Like that's, we're not experiencing that. So I'm not sure what this is. It's very weird. I took a COVID test on, uh, it was last Friday. I took a COVID test. I took the one which you administer yourself. You drive up, they give you a kit, you administer it yourself, you give it to them, and then they test it. They actually turned it around in 11 hours, which was very impressive. This was a county test, so usually the government's very slow and inefficient. Here, I will give them credit. In 11 hours, they turned around this test, and I had my results texted to me, and that was negative. Now, these have about a 50% false negative rate, so there's only a 50% chance that that was an accurate uh, test. That doesn't mean a 50% chance I have COVID. I'm just saying that there's a 50% chance that if I do have COVID, that it would have shown negative there anyway. However, if I had COVID, it would be presenting itself differently. Because if you think about the amount of time that's passed here, it's been about a week and a half, and it hasn't gotten worse, and I don't have a fever. And aside from the cough, there really is no persistent symptom that is similar to COVID. 
and I got a negative test. So it's not COVID. I, I'm just about sure it's not COVID. And same with my girlfriend. She hasn't had anything that's COVID-like. So this is much more cold-like, but not exactly like a cold. It's very weird. But then I can't get rid of it. And then here's the weirdest thing. I almost didn't do the show tonight. Because I said, okay, a, a lingering cough, you know, that only comes out when I breathe deeply, fine. You know, I can do the show with that. If I cough, I cough, no big deal, I'll do the show. Well, about an hour before the show tonight, I all of a sudden felt sick to my stomach. And that was new. That was new. I didn't feel that at any point here. But now I, I felt sick to my stomach. I felt nauseous. And my stomach was hurting, and I, I didn't know I, I didn't know what was going on there. But uh, I took some Pepto-Bismol, and I said, I'm going to do the show anyway. And, you know, if I vomit on my computer during the show, so be it. And if I have to take a break during the show, so be it. And I have to shut down the show in the middle, so be it. But I'm going to do the show. I'm tired of the delays. I'm tired of disappointing you guys when you're expecting a show and the show doesn't happen. We already missed last week. I'm not, like, deathly ill. As you can hear my voice, I sound okay. I'm sure you couldn't tell I was sick at all from the way I sound. I'm just going to do it. And if at any point I can't do it anymore, I will let you guys know. And the show will end or the show will take a break. And that'll be that. But I I wanted to get this out tonight. I wanted to do it. Because it's been too long. It's already been two weeks. So that's where we stand right now. I don't know what's going on. It's probably not anything serious may just be a cold that didn't have a lot of congestion and is lingering cough. I mean, I've, I've had colds like that before. Usually I have congestion with a cold, but this time I, if it is a cold, that's not what I had. But that's, that's my best guess is we both caught a cold and that it came either from the food or from surfaces. And if it was the food, probably my parents are immune. It's probably a coronavirus <laughs> if it is a cold, which is weird. Like, who would have thought that I would get a coronavirus in March? And have it not be the coronavirus. But that may very well be what happened. I may have a coronavirus right now. A lot of people don't know that coronaviruses are often colds. Most people, I don't know most, but a lot of people don't know that they've had a coronavirus before. Like just about everybody has had a coronavirus before. If you've had a cold in the winter, then you've probably had a coronavirus. In fact, there's some belief that the more coronavirus colds you've had in your life, especially recently or semi-recently, the better resistance you will have to COVID-19, which would be good news for me because I've had a number of winter colds in recent years. So, okay, let's move on to the Vanessa Cade topic. I think you're probably sick about hearing about my illness. So we've probably, uh, well, we've talked a lot about Vanessa Cade and you might be sick of hearing of her, about her by now. We had a very long subject about her last week. We covered her in early December. We covered her in January. This is someone we never covered before prior to December. I knew who she was, but there was no reason to cover her. And then all this different stuff has been happening involving her, starting with Dan Bilzerian calling her a hoe, saying, quiet hoe, H-O-E, nobody knows who you are. That was in early December. He tweeted that to her in response to her calling him a misogynist when Gigi Poker signed Dan as a sponsored pro on the site. Pretty much everybody learned who Vanessa Cade was at that point. Some people already knew, but she wasn't really very well known. I knew who she was. I don't even know how I found her 
originally, like way before this, I think probably a year before this, I found her Twitter and followed her. And I remember when I first saw her Twitter, I thought, hmm, who's this? I, I don't really know this person. But, uh, you know, like looking at her Twitter, I saw she was a poker player. I saw she looked like she was in her 30s from uh, from Canada. And she looked cute. And I thought, okay, I mean, why isn't she a bigger deal? Why why hasn't she blown up more? And then I looked at her hand in mob. I'm like, okay, she, she hasn't done all that much. She hasn't had like any kind of uh, big tournament score. So... I thought to myself, okay, she just probably has stayed under the radar that she just hasn't really been visible to most people in poker, and that's why there's not more awareness of her. But you know, she, she had like a very upbeat, positive personality, and uh, I thought she actually had a potential future to be a female poker pro that people pay attention to. But I, I figured because she didn't have the results yet that it hadn't happened, but I didn't put a lot of thought into it. You know, I don't really care about it that much. I just kind of happened upon her page and thought that briefly and then just kind of moved on. I'd see her tweets here and there, but didn't pay that much attention to her until the Dan Bilzerian stuff happened in December. Then in January, she got some negative attention because she tweeted that she was looking for a new boyfriend and listed all these requirements and was saying that the pickings are very slim in poker, even though there's tons of guys in poker who are single, that they don't meet all these high standards. She, she didn't use those words, but that was basically what she tweeted out. I don't think it was malicious. I don't think she was trying to call all guys in poker loser degenerates, but that's kind of what she did. So she kind of accidentally insulted all the dudes in poker. Like, I kind of understood what she was saying. And we did a segment on this at the time, a long segment. I kind of thought she was saying, hey, there's a lot of guys in poker who live a lifestyle that I don't really like. You know, there's a lot of guys who are who do drugs or who are bad with money or uh, or just who aren't very nice. Or like, you know, there's a lot of guys out there who are single, but not guys who are looking for the same thing I am. So yeah, if you're not one of these people, if you have these qualities I'm about to list, uh, let me know. And, uh, you know, maybe... Maybe we can go out. That, that, that would have been a much nicer way to say it. But the way she put it really made it look like that she's saying, yeah, there's a ton of you guys out there who are single, but yeah, you're all losers. You're not good enough for me. <laughs> that's, that's really how it came off. I don't, think that what she, I don't think she meant it to come off that way, but that's how it came off. And that caused some controversy. Not a huge controversy, but some controversy. And a lot of uh, poker players, including some uh, older school poker players, didn't take this well because they perceived this as someone who's newer to the community. She's not super new, but they didn't really know who she was until uh, recently. So they say, hey, you know, you're kind of new to the community. How dare you come out and insult all of us and put us all down like you're above all of us? So a lot of people didn't appreciate that. But then uh, that kind of died down. Then more controversy when Gigi Poker terminated her affiliate account and she was getting like 2k worth of affiliate money every month which nobody knew about and she didn't disclose during the entire uh, Dan Bilzerian event with Gigi Poker so she was bashing 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 Gigi Poker for 3 months and they kept saying hey you know can you please stop this <laughs> and she wasn't stop actually I don't know they didn't you know what that's not true they didn't say stop this but uh, they were getting more and more annoyed by this. They weren't responding. They weren't uh, going back and forth with her. They would just ignore her. But they, they were aware of it. They were aware she was constantly bashing them ever since signing Bilzerian. And at the same time, they're cutting her like $2,000 checks every month for residual affiliate payments from someone she referred to the site like two years ago. So they terminated those payments and her f affiliate account 
reasoning that she's been bashing them for the last three months and that's violating the affiliate agreement, which it probably was. So legally they were right. Morally, I kind of saw it on both sides. On one hand, one of their sponsored pros very publicly called her a bad name on Twitter. And she has a right to be angry about that and to complain about it and to complain about the fact that they did nothing about it and gave her no apology. On the other hand, when you are an affiliate of a site and drawing an income from a site as an affiliate, you give up your right to free speech. So I have a right to free speech about any poker site out there because I'm not an affiliate of any poker site. So provided what I'm saying is true or is my opinion I can say whatever I want about poker sites with no consequence because I'm allowed to express my opinion and there's nothing they can do about it. But if I were to be drawing affiliate money from these sites, if I were to have an agreement with them that I'm only getting paid if I portray them in a positive light and then I portray them in a negative light, they can cut off my payment. They can't stop me from speaking, but they can cut off my payment by saying I violated that agreement. So there I might have... Uh, an incentive to keep my mouth shut when otherwise I would criticize them. So notice, I don't have affiliate deals on Poker Fraud Alert. I've considered it, but I've just never done it, mainly for that reason. It's not that I can't sign up for an affiliate account and maybe get some revenue from it. I just do not want to be under that pressure. I don't even want to have to think about it. I don't want that to be something in the back of my mind. Like, oh, I kind of want to talk about this, but maybe it's too minor. Maybe it's going to get me terminated as an affiliate. I don't want to give up all this income. Like, I, I don't even want to get into that thought process. I want to just go on here and fire. Just go on here and say what I want. So I do not have any affiliate arrangements with any of these sites, but she did. She had one with GG and she bashed them. Even if you want to say it was justified, which it partially was. They terminated it. So I I was kind of more on the side that they had a right to do it, both legally and morally, but that it wasn't the best look and they mishandled a lot of it. The the letter they wrote to her was mishandled. The the fact they didn't apologize for what Dan Bilzerian said was mishandled. Like, there's a lot they mishandled. But at the same time, I wouldn't say she was a victim in that she had her affiliate account terminated. This was something that I felt that she had to be aware of was going to happen when she did this. And she did say to me in direct messages during the last show when I talked about her and she was listening that she did know that this might happen and that's not even what bothers her, she claims, which I I don't believe so much. I, I think it does bother her. I do believe she was aware it might happen, but, uh, so like, I think she was willing to speak out and risk that, but then once it actually happened, then, (laughs) then she cried foul about it. So that's kind of how I see it. I I do think that uh, she was willing to risk it, which I will respect. I respect when somebody is willing to give up money to speak their mind. That's a good thing. Uh, It's just not such a good thing if once you lose that money because you spoke your mind when you knew that might happen, that you complain about it as if you were screwed. So uh, that's that's kind of where I feel like she was like very strongly implying that she got screwed on this. And uh, more than implying, she's basically saying it. And I, I don't agree she was. So I, I'm right in the middle on this one, if you don't notice. There's people who are very much on the GG Poker side. There's people very much on her side. I'm in the middle of this. Uh, she listened to the last show, and she was angry at me. We were never friends, but you know we, we, we had had some communication in the past, and uh, we got along okay. 
And now I think she doesn't like me very much because I was not completely on her side because there there were tons of virtue signalers out there, uh, dudes who were trying to show how sensitive they were and how uh, supportive of females in poker they are. And they were just guns a-blazing 100% on her side and bashing GG, and I wasn't doing that. So even though I was not taking GG's side, like Doug Polk was, for example, I was in the middle. Uh, it looked like the middle wasn't good enough for her. It looked like the middle was... Uh, she perceived it to be that I was too much on their side. And as I said last time I was on... I have a feeling if Gigi heard that segment, they would perceive I was too much on Vanessa's side. So I, I have a feeling that neither party would be happy with me from hearing that segment because I criticized both sides. I know Vanessa wasn't. She like just abruptly stopped answering my DMs. And that was that. And yeah, that's fine. She doesn't have to talk to me. I'm not saying she has to answer my DMs endlessly or she has to like me. She doesn't. She can have whatever opinion of me she wants and she can talk to me or not talk to me. That's up to her. Uh, I have nothing against her still, even if she doesn't like me now. There, there's some people who don't like me. I, I, have no, I don't have a problem with them. As long as they didn't do anything to me or have never been obnoxious to me, then if they just independently don't like me for whatever reason, fine. You know, you could just not like me. I'm not going to dislike you for that reason, as long as you don't give me a reason to dislike you. So I don't dislike Vanessa Cade, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm going to cover her honestly. If there's something good to say, I'll say it. If there's something bad to say, I'll say it. So anyway, that's... Just catching you up in case you weren't aware of everything going on. Now, here's the present. Here's what happened since the last show. America's Card Room, ACR, they are not in the same market completely as GG Poker because ACR, their main market is the U.S. They are one of the U.S.-facing sites. They're not legalized or regulated in the U.S., but they do serve the U.S. market. They are one of two major sites that people in the U.S. use. The other one, of course, being uh, Bovada and Ignition. So if someone's playing on a non-regulated, non-legal U.S. site, U.S.-facing site, it's very likely it's going to be either ACR or Bovada Ignition. So ACR serves the U.S. market while GG Poker does not. However, ACR also serves other markets that are not the U.S., which GG Poker also serves. So they do have some overlap in customer base. But I will say that the main customer base for ACR does not uh, play on GG because they can't. Like, I can't play on GG because I'm in the U.S. Anyway, Phil Nagy, who is the owner of ACR, the owner and CEO of ACR, he saw an opportunity. And he was smart. He was very smart here. I'll give him credit. I, I don't always agree with everything he does. But I will say he was smart here from a marketing perspective. He saw an opportunity. He was watching everyone rake Gigi over the coals over what happened, basically because they did nothing after what uh, Dan Blazarian said to her. And then after doing nothing, three months later, they drop her affiliate account because she's been complaining about it. So that really enraged a lot of people, especially the social justice warriors, the woke people, the virtue signalers, uh, the guys who just want to take Vanessa's side because they think it'll get them laid, whatever it is. A lot of different people took her side. A lot more took her side than took Gigi's side. A lot of women took her side because they kind of saw this as an attack on all women in poker. I don't agree, but that's how a number of women saw it. So a lot of women were very outraged by this. I can see why women are offended by this in general, that one of their representatives would call another woman a hoe. I agree that's a very bad look and that he shouldn't have done that. And I can see how that would bother women. So I'm not, I'm not saying that 
is okay or that women shouldn't be angry about seeing that. But uh, I don't think it was an attack on all women. Anyway, a lot of women were also uh, angry at Gigi over this. So ACR, they saw it. You know, Phil Nagy, he realized that this might be an opportunity to get some of Gigi's business. Some of Gigi's non-U.S. or Gigi's all non-U.S. But he can get some of these non-U.S. players from Gigi over to his site. So what he did was not only support Vanessa, but he hired Vanessa. Vanessa Cade is now a sponsored pro of America's Card Room. I was wondering what the reaction was going to be to this. Because uh, Vanessa, here she was bashing Gigi relentlessly for three months, and then she shows up as a sponsored pro of a competing site. I thought to myself, hmm, are people going to believe that this whole thing was a coordinated effort to bash GG Poker and then move their players over to ACR? Like, could this have been premeditated? Obviously, Dan Bilzerian calling her a hoe, that couldn't have been premeditated because he's representing GG. But once he did, is it possible that uh, at some point after that and after Vanessa got angry about it, that uh, ACR told her, hey, you know, keep bashing GG and then uh, a, a, you know, a little bit down the line we'll announce you as a pro. Is that possible? And even if it's not what happened, will there be people accusing her of bashing GG in bad faith because in reality she was just trying to support a competing site? I was wondering if that would be the narrative. Now, I didn't believe that narrative. And I'm being serious here. If I, if I thought that was likely or even possible, I would say so. I don't believe that's what happened. But I wondered if some people were going to perceive it that way and bash her for it. I thought there might be some drama with her joining ACR very shortly after her affiliate account got terminated with GG, that they announced that, hey, you know, look, Vanessa's uh, now one of our pros. Will people wonder if all this outrage for GG was not what it appeared to be? Well, Turned out everybody was very, very supportive of her joining ACR. There was just about no negativity about that, which kind of surprised me. I kind of thought that those who were criticizing Vanessa, because there were some out there, there were some that uh, were making a number of negative comments about her between the stuff that happened uh, with when she was seeking a boyfriend back in January and with the constant pressure she was put on GG and the, the fact that she was kind of appointing herself as the uh, defender of all women in poker. Uh, there were a lot of people who kind of were put off by this. The majority were very much on her side, but there were a number of people who were put off by this. And I was wondering if they're going to start bashing this signing and start coming up with conspiracies. But that didn't happen. It just didn't happen. She got overwhelmingly positive response, which is fine, because as I said, I don't think that this was any kind of uh, premeditated trick or conspiracy. I think it's exactly as it appears, that Dan Bilzerian said something inappropriate. She was offended. She decided to make a big deal about it. She decided to keep pressuring Gigi about it. Gigi got sick of this crap and said, you know what? If you're going to keep bashing us, we're terminating your payments. And then... ACR jumped on this. They jumped on the opportunity to sign her to steal the business that GG Poker had. So basically to take away anyone who might have quit or wanted to quit GG Poker as a result of this whole thing and basically saying, hey, come over here. Not only are we not insulting Vanessa, we signed her. 
She's actually one of our pros now. So she's one of our pros. We respect women, and we're showing it by signing her as a pro here. So this is where you should be playing, not GG Poker where they hate women. That's not what they said, but that's the message that ACR was trying to put out, and it was very smart. It was very smart. So I believe it's exactly as it appeared, that Phil Nagy of ACR jumped on an obvious marketing opportunity where a competitor will look bad, and he will look great, and that some players will jump over to ACR, or maybe even play on both. Maybe people who didn't have an ACR account before will sign up now because they like the fact that uh, they signed Vanessa, that they basically did the opposite of what GG did. GG did nothing when Dan called her a hoe, then terminated her account, which she was her affiliate account when she was complaining about it, and then ACR said, we're going to do the opposite. Instead of terminating you, we're going to sign you. So that looks great for ACR. And people praised ACR. Boy, did ACR get heaping praise from the community. And this is a site that has had mixed reviews within the poker community. Remember Joey Ingram and his whole uh, expose about bots on there? And there were a lot of bots. Joey was right. There's been a lot of complaints about ACR. There's been all these tournament fails where tournaments crash and all these DDoS attacks. There's been a number of complaints about ACR over time. Nothing like super, super major. Like there's no super using and, and they do pay people when they win. So like the very major parts of a poker site that you need to work, work on ACR. So that's fine. But, and I know Trader Ruski plays on there. He moved over there after Bovada ripped him off. <laughs> so I, I'm not trying to bash ACR here. I'm just saying that ACR, they had their critics and rightfully so. And boy, everybody give them the thumbs up on this one. So this is brilliant. And it was pretty cheap. When they signed Vanessa... They announced it on March 18th. Maybe they signed her a short time before that. But whenever it was, they got her, I have to imagine, for not very much money. Because she's not a huge name in poker. She's better known now over the last few months because of all the drama. But when they signed her, she never had a tournament cash 20K or more. Her highest tournament cash up to that point, live, or maybe I don't know, online. Maybe online she did better. But her best live cash was like 19k and change. And she had like less than 150k in lifetime live tournament caches. So she was not known as a crusher. She wasn't known as a fish. She wasn't known as a bad player. I'm guessing she was probably a winning player. I'm guessing she was probably a grinder in supporting herself uh through poker, but she wasn't killing it by any means. So They definitely didn't sign her for her poker accomplishments at that point. They signed her for a few reasons. Number one, she's a pretty girl who's under 40. Number two, people were really pissed at GG Poker about how she was treated, and they felt they would gain from that. And that was it. It wasn't because she was known as a great player or because she's had tremendous results. And that's a fact. You know, you can... it, It may be non-woke for me to say this, but that's a fact. If Vanessa was Victor or Vance, he would not have gotten the sponsorship with the exact same poker results as Vanessa had or with the exact same personality Vanessa has. She got it because of, number one, the drama, and number two, because she's a pretty female under 40. I'm not complaining about that. That's just life. In life, 
the genders will sometimes have advantages over each other in certain circumstances. So in a circumstance like this, it is better to be female, especially if you're a female who's attractive and under 40. In other aspects of life, it's better to be male and you get advantages. So that's why all this talk about uh, male privilege, um, I agree male privilege exists. I've felt male privilege before. I've thought before, hey, if I was a girl in this situation, uh, it would be tougher for me. I've thought that before. But I've also thought before, hey, if I were a pretty girl in this situation, it'd be easier for me, including getting poker sponsorships. So there's male and female privilege everywhere in life. And this is a case where there's female privilege. And I, I don't complain about it. I think it's just life and people should stop bitching about such things. But anyway, it's important to know that when they signed her, they probably didn't pay very much money to her as a result of the signing. They probably got her cheap because she didn't have many results. She wasn't a big name. She was just someone they signed because it was an opportunity. But it's not like signing Negranu. It's not like when Gigi Poker signed Negranu and you know they gave him a lot of money. You know Negranu is not going to be the face of a poker site unless they give him a lot of cash or at least a lot of cash plus tournament buy-ins. You know it's expensive to have Negranu rep your site. I even have to imagine that Chris Moneymaker got a pretty decent contract with uh, ACR when he was signed recently as a pro after leaving PokerStars. Because Chris Moneymaker is still very marketable. Because he's pretty much uh, one of the major factors in starting the poker boom. So, Chris Moneymaker? Yeah, sure, it probably costs... Some money, you know, some good money. Daniel Negreanu probably costs very big money. Vanessa Cade? Uh-uh. Now, this is not a bash on Vanessa Cade. Some people took it that way. Some people thought I was trying to bash her by saying that she isn't worth very much money as a poker pro on ACR. No, I'm, I'm not bashing her because if I'm going to bash her by saying that, then I would be bashing myself because I am worth even less than Vanessa Cade is as an ACR pro. I'm not an ACR pro, but I will concede that if I were to be one, I would be worth very little. What would I bring as an ACR pro? Well, I would bring uh, whoever is a fan of this show might be more willing to sign up to ACR. And people who know me as someone who's trustworthy and who uh, wouldn't rep a site that is shady would probably have a little more confidence in them. So I, I would have more than zero value as a pro there, but I wouldn't have tremendous value. Why? Because I'm not a frequent tournament player, because the bracelet I won is from 16 years ago, because I am almost 50 years old and male. What value would I really bring beyond what I just said? Uh, Not that much. So I would not command a large contract with ACR. Trust me, if I could command a large contract with representing a site, I would represent one. And that's different than having an affiliate program to bring in a few extra bucks. If I could be the face of a site, I would be the face of a site that I felt, uh, you know, at least fairly confident was not screwing everybody. I wouldn't be the face of a lock poker type site, but I would be the face of a site that I thought uh, basically operates fairly and doesn't cheat people. But I couldn't be the face of one of these sites because I am not a huge name in tournament poker, and I'm not... A young hot chick. I'm not even a young male. So I'm not very marketable. I'm not, I don't bring a lot of marketing value. So when I'm saying that she didn't bring a lot of marketing value back when they signed her, 
That's correct. She brought more than I would have, but she wasn't bringing a whole lot. So as a result, they didn't pay her a whole lot. I know they didn't pay her a whole lot. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if, if he said, hey, you know that 2K you just lost? Um, how about I pay you um, 3K per month? So you'll get that plus an extra an extra thousand. So I'll, I'll replace the lost money plus an extra thousand, plus you won't have to do very much. How about it? Like, why wouldn't she say yes? She didn't have a lot of money. She was not rolling in dough. I don't think she was poor, but I like she wasn't so rich that she could say, oh, I, I don't need that. Like, I'm, it was like free money for her. Why not? I, I agree with her decision to sign with him. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing they signed her. In fact, on the opposite end of that, I think it was brilliant that they signed her. I th- think that was a tremendous use of marketing dollars because it didn't cost them much and they probably got a very nice return from it. Some people questioned if they really got a return from this, but I think they did because they really bought a lot of goodwill. Even if it doesn't immediately translate to people coming over there who weren't there before or people playing more who weren't playing more before, where I'm sure they got some of that, but even if that doesn't immediately translate, they really bought something reputationally that was much needed because they have been embattled about a number of kind of like minor to medium things that are happening there. And some good press for them would be very valuable. Companies buy good press all the time. This is where they bought good press cheaply. So good for them. That was smart. And good for her for getting this. I don't begrudge her for getting this. I'm not bitter going, oh, she got this and I didn't and I have more results. No, like I, I didn't think that. I thought, okay, great. You know, that if I were a girl, I would want the same thing. So I, I never begrudge anyone for taking a sponsorship from a site for becoming a sponsored pro provided the site is not cheating people. So when people join a known scam site, I give them a hard time for it. When people join a site that's flawed, but you know you get paid and generally operates for the most part fairly, like ACR, great, go ahead. Thumbs up. So no criticism from me. I want to be very clear. No criticism from me that, that Vanessa took that position or that ACR offered that position. Great. Okay, I have no... Nothing critical to say about that. Oddly, by the way, the, the pictures of her playing poker on their official page for her are not good pictures of her. There's kind of two Vanessa Cades from a physical standpoint. Uh, there, there was kind of pre-makeover and post-makeover. Now, I know some of this was her losing weight, but I don't even notice the weight difference very much. There is definitely a major change, and I mentioned this last time, in how she presents herself today versus before. She looks way better today than before, which is a credit to her. But it's funny, the, the pictures they have of her on the page are kind of like more like before pictures, before she uh, improved her looks. I, w- I would think they should ask her to provide some pictures that she likes because she's good at finding good pictures of herself. I've seen all over her Twitter, like great pictures of her. Some of them are filtered, but even non-filtered pics, like she's pretty good at finding good pictures of herself that are taken more recently. But for some reason, they grabbed, they must have just like Googled her, <laughs> thrown up these pictures of her that aren't particularly good. But uh, anyway, it doesn't really matter. I just wanted to point it out. But that's not the big story here. Her signing with ACR, it's, it's interesting, but that's not the big story here. You may already know the big story here because everyone in poker has been talking about it. Vanessa Cade entered the Poker Stars 15th anniversary Sunday Million 
which uh, is a huge tournament they run every year. And uh, I believe it's $215 to buy in. And Americans can't play there, but she's in Canada, so that's not a problem. This is on Poker Stars again, not ACR. She plays on there as Niffler. Well, they got almost 70,000 entries. I think maybe some of them are rebuys, but whatever. They got almost 70,000 entries. And the top prize was $1.5 million. And Vanessa Cade, would you believe, finished first. That's pretty impressive. (laughs) She finished first out of 70,000 people. What the hell? Right after all this is going on here, she finishes first out of 70,000 people in the most major tournament that Poker Stars runs that they do once a year. And she wins it. She doesn't final table it. She wins it. How's that possible? I mean, sure, it can happen, but what timing here? This is somebody who never had a live cash of 20K or more. And somehow, with 70,000 entrants, she finishes first. And she had 100% of herself. She said that on Twitter. In fact, when she was going well in it the day before, it's a two-day thing, so the first day when she was going well, somebody, actually a listener to this show, asked her on Twitter if she's willing to sell a piece of herself, which I'm sure that guy wishes she said yes. But she said, no, I have 100% of myself. I'm riding with this. And then at the final table, with four left, there was talk of making a deal, and she said, nope, I don't want to make a deal. I just want to play it through. So she had a lot of confidence in her abilities, and it worked. <laughs> she she won $1.5 million, and she kept $1.5 million. Mm. That is good. So what does that say? What does that say? Well, first of all, I guess uh, Dan Bilzerian saying, quiet ho, nobody knows who you are turns out to be one of the uh, least accurate statements a few months later. At the time, he was actually not that far off. I mean, she wasn't a hoe, but uh, it was true at that point, nobody knew who she was. Not nobody, but few people knew who she was. Today, that is the opposite of true. She was the biggest story in poker this past week. And boy, the ass-kissing was off the charts. I mean, I would expect her to get congratulations for that, and she deserves it. I mean, it was a Big accomplishment to win a tournament like that with that many runners. And to do it with such timing that after uh, all that controversy she's been through, that right after that she wins a huge tournament like this that dwarfs anything she's won before. So that's great. That's a great story. It's a very inspiring story in poker. And just from the standpoint of looking at the story itself, ignoring her gender and ignoring the controversy, just... Uh, kind of a you know, several-year poker grinder who's trying to break through and just can't quite get there. They can support themselves on poker but can't really uh, break through and hit the big money. And then they enter the 70,000 entrant Sunday Million, the anniversary edition of it, with tons of people, and they, they outright win it and won't make a deal and take down the whole damn thing for $1.5 I mean, that's, that's a very inspiring story, even if it were a dude doesn't matter who it was. It's just any poker player who were to go through that. That would be a very inspiring story. It's a great story. It's something that uh, will make others want to 
try this themselves. It'll give hope to others. Hey, maybe this can be me one day. You know, I'm, I'm just getting by in poker, but maybe one day I will enter that tournament and my life will change. So it's a great story. It's amazing because it immediately followed all this other drama. Like if this were in a poker movie, you'd say, oh, come on. Yeah, right. So she, she goes and beats 70,000 people right after all this happens, right after she signs with ACR. Right. Yeah. The, like that timing would ever occur. Come on now. That, that writer needs to do better here. I mean, it, it really was improbable that it would happen then. But it did. So now she's $1.5 million richer. And she has a major online title under her belt. So now... Now think about how smart Phil Nagy of ACR looks. Phil Nagy of ACR signed her just to make Gigi look bad, to maybe steal some of their players through this scandal. When I say steal, I don't mean in a bad way. I mean like in a competitive way. And uh, also to kind of demonstrate to the poker world, hey, look, uh, we care about women and we're sensitive, which is BS. They don't, but... (laughs) I'm not saying they're terrible to women, but you know, the whole thing is just marketing. The whole thing's marketing. And so it was a very smart move by Phil Nagy, but he got this bonus. She won this after she was signed to ACR. So now she has this very big win under her belt and everyone's talking about it. And then Nagy has her as an ACR pro probably under contract for the next year or something for cheap. Brilliant. Now, he couldn't have foreseen this. He couldn't have foreseen she was going to win the, the Poker Stars anniversary Sunday Million. But the whole thing was a smart move in the first place, and then he got a lucky break there that she would win this. Speaking of lucky, how lucky was this, and how much of it was skill? Well, I can tell you that a lot of it was luck. And this is not to bash her. You cannot win in a 70,000-person field Unless you have a ton of luck, especially when it's not a super slow structure. It's not a fast structure, but it's not like the World Series of Poker main event. So when the tournament is is designed to eliminate people, to eliminate 70,000 people in two days, then there is always going to have to be a lot of luck to win, to outright win. That's not to say there's no skill. That's not to say that a skilled player over time would not show a profit there. I'm saying that to outright win that thing, you need a lot of luck, no matter who you are. So she got a lot of luck. She really did. From what I saw of her play, I didn't watch her play it live, but I was looking at some hand histories and hand descriptions. It looked like she played well. It looked like she had a good feel for the way it was going, for the way players were behaving. Uh, In the final table, she noticed that the chip leader, some European guy, was being over-aggressive one guy who had like way more chips than everybody else for a while and she picked up some good hands against him and she basically let the guy hang himself against her twice and that allowed her to chip up a lot so between that and some other uh well-played hands when i say well-played i don't mean like super advanced amazing plays that everyone will ooh and ah about but like i'm talking about just solid play just having a good feel for the event and the opponent's and uh, and also getting plenty of luck. Like she even mentioned that at one point she was in all in sevens against aces, and she won that hand. So you you're going to have to win ones like that to win a tournament. It's it's very unusual to win a tournament with a large field without putting some bad beats on people and surviving when they look like you're going to bust. But I will say that where 
she had the opportunity to play hands well and needed to that she did. So she she executed when given the opportunity. So I'll give her credit. You know, she played it well and she won. She This wasn't a, a fish who just luck boxed into a win. This was someone who played it well and also got very fortunate cards, as is the case with most tournament winners. If you think this means that... Uh, She's way, way better than anyone expected. That doesn't mean anything. Like All this says is that she is at least a decent tournament player who, in this case, got very good cards and made the most of them. This doesn't mean that she's the next major tournament crusher. This also doesn't mean that she's just a fish who got lucky. It's kind of in the middle. That she's a decent player, that she made some good moves, that she played the hand she got well, but there was a lot of luck involved too. And we will have to see, since she presumably has a bankroll to play more now, we'll have to see how she does going forward. But what a stroke of luck for both her and ACR. More her, obviously, but ACR, boy, they, they really got the positive end of this whole thing. So good move, Phil Nagy. Good signing. Very, very good signing. And I will give Vanessa congratulations for this as well. It's a great accomplishment. And a lot of poker players dream of this. I'm not an online tournament player. I had some, someone asking me, am I jealous now? Am I jealous that that single cash is more than I have cashed live in my entire poker career? And my answer is no, because I'm not a tournament player. I just play the World Series and that's it. I'm not a professional tournament player. So this is not a competition here. Uh, but would I like to enter something like that and win $1.5 million? Of course I would. I, I'm not minimizing it. I think it's great, and I'm happy for her. There's people who win tournaments sometimes who I think are assholes, and I hate to see them win. She's not one of them. I'm, I'm happy for her that she won this. I don't think she's a bad person. I think a lot of the flack she's gotten has been undeserved. I also think that... Uh, there's been a lot of virtue signalers who have been seeking to defend her at every turn when it's a much more complicated situation than it appears to be. And that's the last thing I want to talk about before I move on to the next topic. I have nothing against Vanessa at all. I really don't. But who I do have something against are the virtue signalers that have been using her situation to show how sensitive and how tolerant they are and how supportive of women they are. Because blindly supporting a woman with a complaint about something in poker does not make you a great defender of women. It does not make you a great supporter of women's rights, or it does not make you someone who's a big advocate for women in poker. If you want to be supportive of women in poker, then you should support things in poker that are meaningful, that will uh, make life easier for women in poker or bring more women to the game or give credit to female poker players who've accomplished a lot at the table, including the ones who aren't necessarily young or attractive. So, yeah, it's, it's easy to talk about uh, how proud you are of some woman who's uh, 30 years old and really pretty. But uh, if you really want to support women in poker, what about the women who are 60 years old? and uh, winning something big. 
they should be supported just as much. They should be talked about just as much. People don't want to because it's not as fun to talk about those women. It's not that fun to talk about. If a 60-year-old woman wins something big, uh, it's not that exciting to talk about for anybody. But if you, if really, if you're supportive of women, you should want to support those women as much as you do the young, pretty ones. But anyway, a lot of this is phony. A lot of this is virtue signaling. A lot of this is posturing. And especially the men who do it. You know, the women who do it, at least I can understand, because when they see Dan Bilzerian talking to Vanessa that way, and then they think of things in their own lives where men have talked down to them in a dismissive fashion. It reminds them of abusive men that they have dealt with. Even I'm talking about emotionally abusive, not physically abusive necessarily. But at least they have similar experiences they can draw upon. But the men, the men who are commenting on this, if, if you want to condemn what Dan Blazerian said, that's fine. But if you're just backing everything Vanessa says and completely 100% taking her side just to show off how sensitive you are, it's just stupid. It's just stupid. It's just lame. And it may impress some people, but it does the opposite to me and anybody else sensible who's paying attention. So just because you're a dude saying the right stuff, or you think is the right stuff, or you think is the woke stuff on Twitter, that doesn't make you sensitive. That doesn't make you a supportive of women. I think people should express their true opinions. And if your opinion happens to truly be based upon logic and the facts that she's right, then by all means say so. And that's exactly what I do. If I feel a guy is right in a dispute with a poker site, I will say the guy is right. If I think a woman's right, I will say she's right. If I think the guy is wrong, I'll say he's wrong. If I think the woman's wrong, I'll say she's wrong. If I think it's in the middle, I say it's in the middle. You'll notice that I will approach these logically and fairly because I don't want a virtue signal. I, I don't want to show how sensitive I am. But a lot of guys in poker do. And it's lame. And there was a lot of over-exuberance about Vanessa's last win from men who are trying to show how supportive they are. And again, like a congratulatory tweet is not ex- over-exuberance, but when it's something like, oh, wow, this is amazing. This is the best thing ever for poker. Wow, this is so deserved. Wow, after all the, everything you've been through, this is karma. This is karma, my friends. No, that's, that's, come on. Come on. Come on, man. 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 I, I, I hate reading things like that. Um, I, I had one of these uh, virtue signalers come after me. A Christian Soto, who is uh, the co-owner, I and uh, he, he's very much a uh, social justice warrior type, and it's not surprising to see this from him, but this is what he said to me, because I, I was complimenting Phil Nagy. I said on March 24th, the smartest guy in poker this month appears to be Phil Nagy for the Vanessa Cade signing. I can't imagine they're paying her that much, yet they get to possibly grab some disgruntled GG poker players, plus her stock is way up since the big win. Brilliant move. So I got 24 likes on this. I got two retweets. So and I, I, it wasn't like a viral tweet. But for the most part, I, I got positive response to this. But uh, Christian Soto 
took this as an opportunity to slam me and to come off as uh, a white knight defending poor Vanessa. Was I insulting her here? Did I say anything bad about her here? No. I said nothing bad about her. Anyway, he responded saying, backhanded compliment BS. The value was there before the win to ACR, and you have no idea what they're paying her. Why would you say you, quote, can't imagine they're paying her that much? You wouldn't appreciate someone saying, I can't imagine many people listening to the Poker Fraud Alert show. Well, first of all, I can't imagine people saying that there aren't many people who listen to the Poker Fraud Alert show. <laughs> I can imagine because people say that. <laughs> I've had people say that before. And I will admit we're not a huge show. We're not a tiny show. We have a loyal audience. We have uh, a four-figure audience. But we're, we're not a gigantic show. We don't get the type of uh, listenership like the number of viewers that uh, Joey Ingram gets, for example. So, yeah, I mean, uh, many is relative. So I guess you could say there aren't, quote, many people who listen to the Poker Fraud Show. Poker Fraud Alert is supposed to be. But since Brandon calls it the Fraud Show, I'll give him a pass there. However, let's go to the other things he said. Backhanded compliment BS. No, it's not a backhanded compliment. It's, it's me just stating a fact about a signing. That's it. It's not a backhanded compliment. It's not a compliment at all. I wasn't complimenting Vanessa. I was complimenting Phil Nagy for signing her. That's where the compliment was. I was not complimenting or criticizing Vanessa there. I was commenting on a signing. Okay? Next. The value was there before the win to ACR? Well, kind of, but I don't think in the way that he's trying to say. As I said before, the value was because, number one, she's a pretty female under 40, and number two, all that drama with GG Poker made her a sympathetic character to a lot of people. And uh, it made Gigi Poker look bad, and signing her is good PR for ACR, and might even bring some players over. So yeah, that's where the value was. It wasn't in her results, that's for sure. It is now, it wasn't then. And he says, why would you say you can't imagine they're paying her that much? And that I have no idea what they're paying her. Well, I I do have no idea what they're paying her, but I do know it's not that much. (laughs) How? Because I've been in the industry 20 years. I've been around longer than you, Christian. I know these things. I can figure out who is getting a lot of money, who is getting kind of middle money, and who's getting lower money. And again, that's not anything against Vanessa, because if I were to be signed, I would get low money. So unless I'm bashing myself, I'm not bashing her by saying that. So I wrote back to Christian, not the exact amount, but I do know it's not huge money from my 20 years of experience in the industry. It's not a backhanded compliment or insult. It's a simple marketing value. For example, as an older male who rarely plays tournaments, my marketing value would be low. True. But he's putting this out there because he's trying to show how supportive he is to her and get uh, points for being a white knight and social justice warrior. And by the way, they had her on their Solve for Why show he and Matt Berkey, and boy, was that an ass-kissing fest. I mean, uh, I, I watched like two minutes of it, and I couldn't stand it. And not, not because of Vanessa. She was fine, but it was like th- these guys were just laying it on so thick, I had to turn it off. It was just, it was something that uh, was hard to watch. So I see they're trying to continue that and bash me with a comment like that. 
I would understand him defending her if I said something insulting or degrading or trying to say that her win uh, didn't mean anything or was, wasn't impressive. Like, if I criticized her, fine. But this wasn't even a criticism of her, and he knew that. But there's all these guys in poker who do things like this. They, they will look for any opportunity to virtue signal, show how sensitive they are, to impress the pretty girl. Very sad. Very annoying. Okay, let's move on here. Max Silver is a poker pro. He has a World Series of Poker bracelet. He's a good player. I've had him at my table in uh, 2019. I think it was at the uh, Big 50 event. Maybe it was something else. It was something like on day two that I made. But anyway, Max Silver, had he made a post on Twitter directing people to his Bitcoin Talk post. Bitcoin Talk is a large Bitcoin-related forum. And he talked about how he had been scammed for six figures in a sports betting and Bitcoin scam. And it's a pretty interesting story. So I'm going to tell you about that, and then we will analyze it, as we always do. This is what he tweeted on March 22nd. Dag, J-Dagger, Daggerman, Droopy Dog, Joseph Timon stole $140 from me. Not $140, $140,000 from me. And then he put the link. Well, when I saw this, immediately when I saw J-Dagger, I go, wait a minute. He couldn't mean John D'Agostino, who was a pretty prominent uh, player in the 2000s, a pretty prominent young player back then, who I, I knew personally. It was not John D'Agostino. It has nothing to do with him. Just very similar name. John D'Agostino went by J-Dags 21 because, you know, J-Dags, John D'Agostino, and he was 21 when he created that account uh, back on PokerStars on like you know, like 2003 or four or whatever. This Dag, J-Dag or Daggerman that has nothing to do with John D'Agostino, but is some Costa Rican guy who goes by Joseph Timon. That may not even be his real name, but uh, that's who Max Silver is accusing of having uh, stolen over $140,000 in Bitcoin from him in a premeditated scam. Now, I do have to wonder right off the bat, why would you ever leave yourself vulnerable to have almost $150,000 stolen from you by a guy who goes by Droopy Dog? (laughs) (laughs) I think... That should be a red flag right there, droopy dog. But okay, putting that aside, here's what happened. Here's what his Bitcoin post says, his Bitcoin talk post. Joseph Timon gave me sports betting accounts with supposed higher limits. I funded the account with 2.7 Bitcoin, worth approximately 150K at the time. After approximately eight days, he blocked me, withdrew the entire remaining balance of 2.55 Bitcoin, and is refusing any contact or return of the money. I am posting this to ensure that no other operator or sports better becomes victim of this person. He's not only scamming betters, but he's also scamming sites as an affiliate. My name is Max Silver, and I'm a professional poker player and sports better. So let me stop right here. He gave you the cliff notes at the very beginning. Basically, 2.55 Bitcoin were stolen from him through sports betting accounts that Joseph Timon set up for betting and that he made off with them. That's the very, very brief form of the story. 
but here's the details. I was first introduced to DAG on December 1st, 2020. He set me up under his affiliate account on stake.com, and I proceeded to get very high limits before eventually getting my limits slashed to zero. Now, let me stop right there so I can explain this to you. What happens to winning sports bettors is that they get their limits lowered progressively until eventually they're either kicked off or their limits are so low that they don't even see it worth it to continue there. Why does this happen? Well, because sportsbooks don't want winners. Sportsbooks knows that there are very skilled sports bettors who are positive expectation over time. There are moderately skilled sports bettors who kind of break even after the juice. And then there's everybody else who are losing sports bettors. Most people, the vast, vast majority of sports bettors lose. The vast majority of sports bettors just are not good enough to beat the juice that comes with every sports bet, the juice being the percentage that the house takes of every bet. It's kind of like the rake in poker. So if you do demonstrate that you appear to be a sharp sports better, then you'll either be quickly kicked off or they're going to lower your limits so you can't damage them as much while they're figuring out if you're sharp or if you've just been lucky. So he's saying here that uh, this guy, Joseph Timon, aka Dag, set him up on some sports book on uh, stake.com but that uh, stake.com didn't tolerate Max Silver's action for very long before uh, lowering his limits eventually down to zero where he couldn't bet anymore and he was effectively kicked off. So he wanted to continue sports betting and uh, I guess that uh, Dag then made some other suggestions to him of where he could do so. So he said on March, uh, on March 2nd, 2021, he messaged me saying that he had especially high limits on Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin is a fairly long-running cryptocurrency gambling site. So DAG messaged Max on March 2nd of this year saying that he had very high limits on this Bitcoin site. Now, let me stop again. It is hard to get high limits on sports betting sites right off the bat, even if you post the money up first, because... Again, they don't know if you're a sharp better. They kind of want to get to know you first before exposing themselves to getting killed by you because uh, you're a sharp player. So basically, Dag told Max Silver, instead of going through the whole process of getting them to give you high limits, which might be tough, I already have an account. I have an existing account that has high limits on Bitcoin. So how would you like to use that? So Max said, I offered him an 8% free roll of the profits in return for letting us bet through his accounts. So basically, he's going to be using Dag's account, and that uh, if he loses, then Dag pays nothing. If he wins, then uh, he keeps 92% of it, and Dag gets the other 8%. So it's basically uh, Dag takes no risk and gets 8% of any profits that are made. I deposited one Bitcoin on Betcoin, the site, and proceeded to make enough bets to where a second deposit of one Bitcoin was made. The limits didn't last long, but he kept on saying that he was in direct contact with the site and limits will be big soon. He then told me that he had a high-limit Bitzler account. Bitzler is another betting site that you bet cryptocurrencies on, and encouraged me to deposit there. A further 0.7 Bitcoin was deposited. He encouraged me to open up a stake account with a new identity directly against his affiliate terms. We deposited, but were instantly flagged and the money was returned. So... Uh, Let me stop again and explain what's going on here. So 
he put two Bitcoin on Bitcoin under uh, Dag's account and made some big bets. He didn't state how he did here. We'll get to that in a second. But that uh, very quickly, Bitcoin got nervous and said, ah, you know what? Uh, this account had high limits, but we're going to lower it. So they lowered the limits of Dag's account there. And then he's like, oh, okay, well, I have a good relationship with them. Don't worry. I'll, I'll talk them into raising the limits. But in the meantime, if you want to keep betting high, uh, go over to Bitsler. He's like, I have an account on Bitsler that's high stakes. So he went over to Bitsler and uh, used Dag's account on Bitsler and deposited 0.7 Bitcoin there. Then he also said, uh, why don't you make a new account on, uh, I'm not sure which site. He said, open a stake account with a new identity. I think he means stake.com. So he opened, he encouraged him to open another account on stake.com, but uh, stake.com realized very quickly it was really him and terminated the account and sent them back the money, which was a risk. He could have had the money confiscated, but stake.com sent the money back and said, we don't want you here, but we're not going to take your money. (laughs) So that, that part isn't all that, relevant here, except it's showing that Dag was also uh, willing to break the affiliate terms he had with Stake.com. What do you think happened? Now, I'll tell you, by the way, if you want to wonder how they did with these high-stakes bets, it looks like they slightly lost. So it looks like the sports bets that Max Silver placed took the overall account balance down from a cumulative 2.7 Bitcoin to 2.55 Bitcoin. So it's not a tremendous loss. It's 0.5. 15 Bitcoin, which is less than 10K, but uh, there is still 2.55 Bitcoin left in these accounts combined, the Bitcoin and this Bitsler. So what do you think might have happened from that point, especially since I already told you? But even if I hadn't told you, it doesn't take a genius to think about the fact that someone who isn't very honest, if you deposit your Bitcoin into their account that at any point they could take control of the account and then just make off with the Bitcoin and then there's nothing you can do about it. Why is there nothing you can do about it? Well, because number one, Bitcoin has no ownership. He can't show that it was his Bitcoin, or at least not very easily, because it's not like he sent in the money from his own bank account. Bitcoin, it's not clear whose account it's coming from. Is that the whole nature of Bitcoin? So he sent in Bitcoin to the sites. It looked like it was Dag's Bitcoin. There's no way they can tell whose Bitcoin it is. And then it's Dag's account. It really was his account. So of course he has a right to cash out from his own account. So of course the site processes it. And then Dag takes the money and runs. So at the time this happened, 2.55 Bitcoin was worth approximately 140K. So it was very simple. He got... Max Silver to deposit a bunch of money through Bitcoin. They made a few bets. And then after a short time, Dag just cashed it all out and disappeared. Pretty simple scam. (laughs) Now, you may wonder, why would uh, Max trust somebody who he doesn't know that well to uh, hold all that Bitcoin for him, given the potential for this? Because Max Silver is not an idiot. This guy is is a smart guy. I've talked to him before. He's not a friend of mine, but we've talked before, and uh, he's had a lot of success in poker. It's it's clear this is an intelligent guy. So how did he not see this coming? Well, I will read the rest of the post. You might understand. On March 12th, the computer went offline, and Dag uh, sent the following message, and he put a screenshot. 
Redag said, hey, guys, sorry, bad day. I'm still not home. If you have anything I can check on mobile or if you can give me the wallet, I can submit a withdrawal. So uh, that was the last thing he said. <laughs> and, uh, that was before he realized that the, the money was gone. Uh, the number he had messaged me from for any issues turned out to be an unknown female. I don't know what he means by that. I think he might mean that uh, he gave a number, either a number to call if there's any problem, or that uh, he was just using somebody else's phone that didn't even know he's using it. I don't know. But I guess he called the phone number that he'd been messaged from, and then there's just some female going, I don't know who that is. I immediately got concerned and got in touch with the site support to alert them of the issue and suspend the account balances. I learned the money was withdrawn in full. I also learned all his actions up to that point were premeditated in an attempt to steal as much money as possible. He remained unresponsive before deleting our entire chat history on the 15th. I have full screenshot backups. I have given him multiple ultimatums and chances to make this right, and he clearly has no interest. The money withdrawn has since been deposited to other Nitrogen and Bitzler accounts, either to wash the money clean or just gamble with it. He still has an active affiliate account, with several crypto gambling sites, primarily stake.com. His monthly revenue is between 30 and 50K, which is why I gave him so much trust. I've managed to hear his, quote, side of the story. It's full of excuses and no valid reasons as to why the money is his or why he won't return it. I'd love to hear what that side of the story is. It's too bad. Like, uh, why, why didn't he show that to us? I would have loved to have seen what possible reason this guy could have stated of why it's his money. I have additional proof I haven't posted as it contains identifying information of a helpful third party. I have his real name as Joseph Timon, possibly fake, and his online aliases as Dag, J Dagger, and Daggerman. The, for some reason, uh, no mention of Droopy. What happened to Droopy? His emails are jtemkel at protonmail.com and jtemkel at gmail.com. I am 99% sure his sportsbook review account is this, and he puts a link. He lives in Costa Rica. There's a good chance he's going to come at me spreading lies. I have the full chat logs of the screenshots, and I'm happy to prove anything. I'm calling for any affiliates to terminate all ties with this thief. Not only did he steal a significant amount of money from me, but he showed a blatant willingness to go behind affiliates' backs, attempt to defraud them, and break their terms of service. On the off chance anyone's able to assist with more information that leads to the recovery of any funds, I'm willing to give a 20% finder's fee. So... If you can get Max Silver's money back for him, any part of it, he'll give you 20% of it. Though, he's right about an off chance. It's probably not going to happen. So he trusted this guy because the guy was supposedly an affiliate making 30 to 50K a month and figured the guy would not risk the negative fallout of this to steal 100-something K. Because if he really has these accounts making that much per month then in a few months he'll make that amount anyway. So if this were to ruin it, this would not be a very smart uh, theft, even if he were to get away with it. That was why Max assumed that this guy would not steal from him, which turned out to be the wrong assumption because he got stolen from. I've since gotten a message from somebody else who listens to this show who told me that they also had some dealings with this DAG person and that he was shady. So they're not surprised that all this happened, they said to me. So uh, I haven't seen a lot of action on this Bitcoin talk topic. It only has like four replies. 
and this was posted on March 23rd. So we've had uh, three days since it was posted, and yet, uh, actually almost four days, he posted it slightly after midnight on March 23rd, and now it's the end of March 26th. So he's really not getting very much response. Nobody really seems to care. Now, there's a lot of scams that get talked about on Bitcoin Talk. If you think that poker players are gullible, you should see Bitcoin people. Bitcoin people get scammed all the time in a lot of just really, really stupid ways. So I'm not saying Max was stupid here. I'm saying that in general, I think Bitcoin talk is kind of numb to scam reports at this point. I think also this confuses a lot of people because Max is using a lot of uh, sports betting jargon that a lot of people may not understand if they're not part of that world. That's why I was pausing to explain to you guys about the limits to zero. And uh, like, you can kind of understand it by reading this, but like, there's some things that are kind of not that straightforward or obvious unless you know the industry, which I know some of you do and some of you don't. So that's why I paused to explain it. But he didn't really pause to explain it. And this is on a Bitcoin site. If he posted this on a sports betting site, then everybody would know what he's talking about. But this is on a Bitcoin site where some may not. So for whatever reason, nobody was interested. It's also not getting a tremendous response on Twitter. Now, nobody's bashing him, but... Max Silver is a fairly prominent pro player. He has uh, 11,700 followers, and yet this only has uh, 14 retweets and 45 likes. And given the amount that was stolen, that's not a lot. So I think for whatever reason, this is just uh, not getting as much attention as it should. The fact that nobody really knows this uh, Joseph Timon in most of poker probably also doesn't help very much. So let's talk about what happened here. If you put your money in somebody else's account, especially through Bitcoin, where it's very hard to show the operator that it came from you, and even if you do, once it's withdrawn, they're not going to help you anyway. Basically, once you've put Bitcoin into somebody else's account, they have full control. It's going to be very hard to get that money back, especially if they're not in the U.S. So if somebody who resides in a foreign country, which he knew, is controlling any account, doesn't matter what kind of account, poker, sports, whatever, any kind of account where you deposit Bitcoin to it and it's their account, then you have to have a tremendous amount of trust of them. Otherwise, they might steal from you. And it's not even that hard to believe they might steal from you. Now, I understand his point that it didn't make sense to him that he would risk his reputation for 140K when he estimates this guy is making 30 to 50K a month in affiliate money. Well, there's a few reasons he might have done this. Number one, he may not not be making this type of money anymore. It's possible that uh, he's making less for whatever reason. It's possible he's um, gotten terminated from some places or about to be terminated. It's possible that he just owes a lot of money and is desperate to either get it to pay others back or or get it and then try to run it up gambling to pay back what he owes. It's possible the guy just wasn't thinking at all and was just tempted. The problem is you can't always expect rational behavior from people who just don't need to steal. Take a look at the Absolute Poker scandal. Absolute Poker was doing very well. Absolute Poker was making a lot of money. And yet they chose, the ownership of Absolute Poker chose to steal from the poker players, including me, by looking at our whole cards and playing against us. So just because something's making a lot of money does not mean they're not going to steal from you. I will admit that someone who's making a lot of money 
is less likely to steal from you if you're going to call it out and ruin the reputation. But you also have to understand that degenerate gamblers don't always act rationally and that sometimes they'll have problems behind the scenes that you don't know about. So someone who appears to be successful might be really struggling because of their gambling addiction and they may get desperate to do some bad things. I believe Max, when he says it was a premeditated scam, so it wasn't just that this DAG guy was so tempted and just couldn't help himself and uh, stole the money because it was just sitting there and staring him in the face. He actually put the effort into tricking Max Silver into depositing this money into his account so he could steal it. And I believe that. So that is uh, something you have to really be aware of before you trust anyone in this way. I can tell you I would never trust anyone to be holding this kind of money from me in their account unless they were either a family member or a very good friend of mine. So if it's someone I've known for many years that I know isn't going to screw me, then yeah, I'll do it. If it's a family member, I'll do it. If it's somebody who has been a member of the community a very long time, that you just know doesn't have any kind of a degenerate type problem and that they're highly unlikely to ever steal it. Someone like me. Like, if I were sharing an account with you, let's say we were sharing a sports betting account together, I'm sure you would be pretty certain that I would not run off with the money, even if it were like 150K. I'm pretty certain you would think you could trust me. Because I've been in the industry 20 years and I've never done anything like this. So not only do I have a reputation to uphold, but I also have never shown any inclination to do anything like this, nor do I seem like a degenerate who's going to blow all my money. So for that reason, you could assume someone like me is pretty safe. But still, it would take a lot of trust to leave me in full control of 150k of your money. If you did, I wouldn't screw you. But I wouldn't blame you if you were a little bit nervous leaving me in control if all you know of me is what you've heard of me on this show and what you've read of me online. I'm not talking about someone who knows me personally. So still, if it's someone who's been around for many, many years and has everyone's trust and has never screwed anyone and doesn't seem like the type who would be uh, hurting for money, fine. But... This guy does not qualify, this Joseph Timon. He's just some dude in Costa Rica who's an affiliate who supposedly makes good money as an affiliate. Okay, but that doesn't mean he's trustworthy. I understand Max's thinking, but the flaw was, well, he makes all this money as an affiliate. He wouldn't steal from me here and ruin his rep. Eh, apparently, yes, he would. <laughs> so I'm not even shocked this happened. Now, if somebody who had uh, many, many, many years of being known for honesty and not screwing people, went and did this, just flipped out one day and stole the money, then I'd say, okay, you would have more of a defense to why you trusted that person. Because you can say, all the history points to this person not doing this. And then they surprised me. But it sounds like this Joseph Timon guy doesn't have any kind of uh, good history. And in fact, a listener to this show already told me before I even did the segment that he doesn't trust him. 
So that was a mistake on Max's part, and I'm sure it's one he won't make again. But yeah, don't share accounts unless you really trust the person, because it can end up very badly. Very, very badly. I don't think Max has much of a chance to get it back. I'll tell you why. Number one, you'd like to think these Bitcoin sites care about this, but they don't. In fact, I don't even think he'll get their affiliate accounts terminated because like maybe stake.com will will be a little unhappy that he tried to sneak uh, Max on there under a fake name. But really, all these Bitcoin sites care about, these Bitcoin gambling sites care about is making money. So if they have an affiliate who's acting a little bit shady, but is still bringing him a lot of players, then they're going to overlook it. They're going to say, okay, whatever, watch out, but we'll let you stay. They're not looking to be the moral police in any way, shape, or form. These Bitcoin sites, they I'm talking about the Bitcoin gambling sites, all they want to do is make money. So good luck in getting this guy terminated as an affiliate these sites will just say, okay, well, this is between you and him. We're not getting involved. And he can try to make it look like this is Max's fault. I don't believe it's Max's fault. I believe Max's story is probably true. But Joseph can say, look, this is my account. That was my Bitcoin. And Max now is trying to steal my Bitcoin by claiming that uh, I withdrew the Bitcoin, which uh, were in his or Max is bitter at me because I don't want him using my account. So uh, now he's trying to claim the Bitcoin that got withdrawn was actually his, which I wouldn't believe. But he could say something like that, and the sites are going to go, ah, oh, we don't want to get in the middle of this. And we don't want to figure out whose Bitcoin is whose, and we don't want to read screenshots. Like They're not going to care. They're not going to care that much. It's going to be enough plausible deniability that this uh, Timon guy can give. Droopy here can just say, hey, look, it was my account. It was my Bitcoin. This guy's full of crap. And the sites go, eh, yeah, okay, kind of makes sense. <laughs> That'll be that. It's shitty. I, I wish that wasn't the case. I, I hope Mac gets, Max gets his money back. And I believe him. So I'm not trying to cast doubt upon his story. I'm just saying that the way this all went down, it's probably not likely that anything's going to happen to this Timon guy, especially if he's performing well as an affiliate. If he's making that much money as an affiliate, he's probably performing well. He's probably referring a lot of people over to these sites and they like it. So good luck, but uh, hard to be droopy. Hello, all you happy people. You know what? I'm the hero. Yeah, that's uh, exactly what Joseph Timon is saying right now. He's the hero of taking Bitcoin. Okay, let's move on. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Doug Polk is... Well, he made an announcement. Doug Polk has announced that he is done with Las Vegas and he is leaving the city for good and seeking out greener pastures. As you probably know, Doug Polk has been very successful in poker in many ways, on and off the felt. Everything he's done has pretty much been done right. Even his trolling of Daniel Negreanu 
ended up right because it ended up with Negreanu agreeing to play him heads up as an underdog and then Polk predictably beating him for over a million bucks. So just everything with Polk, poker-related, has gone right. He's won a lot of money playing. He started a successful training site called Upswing Poker, which still exists to this day. He has and had a successful YouTube channel with a big following by poker standards. He became one of the bigger names in poker over the past five years. If you have been following poker in the last five years, you almost surely know who Doug Polk is. So given that Doug Polk was a complete nobody 10 years ago, and even five years ago wasn't very well known, he's had a tremendous ascent in poker and has made a ton of money doing it, has a lot of people's respect, has a big following, become very influential. So he's done a lot of things correctly. And even though he's trolled a lot of people, he doesn't have like a lot of bitter enemies. There are some people who really don't like him, like Christian Soto, for example. Christian Soto, I talked about before, hates Doug Polk, as does Matt Berkey. So there's, there's some people who hate him, but really considering all the trolling he did, fewer people hate him than you would think. So why is he leaving Las Vegas? This is what he tweeted. March 25th, yesterday, 3.08 p.m. Pacific Time. Today is my last day living in Las Vegas. Moved here over a decade ago with just a few thousand to my name and a dream to play poker for a living. Still hard to believe how it all shook out. Couldn't be more grateful for the life I've gotten to live. To the next chapter, and put the little uh, emoji of beer glasses clinking. So the next chapter, he's not just relocating, he's actually moving on to another chapter in his life, he says. Someone asked him back, where are you moving to? He said, not sure yet, probably Austin. So I thought about this. As soon as I saw, when I saw this, I thought, okay, why? Why? What what is he doing? What's this next chapter? What is this? Well, Doug strikes me as a guy who is never satisfied with where he is or what he's doing. And I've known others like this in my life. No matter how successful they are, they get bored, they get restless, they get depressed, and uh, all they want to do is chase the next big thing in their life. The grass is always greener on the other side to them. In fact, it's not only greener. Where they're standing, they think the grass looks dead. And then they feel an intense need to move over over to the other side where the grass is green. No matter how well things are going, they find a way to become unhappy and depressed and dissatisfied. Like you think if you're Doug Polk at this point, you're going to be very, very happy with where things are. And he says he is. He says he's very proud of what he's accomplished. He says that he's uh, he can't believe what he built up from just a few thousand dollars when he came to Vegas over a decade ago. And he has reason to feel that way for the reasons I already stated. So why does he say sometimes that he hates poker, which he does? Why does he actually get depressed sometimes when he plays poker? He famously in the 2019 main event didn't want to play, was talked into playing by his fans very reluctantly went down to the Rio and plunked down the 10K, felt depressed the moment he sat down, depressed not just like over uh, 
unrelated circumstances or, or due to a, a chemical issue, but he actually was depressed that he was there playing the main event. And he sat there depressed, 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 and all he wanted to do was leave, so he pretty much punted off his stack and was gone day one. So this is a guy who, for quite some time now, has expressed dissatisfaction with poker, that he just doesn't like it. In fact, some people have been annoyed by this. Some people have told him, you're doing so well, you're making so much money, we don't want to hear about how much you hate it. If you hate it, leave. Stop saying you hate poker. Stop saying it depresses you. Stop saying that uh, you really don't like playing. If that's true, fine, but go away then. (laughs) And they have a point. Like, Nobody wants to hear this from a guy who's just winning all kinds of money left and right and running a, 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 a successful training site and then go, oh, man, poker sucks. I don't like poker. Well, shut up. Then leave. Goodbye. So I think he's just one of these guys who's like this. And I've known other people like this. I've known people that they can never, ever be happy with what they're doing. Even if they put a lot of time and effort into getting where they are. They say, okay, I'm done. I'm moving on. Like someone, for example, who uh, goes all the way through college, all the way through law school, puts a lot of effort into uh, building up a successful career in law. I'm not talking about Eric Bensmoken, by the way. But uh, I've known other attorneys who've been like this, who've uh, gone all the way through. And then after having a very successful law practice, they just abruptly go, I, I don't. I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. I'm, I'm quitting. I'm going to be go do something else. I, I don't mean someone who's been practicing for like 30 years and kind of is burnt out and tired of it. I'm saying that they they're not burnt out. They just don't want to be there anymore. They put all this work into it, both getting their uh, law degree and passing the bar, and uh, not just that, but also building up their practice to just abruptly give up and quit and run off despite a lot of success, and then chase after something that's you know, not going to be easy to achieve or impossible to achieve. And then the next thing they do, they get tired of that quickly, move on. They move on again and again and again. I've known people like that. Not I, I threw up a lawyer as someone I knew from the past as an example, but I've known people in all fields who've done this. I've known some people in engineering fields. I've known doctors who've done this. I've known... Uh, People who have been in the science fields that have done this. I've known people who have uh, been in sports that have done this. The sports people I didn't really know personally, but uh, Michael Jordan is a good example of this. Remember when he quit to go play baseball, of all things? The best NBA player of all time, arguably, quits while he's still uh, fairly in his prime to go play baseball? Where he he wasn't even good enough to make the major leagues? People are scratching their heads going, what the hell? So I've seen this. People I know personally, people I've just observed like Michael Jordan. There's certain people that regardless of how much success they have in what they are doing and how much work they put into it, they want to move on. And they will never be in a place where they're happy. So it's one thing if you embark on a career and do well at it, but to say, you know what? I've done well, but I don't like it. It's possible to be good at something and not like it. So I can understand that. Like, let's go back to the lawyer example. Let's say somebody builds up a successful law practice, makes a lot of money, has a lot of respect, but they they just hate the entire field. They hate the industry. They hate being an attorney. They just don't want to do it. And they say, I made a mistake. 
I'm good at it, but I, I hate it. Okay, fine. I can respect that. Sometimes you can make a mistake on what you think you want to do. And if you end up hating what you're doing, then move on. But Doug really strikes me as the type of guy who's never going to be happy where he is. I don't think he has a dream of moving on to something that if he achieves it, he's going to stay there. I think whatever he does next, whether it's successful or unsuccessful, that he's going to be content there and stay. In fact, I think he's going to come back to poker. Now, he didn't say he's quitting poker, but he said the next phase, that sounds like he's really just moving away from poker. And he's physically moving away from it and also mentally moving away from it. If it was just relocating, it wouldn't be a big deal. If it was just relocating, he'd say, okay, well, I'm going to Austin, but I'm still going to play as much as before. But he already brought his play way down. He, he hadn't played that much in the prior two years before going against Negranu, which was one of the reasons he was citing that maybe he's not as big of a favorite as uh, some people were perceiving. But it really looks like he thinks this is a new phase of his life. Now you may say, well, look how well Doug did at everything he tried related to poker. So wouldn't this translate to him having success in anything he's going to try? And my answer is no. Why? Because people have talent in certain areas and they lack talent in other areas. And also, Certain areas, you have more doors open to get into things than others. So let's look at Doug's career in poker and how this came to be. First, he became an excellent player. And he developed some notoriety for his success at the tables. This allowed him to have a YouTube channel that people were going to want to watch because they were fascinated with him. And this allowed him to have a successful training site because... Well, why wouldn't you want to learn poker from Doug Polk? So all of this was connected to Doug Polk being a successful player. If Doug Polk was a fish or a break-even player who never really did anything at the tables, he would never have gotten this following on YouTube, and he would never have had a successful training site. So all this spawned from his successful poker play, and then he was able to parlay that into other areas of success where he also leveraged other strengths he had, such as doing videos and such as uh, running a training site. So I give him credit for this. I think it's impressive what he accomplished and all the extra money he made beyond what just he made at the table. But let's look at how this would translate into other areas of life. He's not going to have this advantage going in to any other industry. In fact, we already saw an example of this. A few years ago, when he announced that he's retiring from poker, and he actually changed his channel to be a general channel that he planned to talk about politics from a poker channel. In fact, if you look at his Twitter handle right now, it's at Doug Polk Vids. Not at Doug Polk Poker, but at Doug Polk Vids. Why Vids? Well, he changed that. I forgot what it was called before, but it was changed to Doug Polk Vids at the time that he thought he was going to become a general purpose YouTube star, that he thought he was going to be a YouTube star outside of poker. And that didn't happen. He never got there. It just fell apart. I, I don't even know how long he tried, but he was convinced that he was going to start a YouTube channel or convert his existing YouTube channel. So here's the idea, that he has an existing channel with a decent not tremendous following, but a 313,000 subscriber following. I, I don't think it was quite that high when he did this, but it was definitely six figures. 
So he figured, okay, with this type of following, which is huge for poker, that's, I think it's what, the biggest uh, followed channel as far as uh, poker players go. If there's one bigger, I don't know what it would be. But he has 313,000 subscribers. That he, All he has to do is quit with the poker uh, content and make political videos or anything else, and he has a guaranteed audience. Well, it didn't work. It didn't work, and in fact, the channel is called, again, Doug Polk Poker, so he gave up on it. At the time he announced he was going to do this, I was skeptical. I talked about it on this show. The problem is that poker players don't really want to see Polk talk about uh, about uh, politics or general topics. I mean, if he does it once, fine, but if that becomes every video, they're going to leave very fast. That's not why they're coming to watch Doug Polk. They're coming to watch him talk about poker and personalities in poker. They're coming to watch a good poker player's take on issues in poker and hands in poker, and that's why they want to watch him. So if he were to convert this to a general channel, most of the existing subscribers would stop coming. They wouldn't unsubscribe, but they probably would just stop coming. And he wouldn't attract very many new people. I'm not saying it's impossible to work out, but it's an uphill battle. Just It just doesn't translate very well. Now, he would have a bigger leg up than someone starting an entirely new channel, but not as big of a leg up as you think. Similarly, if, uh, let's say, Doug Polk were to uh, take over Ben Shapiro's channel and tr- try to talk about poker, uh, people would stop watching Ben Shapiro's channel very fast because they're there to listen to conservative politics, not about poker. So same thing here. People are here to watch poker, not to watch uh, Doug talk about politics. So he gave up on that very quickly. Didn't work out. He thought that was going to be his next big thing. It was not. He got obsessed with crypto for a while. He did videos on crypto. You don't hear about this anymore. Occasionally he tweets about crypto, but uh, I I know he bought in at some point. I don't know when. He made a bunch of money when it ran up the first time. Then he lost a bunch when it crashed in 2018. Uh, then I think he made a bunch back when it ran back up. I, I Daily posted in the thread that Doug did very well in crypto overall and made a lot of money. If he did, great for him. But he lost his excitement for crypto. You can see it. He doesn't talk about it that much. Go go look at his uh, Twitter. He talks a little bit about crypto, but he's he's not living crypto. For a little while, he was living crypto. That's all he tweeted about. Then that kind of faded away. And... Uh, you didn't hear much about crypto anymore, except uh, every once in a while he'll make a comment when something major is going on. So that he lost his zeal for crypto, shall I say. No matter how much he owned or still owns, he lost his zeal for it. So that's not a big thing in his life anymore. It may be a, a financial thing in his life, but it's not a passion of his anymore. So what's his plan now? I don't know. Like, what's, what's he going to do? Seriously, what, what's his next step? What can he parlay this into? Now, I guess if he's made enough money, especially if he made a ton in crypto, then he could invest in some business that he has an idea to do or maybe buy an existing business. I don't know. But it looks like even he doesn't know. He doesn't even know where he's going. He's he's not totally sure yet. He's probably going to Austin. The funny thing is he's already leaving Vegas. I don't even know where he's going. I don't know where he went next because it's supposedly March 25th was his last day in Vegas, according to his tweet. But yet he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know his destination. So what's he doing? Just uh, just drifting around the country? Is he going to ride the rails? What's going on here? (laughs) I don't know. But 
What I can see is that it appears that Doug Polk is done with poker again and that he wants to start a new phase in his life. And I think whatever this phase is, he's not going to be satisfied with it. And I think there's a very good chance that he will return to poker and maybe even return to Las Vegas. Because that is what people will often do when they attempt to start a new phase and it does not work out. They return to what is familiar. It happens in many, many different aspects of life to many, many different people. They have an idea. They have a dream. They want to do something different. They want to be something different. They try. It doesn't work out. And they say, okay, let's rewind and go back to when everything was more stable. And they return to their previous life. I've even seen this happen relationship-wise. Not to me. But I've known people who will leave the person they've been with for a long time and go date other people and go kind of live a whole different lifestyle. And then after the whole thing kind of crashes and burns and they get depressed and they get unhappy and things don't work out, then they call up their ex and go, you know what, I really miss you. Can I come back? And sometimes the ex stupidly says yes, and they come back. I've seen that before too. I've seen many times where people come to Las Vegas kind of just drifting in with no plan and really no idea why they're even in Vegas. I'm not talking about Doug Polk. He knew why he was coming. He came to play poker and he did very well. But I've known people, especially non-poker players, who have moved to Vegas and you ask, why did you move here? And they go, I I don't know. I just kind of wanted to come here. Well, did you have a job? No, no, I I figured I'd find one once I'm here. Well, what industry? You know, I'm not sure. I was just kind of thinking I'll find a job in some way. Like, really, people come to Vegas. For some reason, Vegas is very appealing to a lot of people to go to start a new life. I don't know. Maybe it looks exciting. I'm not sure what it is. But a lot of people go to Vegas to start fresh, even if there's not much there for them. I can understand going there like if you're in the hospitality industry or, of course, in the gambling industry, but I'm talking about people really that are not part of those industries that just go there. In fact, something that is not all that well-known is that most prostitutes in Vegas did not grow up in Vegas and came there not to be prostitutes. That Most of these prostitutes you see in Vegas are ones that came just with really no plan and just kind of thought they'll wing it and just start fresh and then things wouldn't work out, then they'd start getting short on money, and they go, well, you know, I can try this for some quick money, and then they do it, and then they notice how quickly the money rolls in, and they go, okay, well, this is better than working the nine-to-five, <laughs> and that's what they do. That That's how it proceeds. That's how they get there. Because I bet when you think of hookers, you don't normally think, how did they get here? How How are they in this spot? But most girls do not come to Vegas initially thinking, I'm going to come to Vegas and be a hooker. Now, if they're a hooker somewhere else, maybe they will come to Vegas to be a hooker because there's more opportunities there. But I'm talking about ones that are hookers for the first time in Vegas. It's usually not locals. It's usually people who come there, young girls who come there to start a new life and then things don't work out and then they see that opportunity but many others who come to vegas and uh kind of 
fail because they don't really even know why they're there, they will go back to where they came from, often quite far, all the way back across the country. In fact, I've known of some poker players who've done this, who are now living back where they were prior to coming to Vegas because it failed there. Now, I guess I did that in a way, but not because of failing. I I did it because of uh, family, because of a new family. I had a kid with someone from California. But most others who leave Vegas and come back to where they came from, it's because things did not work out in Vegas. That's not Doug Polk's situation, obviously. Worked out great for him in Vegas. I would even understand him leaving Vegas if he just wants a different different atmosphere. That I could totally understand. Maybe he's just sick of the way Vegas is. Sick of the uh, whole vibe of the town. I can get that. Vegas does kind of have an underlying depressing vibe to it if you're there long enough. It's kind of got an exciting and yet depressing vibe to it all at the same time. So I could understand Doug saying, you know, I don't want to really be part of this anymore. I just want to go somewhere that's kind of appeals to me more, like Austin. But that doesn't look like what he's doing. It looks like he's starting a whole new phase. By the way, Austin. Let's talk a little bit about Austin. Bart Hansen, a listener to this show, sometimes calls into the show, he currently lives in Austin, and he previously lived in L.A. for a long time. But Bart is now in Austin. Austin is a place that I'm not a big fan of. To me, Austin combines a lot of the worst aspects of the West Coast of the U.S. and Texas. (laughs) So, to me, it's not very appealing. To me, the reasons I would leave California to go somewhere else, I would be trying to get away from certain things in California I don't like. And instead, if I were to go to Austin, I would find all those same things. (laughs) Yet the weather would not be as good. Austin is different than the rest of Texas. Even though Texas is becoming more and more uh, democratic over time, it's becoming a bluer and bluer state. It's called a purple state right now. There was some belief that Biden would actually take Texas. It turned out it wasn't very close. So they've been talking about this for a while, and I, I've said for a long time that it wasn't going to be in 2020, but that maybe starting 2024, but probably 2028, that Texas is going to go blue because the demographics are changing. It's getting more Hispanic, and the white people moving there are uh, more and more on the left. A lot of people from California coming to Texas. So that would really change the national political landscape if Texas, which is the second biggest state population-wise, were to also go Democratic. But we're not going to get into that discussion. But what I will talk about with Austin is that Austin has always been a little island of uh, its own way of life compared to the rest of Texas. Take everything you know about Texas, everything you picture about Texas, and throw that out of your mind when it comes to Austin. So a lot of these stereotypes about Texas, a lot of the things you may picture about Texas, uh, some of them are going to be true. Some of them will be partially true. Some won't be true. Uh, Texas is kind of unfairly depicted in the media sometimes, but some of the characters of Texas are closer to the truth than some people want to care to admit. 
I haven't spent a load of time there, but I have been to various parts of Texas and gotten a feel for these parts. I, I have been to Dallas. I've been to to Houston, and there, there's differences between these places. But uh, you do get a feeling for Texas in these places, whereas Austin, you don't. Austin doesn't feel like Texas. In fact, uh, 20 years ago, right when I was getting into poker, I was dating someone new who was from Texas. She didn't live in Texas at the time. She lived in Southern California. Then she moved back to Texas, which was pretty much why this whole thing ended between me and her. But in describing Austin, she said, Austin is not real Texas. And I wasn't that familiar with Austin at the time. And at the time, Austin did not have this big influx of Californians as it has today. This was 20 years ago. But she said, Austin is not real Texas. And upon looking into that, she was right. And I'm not saying that even derisively. It's just very different from the rest of Texas. Austin is liberal. It uh, really doesn't have the Texas culture to it. It doesn't have a lot of the Texas values. Just a, It's just a completely different place. And it even has much more of the West Coast, California-type culture to it than it does the Texas culture. The real estate there is, I believe, the most expensive of anywhere in Texas, at least of any major area of Texas, because, in part, so many people from out of state have come there who are used to paying higher prices for real estate. So if you come to Cal- from California to Austin, it still looks very cheap. You get a lot more house in Austin than you do in California, but still it's a lot more expensive than the rest of Texas. So I'm not sure why Austin appears to, appeals to Doug. I know that Doug is kind of like center-left politically. He's not one of these like really woke guys. In fact, if you take a look at the whole Vanessa Cade thing, uh, the opinions that were expressed about that were somewhat along political lines where people on the right were much more likely to take Gigi Poker's side and the people on the left were much more likely to completely take Vanessa's side and act outraged. Uh, Doug, despite being definitely left of center, was very much on Gigi Poker's side right from the start there. He never was even the slightest bit sympathetic to Vanessa there. He was pretty much mocking her the entire way. And they didn't have any issues prior to that. So that seemed to just be his natural opinion. So Doug does not always go along with the far-left playbook. He's not one of these guys on Twitter who's always posting opinions that align with the left. However, most of his opinions are left of center. Most of his politics are left of center. Doug is definitely a liberal, but he's not a fanatical liberal, and he's not a far-left liberal. He's, he's, uh, he's just a liberal. He's guy, I'd call him a, a center-left liberal. So I'm not sure why Austin, but I know he, he was saying he didn't want to go anywhere cold. Someone's suggesting a different place for him to go. And he said, no, 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 I don't like the weather there. It's too cold. So it looks like he wants to go somewhere with uh, decent weather, which Austin has. Austin is not as humid in the summer as places like Houston, which are awful. And the winter, aside from this winter, it's usually pretty mild. They have the flukes where it gets super cold, like what happened uh, for a short time this year. But usually they don't have that. So the winter is fairly mild and the summer is not terrible. So... 
weather-wise, it's probably acceptable to him. And in fact, that's why a lot of Californians go there because they can accept the weather as well. That's why Californians don't go to uh, Minneapolis, for example, because uh, Minneapolis is so cold. There, there are aspects of Minneapolis that I think a lot of Californians would like, but they would hate the weather. The weather in Minneapolis is pretty terrible. So Doug does not want to go to a place like that, and that's understandable. So he hasn't fully decided, but he's leaning on Austin. And maybe he'll go there, maybe he won't. I have no idea where he is right now. I'm sure we'll find out soon. He always likes to put these things out there publicly. And I think we'll see him back in poker soon enough. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if he never really completely leaves. There's people who like to say they're leaving poker, and then they can't avoid still taking part in all the poker Twitter, all the poker drama, all the poker commentary. And then, lo and behold, there they are back at the tables. It's like they never left. That might be the case, too. We will see. Okay, I'm going to take a break. Good thing is, I am not sick to my stomach right now. The radio show has cured me. It's a miracle. It is a miracle. When I sat down... I was not sure if I was going to have to put you guys on hold and go to the toilet and vomit, but it, it didn't happen. Not only didn't I vomit, but I actually uh, just don't feel sick to my stomach anymore. I feel like my energy has been sapped a little bit, but overall, not that bad. A lot better than I expected. So we will continue, and I'm going to run an ad for a gentleman who donated $30 tonight to the free roll and also is doing a great job with uh, the Mike Possel case that I am part of. Oh, how did I forget this? I better give you an update on this, actually. (laughs) Here's a a bonus topic about the Mike Possel case. I don't know how this one slipped by. This is a topic about (laughs) about me. I'm so busy talking about other people that I forgot to talk about myself. How often does that happen? March 18th was supposed to be the magic date. That was supposed to be the date that my anti-slap motion gets heard in the court, and we would find out if the case against me that filed by Mike Possel would be dismissed, and if he would owe me attorney's fees, or if this would get denied and his case would go forward. It was going to be a big day for me. Well, what happened? Nothing happened. I'll tell you why. Mike Postel filed paperwork to have it delayed. And I think I mentioned that last show, that uh, Mike Postel is attempting to get the case delayed again. He already did this the first time. We originally had a date in January for this to be heard, or sorry, February. A date in February for this to be heard. And he asked for a delay, and we actually agreed to a delay. So it got delayed from February 10th to March 18th. And Veronica got her case delayed also from February to March 16th. Well, he filed paperwork that was asking for another delay, claiming that he was having difficulty finding an attorney and that the COVID made it harder. Anyway, uh He was asking for a second delay, and we said absolutely not. He already had his delay, and it's not our fault if he wasted his time that he had when he got the first delay. 
So this was heard in court. We, we, we were forced actually to have a conference with him. Now, when I say we, I wasn't part of it, but uh, my attorney, Eric Benzamokin, was part of it. And so was uh, Mark Randazza, Veronica Brill's attorney. So they actually, they, they heard the thing together for both of them, whether it should be uh, delayed or not. Initially, there is an order to uh, have the attorneys discuss this with Possle to see if just an agreement can be struck. And we were actually willing to, at that point, when the judge said that they're ordering the meet and confer to come up with a delay, because the basically the judge put out that she's probably going to give a delay. So she wants both sides to just kind of figure out for themselves. And if they can't find, then, then uh, it'll be done in court. So we were unable to come to an agreement. Apostle wanted something like 120 days. Obviously, we weren't going to let that happen. And uh, so Rendaza felt the same way for Veronica. So that went nowhere. And it was heard on March 18th. And it was heard together. We were actually uh, pleasantly surprised in that uh, we thought that it was possible that uh, he would get 60 days or more. We were hoping that wasn't going to happen. And fortunately, the judge actually gave only 30 days. The new date is April 20th. It's actually slightly more than 30 days. I think it's 33 days, but whatever. So that's a lot less than Possible was asking for. And we were overall pleased with that ruling because we knew coming in that some delay was going to be granted. And it looks like that's probably going to be the final delay. The only way that there would be another delay will be if he gets an attorney and the attorney asks for more time. And then he may or may not get it at that point. Otherwise, uh, if Postle just comes back in himself and asks for the delay, there's a very good chance that it would be denied at that point. And I'm hoping this happens. I, I just want to get on with it. You know, I, I need this to be heard. The whole point of an anti-slap motion is to quickly get it heard and be over with. And either you win it and you're out of the case and it's over and it's not hanging over your head anymore, or you lose it and then you've got to face the rest of the case. But the whole point of it is to be speedy. And there's been a lot of delays and... uh I have to imagine that the judge is not going to allow this to continue. So I have a feeling April 20th is going to be the day. Hopefully that goes well. So we have a few more weeks till we get there. But I'll definitely let you know how that ends up once that occurs. That's where we stand right now. You may wonder, what about Veronica? Hers was also delayed till April 20th. You may wonder... Are we going to be heard together? Answer, no. We are actually scheduled for the same date and time, but it's actually not going to be heard at the same time. It'll be one, then the other. I'm not sure which will go first, but uh, it'll be one, then the other. And the reason is because it's two separate cases. It's, it's, I mean, it's not two separate cases. It's two separate uh, anti-slap motions on the same case by two different parties for two somewhat different reasons because Veronica's role in the whole thing is different than my role in the whole thing. That's just a fact. So the reasons to potentially grant 
my anti-slap uh, are somewhat similar to hers, but also somewhat different. So it's a possibility that one of us would get it and one of us would not. It's a possibility that we both will. It's a possibility that we both won't. But they are going to be treated as two separate matters. I have a faith in attorney Eric Benzamokin, and I've been very pleased with everything that he's done so far. So I'm going to play his ad. I'm going to probably cut a new one soon. I know you guys are getting sick of this one. <laughs> I'm going to play his ad. And then uh, we will come back. And we've got plenty of topics left here on Poker Fraudler Radio. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider in the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration where he decides who's right and mediation where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around even if you don't have a dispute at the moment because you never know when one will come up and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin. Eric at eblawfirm.us. I got some uh, text messages while I was gone. I actually got a message from the 765 telling me that he's actually experiencing similar symptoms to what I am, and he actually tested positive for COVID last week. Except upon our discussion, I realize there's a few differences. Uh, He has a fever, and I don't. Not a high one, but I have not had a fever the entire time. He said it feels more like a head cold to him, and he had a runny nose. See, I didn't have the runny nose, which... I admit it's kind of strange if you're going to have COVID and have a runny nose. It can happen, though. But the fever, that is the biggest indicator 
that the test is probably right, especially because they're not false positives on a COVID test typically. Usually it's uh, false negatives. But I have not had a fever at any point or anything close. My temperature usually runs colder. I take my temperature, it tends to be like 97.3, that type of thing. And it's been like around 97 every time I take it. So I haven't even gotten to 98. Or even close to 98. So I, I definitely have had no fever. Even at times I felt kind of crappy. I'm like, oh, I wonder if I have a fever now. Nope, not even close. So between no fever and really no other COVID-like symptoms except for the cough, I think it's probably not that. Probably not COVID for me. Also, he tested positive. I tested negative. That's the biggest difference here. From the 702, said uh, Caesars got the Superdome naming rights and 11 million D- 11 million a year for 20 years. Wow. And this is actually from the person who uh, had messaged Vanessa Cade wanting to buy a, p- a piece of her. See, I told you he was a listener to this show. Too bad he didn't get one. Imagine if you bought like 10%. <laughs> Imagine if you bought like 20%. You could have gotten like 300K. How sweet would that have been? He would have looked like a genius. Well, I guess he kind of looks like a genius now, even though he didn't get the money because he wanted to buy the piece she just wasn't selling because she was a smart one yeah he texted me that uh, he had a runny nose last friday night this is the guy in 765 woke up with a sore throat um then felt fine most of the day but then got a headache and couldn't get comfortable and then he got tested on monday but then he's felt almost all better since tuesday now this guy's also younger than me so that's another factor that could be helping him I think he's just getting a mild COVID case because he's not very old and he's been fairly lucky here that it hasn't done much. For me, it's kind of hard to believe that if I'm going to feel symptoms that it would be like this. Like I, I was picturing if I was going to get COVID, it was going to be like either asymptomatic or something pretty noticeable. So I would not have pictured it be anything like this. And I don't think this is COVID. But I, I took the test that said negative. So what can I do? Okay, so we're going to talk about the Rio. I've got two Rio topics here. The Rio, if you remember, was sold back in December 2019. And that immediately raised the question as to... uh, Actually, it was sold in... uh, Yeah, it was sold in September of 2019. And then the deal was finalized in December. So I was mostly right there. The question was immediately raised what's going to happen with the World Series? This is before we knew about COVID. This is in December 2019. When it was finalized, people said, okay, well, does that mean it's not going to be at the Rio this year? Turned out that Caesars already covered this by making a deal which guarantees them the right to manage the Rio and leave it as a Caesars operating property, even though they don't own the property anymore. They get to run it for two years which meant through December 2021. Plus, they had an option for $7 million in the third year. I'm forgetting which way the option goes. I'm forgetting if it goes in Caesar's direction or the other company's direction. I think it's in Caesar's direction. I think it's, I, I, I'm just about sure it's Caesar's direction from what I remember. Anyway, this guaranteed at the very least that they had the Rio if they wanted it in 2020 and 2021 for the World Series. Now, it turned out that 2020's World Series at the Rio didn't happen because of COVID. 
But what about 2021? 2021, probably going to have a World Series live because the situation with COVID is a lot different. The vaccines have been very effective and uh, the caseload is going down. It seemed to be already on its way down even without the vaccines. But between its natural decline and with the vaccines, it's looking a lot more optimistic that this will be allowed, especially if they wait a little more time, which I know they're not going to have it during its normal late May through mid-July dates. So if they wait a little more time, you get to later in the year, uh, they may be able to have it with uh, a lot fewer restrictions. So it's probably going to happen, the live World Series in Las Vegas. The question is, what about the Rio? Because they have that Caesars Convention Center that just finished. They just finished that convention center right on the Strip. And remember when that was announced, and I was the first one to say that's the future home of the World Series? And all these people mocked me for it. All these people said, no, 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 no. You have no evidence of that. Come on. They have many more lucrative things they can do with that space. And I said, no, that's not the reason they built it. But since they have built it, this is a very natural home for the World Series of Poker. And indeed, they finally admitted, after first denying it, that yes, the World Series is planned to move there. And that is why they sold the Rio, by the way, with knowing they're going to move it over to the convention, the, the Caesars Forum Convention Center, or Conference Center, I think is what it's called. So the question is, are they going to be putting it at the Rio in uh, 2021? They still can. Or are they going to move it to that uh, Forum Conference Center? especially now that they have a few extra months, probably, to prepare for the whole thing. Well, this question was complicated a bit because there's a new development involving the Rio. The Hyatt Group has announced that the Rio is going to be renovated and branded a Hyatt Hotel. So here's the statement from Hyatt Hotel. Now, it's important to understand that Hyatt Hotels Corporation has not bought the Rio, it has a different owner, but they have been contracted to be the brand that, that the Rio will be seen as. So Dreamscape Companies, LLC, is the actual owner of the Rio right now. It's currently managed by Caesars, which, as I said, is going to end soon. And Hyatt now has entered an agreement with Dreamscape to brand it a Hyatt. So to the customers, it's going to look like a Hyatt. You won't know anything about Dreamscape unless you look it up. Like when you go by the Rio, eventually it's going to say Hyatt on the front and it's going to have all the Hyatt branded stuff within the Rio. It's going to be considered a Hyatt property, much like today it's the Caesars property. It's going to soon be a Hyatt property. So this is what uh, Hyatt had to say about it. We are thrilled that Dreamscape will help us bring multiple Hyatt full service brands to Las Vegas, starting with a Hyatt Regency Hotel which we believe will deliver on the Hyatt Regency brand promise of creating meaningful connections in modern spaces designed for sharing, socializing, and collaborating. And that's from Hyatt VP of Real Estate and Development, Kimo Bertram. Sounds like a lot of bullshit, but putting that aside, it is true that it is going to become a Hyatt. So what does that mean now? Like, when is this renovation going to occur? And... (laughs) Is it going to really be a Hyatt? Like, it, it, like when? Is it going to be a Hyatt by the summer? Is it going to be a Hyatt by the fall? Are we going to be playing the World Series at the highest? Like, they don't give a timetable on this. But I can give you some answers here. Since the Rio 
is still under control by Caesars. And since these renovations take some time, if Caesars wants it to remain at the Rio, then that's where it's going to be. Hyatt can't stop this. Hyatt can't even take control until December 2021. They may be able to start renovations. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure how that works. Maybe they will have the right to actually renovate it. But I do know that they will not be able to prevent the World Series from taking place there. Like they couldn't start renovations that stop the World Series from being able to go on there. Or they couldn't be renovating the entire hotel where they can, they can have the convention center for the, for the World Series, but nobody can stay there. That would be interfering with the World Series. So I know that much is true, that people will be able to stay in the Rio and play at the Rio, the World Series, if they hold it there. It is possible that since the convention center is complete and since they have some additional time because of COVID, which wasn't expected when they originally made this deal – that they may decide to move it to the new conference center a year early. Maybe they were planning to move it in 2022, and then they have decided to not do so. Maybe that's what happened, because maybe because they're having a hard time booking conference space now. Maybe they have a lot of emptiness at that conference center, even going forward later in the year, and they want to hold it there because that's eventually where it's going. So I'm not saying for sure the World Series is happening in the Rio. I'm saying if Caesars wants it at the Rio, this news will not affect it. If Caesars moves it to the conference center, that convention center in the center strip, that's kind of by where the link wheel is. If they want to move it a year early, then they will be moving it a year early, but unrelated to this deal. So this is not really news that affects Caesars or the World Series at all. I don't understand why a timetable is not given, like when they'll even start the renovation or when it's going to actually be Hyatt branded. It's just, okay, it's going to be a Hyatt brand now, we're going to renovate it. Okay, but when? <laughs> That's kind of important, when? But they're not saying. It's possible they haven't decided yet. And the agreement is it looks like it's fairly new between them and Dreamscape. So it's, it's very possible that just Dreamscape's been in talks with them. And Hyatt's like, yeah, okay, we'll make it a Hyatt. And they make some kind of agreement. And then they don't have all the details worked out yet exactly when they're going to do everything. But whatever it is, it, it was far enough along in the process between Hyatt and Dreamscape to where they felt comfortable announcing that the deal's done. So it's not like, I don't think it's an agreement in theory. I think it's an agreement and maybe with some details not finalized yet. That the agreement's finalized, but the actual details, like like it could say in the agreement that uh, they'll decide by such and such date that in such and such date range is when the renovation will start. Like it could be something like that, that they'll mutually decide this later. So that's going to be the future of the Rio. It's going to be a Hyatt. And it looks like it's not going to be a casino anymore. It looks like what they're going to do is just build a Hyatt Regency and that they're going to convert all the space there into other things. They may still have a convention center. 
I, I, I'm sure they'll keep restaurants. They probably change what the restaurants are. But uh, I have to imagine that the casino will be turned into something else. It uh, does not indicate it's going to be a casino from this statement that I just read you. They said that they're creating meaningful connections in modern spaces designed for sharing, socializing, and collaborating. Okay, but not gambling. I will admit this isn't a very good location for a casino. I mean, yeah, they could go for the whole locals thing, but I can also understand just wanting to stay away from the whole casino vibe at all. Because the problem is whenever you try to make a locals casino, the chance of it becoming trashy and attracting trashy people goes way up. Because if it's like a regular Hyatt, and they're trying to attract like business customers coming in, then uh, trashy locals are not going to come in there with nothing to come in there for. But if they have kind of like a lower-end casino, then it's, it's going to be full of the type of people that a lot of the business travelers are not going to want to hobnob with. So that may be why they're just choosing not to have the casino at all, especially because you know, what traffic is it going to get? Like, I can tell you from staying at the Rio that the casino's dead. That, like, other than World Series of Poker players, there's, like, nobody in there. And I've even occasionally stayed at the Rio during the off-season. If I'm, like, passing through Vegas or something, you just need a quick night or two there, and it's very cheap or free for me. So I'll stay there in, like, January or March or something like that. And, boy, is it a freaking ghost town. Like, the casino's dead. There's hardly anyone playing. I can't imagine the casinos taking in very much money. I'm sure Hyatt sees that. So it looks like... And and when the sale was made, I seem to remember that it was expressed that it was not going to be a casino, that it was going to be turned into a non-gambling property. I seem to remember that. Not 100% sure, but that's what I seem to remember from when that was announced. But anyway, that looks pretty certain right now. The World Series of Poker first showed up at the Rio in 05. That was the year that I did very well. It was previously at Binion's Horseshoe, where it had always been prior to that. The reason it was at the Rio, the World Series, was because of the convention space. They had the most convention space, which is what's used for all the poker tables. They had the most convention space at the Rio of any Caesars property. And the reason they have so much convention space is because real estate is much cheaper where the Rio is than on the Strip. On the Strip, space is at a premium. Space is very expensive. The Rio is off Strip, and uh, it was a big property that was able to have a lot of convention space. So when it was built originally, it was built with a lot of convention space, and then Caesars acquired it, And that became the go-to place when a lot of convention space was needed. So there's a ton of convention space and a ton of parking. That's what makes it perfect for the World Series of Poker. There's a lot of downsides to it. So they're definitely moving it. The move could occur as late as 2023. Remember about that $7 million option. So if for whatever reason they decide they're not ready to move it yet to the Caesars Forum Conference Center... They could choose to hold it at the Rio for this year and next year, it looks like. But then it could 
be as soon as this year. So it's very possible that later this year, like in the fall or late summer, you could be playing the World Series of Poker in the new Caesars Forum Convention Center. Now, what would be nice about it being in the Caesars Forum Convention Center, aside from the fact that it's just newer and not run down, is that you will be able to stay on the Strip in one of many hotels, including non-Caesars properties, and just walk over there. Whereas before, you didn't have many options where you could stay that didn't require a car to drive over there. But now there's going to be a number of hotels within walking distance of the World Series of Poker once it moves there. And not only that, but when you're done, you'll have the entire strip at your disposal that you can walk to rather than being just at the Rio, which I found annoying because I'd be done playing an event late at night, like get through day one or something. And I just kind of want to get something to eat and go to sleep and all the food options are closed except for that crappy sports delis. And then it's kind of like, okay, what do I want to do? Do I, my options are get in my car and drive somewhere to get food or just go to this crappy sports deli. And there was no other option. It would have been nice if I could have just walked down to somewhere next door and get something uh, quickly right on the strip. So that, uh, that option is going to be there. You'll have the full strip right there for you once you're not in a World Series event anymore. You'll feel less isolated over there. Because I always felt very isolated at the, at the World Series of Poker. Like, I knew I was in Las Vegas, but I, I knew that I really had to get in my car to go anywhere that was on the Strip. That felt kind of weird. Okay, so now I want to get to something else about the Rio and a weird story about a shooting that occurred there. And the shooting at the Rio occurred at, of all things, a gender reveal party. Now, if you don't know what that is, it, it may sound to you like it's some sort of like transgender thing, like some person coming out as, as trans. That has nothing to do with that. A gender reveal party is actually a party where it is revealed what gender the baby's going to be that is uh, in a pregnant woman at the moment. So there's, there's some woman who's either in your family or in your friend group, and she finds out the sex of her baby. And instead of just telling people, hey, I'm going to have a boy, hey, I'm going to have a girl, you go to this party, and at a preset moment in the party, everybody goes quiet, and they announce it's a boy or it's a girl. These parties have gotten some bad press because uh, there have been some bad incidents. The ones that are done outdoors often involve some sort of pyrotechnics where they either shoot off uh, some like pink stuff in the sky or blue stuff in the sky to indicate which gender the baby is. One of them caused a major fire and that really gave some bad press to these gender reveal parties. And it turns out that there have been other fires and other injuries that have occurred from these uh, gender reveal parties that have gone wrong involving the uh, pyrotechnics part. So people have been criticizing these, stating that they're needless and that they've caused some destruction, which which is understandable. I kind of think they're stupid. Like, like 
I think it's a dumb reason to have a party. Just just tell people. <laughs> you know, post it off Facebook, on Twitter, whatever. I mean, that's what I did. I learned we were having a boy, and then at some point I told people we're having a boy. Like, it's, I didn't need a party for that. I think it's kind of dumb. Now, I've seen some really stupid things that have been criticisms of gender reveal parties, that it's it's enforcing the gender norm, that you have to, you don't find out the kid's gender until they get a little bit older and can tell you what they really are. That's a bunch of BS. That That's a bunch of BS that you can't uh, declare that you have a boy or a girl until not only they're born, but they uh, they have to be old enough to tell you if they feel like a boy or a girl. That's That's really stupid. There will be a small percentage of people who have a psychiatric condition or psychological condition called gender dysphoria where they feel like a different gender than they are and uh, if that persists through adulthood which often it doesn't but if it persists through adulthood then fine if they want to go transition and that's the only way they feel they can be happy then go ahead I feel they should have a right to do that but uh, to say that uh, little children can tell you what gender they are and you have to respect that and that you can't even call them a boy or a girl until they tell you that. That's just insanity. So uh, some of these gender reveal parties have been criticized from that angle, which I think is ridiculous. But that has nothing to do with this story. This was a gender reveals party without the pyrotechnics that was to take place indoors at the Rio. So you think, okay, finally, 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 a safe gender reveal party. Well, yes, as long as nobody brings a gun there, which, unfortunately, here, somebody brought a gun there. (laughs) So this is what happened. A bunch of fine people blew into town, into Las Vegas, from San Bernardino, California, for a gender reveal party. They had it at the Rio. Presumably, they had it at the Rio, because the Rio is cheap, especially right now, when Las Vegas is giving away everything pretty cheap because of COVID. And they're still way, way down in visitation to Las Vegas. So I'm sure the Rio, you can pretty much have that for a song. So a bunch of people came in from San Bernardino to have this gender reveal party. I don't know if they reserved any space to have the party or if they just held it in a room. I'm guessing they're just holding it in a room. But it's it's not really important to what happened here. Among the people at the party were a 19-year-old girl, not the pregnant one, by the way. There's just a 19-year-old at the party. I don't know what her uh, relation was to the woman who was pregnant. And uh, she had a boyfriend that also came, whose name was uh, Shaquille Lafond. Well, Shaquille Lafond, he must have stepped away for the moment or whatever. Uh, he was a little bit older. Shaquille Lafond was uh, 20 seven or 28 he was born in 93 whereas this girl was 19 which is fine you know they're both adults they that nothing wrong with that relationship but uh a younger man 18 year old romel buckley who was also at the party he apparently had interest in this 19 year old who was with uh mr shaquille lafond and this girl had uh Express the desire to go to the store to get something. I think it was cigarettes or something, something like that. She was looking for someone to walk with her to the store because she wasn't sure about the neighborhood. She wasn't, you know, she didn't want to be a young female walking alone there. So Romel Buckley sprung into action. He offered right away to walk with her to the store, and he was uh, quite happy about that. I'm not sure if he was aware 
that she was there with her uh, boyfriend, Shaquille Lafon, but uh, Mr. Romel Buckley decided that he's going to take uh, this 19-year-old girl to the store. Hello, They'll walk together. So the, the girl said, oh, okay, thanks. So they walked out, and they went down to the real parking lot and were about to walk out to the street to go to the store. I'm not sure which store. Shaquille Lafond either saw them leave or was told what was going on. But whatever it was, he was aware of the fact that uh, his girl just walked out with this 18-year-old dude. And he was very concerned. He's very jealous. So he ran down there to try to catch them. And he got out into the parking lot and found them. They had not exited the parking lot yet. And he started shouting at them that they're not going to go together. They're not going to walk to the store together. Well, the, apparently, Romel Buckley said, tough luck, I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> and uh, the two men started to fight. So I think, I think LaFond actually th- tried to punch uh, Romel Buckley. And uh, remember, Romel Buckley is the younger man here. He's the 18-year-old. And uh, so after the, they, they yelled at each other and after uh, LaFond either tried to punch or did punch Romel Buckley, uh, Romel Buckley went back in the hotel and left the girl in the parking lot. So at that point, uh, Shaquille LaFond walked over to his girlfriend and started yelling at her, like, what the hell? Why are you, why are you walking with this other dude to the store? What are you doing here? Are you cheating on me? What are you going to do with this guy? You know, why didn't you go with me? And and they had a big fight in the parking lot. So they didn't continue walking. They were sitting in the parking lot still fighting with each other. And uh, where did Romel Buckley go? Did he just run away because he was afraid he's going to get beaten up or decided that uh, it, the whole thing wasn't worth it or that he wasn't even all that interested, it turned out, that he was just being nice? There was a reason that he went into the Rio. And that was he went back in there to get a gun. And he came out. And he saw Shaquille LaFond and his girlfriend arguing. That is Shaquille's girlfriend. And he walked up to Shaquille, and they had a few more words. And Romel pulled out his gun and... And he shot him. He did not die. They took uh, Shaquille LaFond to the hospital, and he survived. But uh, I think he was shot in the stomach. Something It wasn't like in the leg or something. It was like pretty serious. Like His life was in danger. Well, obviously, police were looking for Mr. Buckley, who then realized that uh, this wasn't a good idea and he better not hang around any longer. So he uh, got in his car and uh, left Vegas very quickly. So they eventually apprehended him back in San Bernardino, and he was arrested for attempted murder. He was arrested on March 3rd, even though this incident occurred in January. I don't know why it took uh, a month and a half to find this attempted murderer. You think they could have been quicker with this one, (laughs) given the seriousness of the situation. But it took them a month and a half to track him down back at San Bernardino and arrest him. But of course, remember, they were were looking for Raymond Davis, supposedly for uh, sexual contact with two minors. And they let that go for uh, three years before arresting him. (laughs) And he hadn't even left Las Vegas. He was right there and very public about his location. <laughs> they couldn't find him. The, the Las Vegas Metro Police, they were the only people in the world who didn't know where to find Raymond Davis. Like Everybody else in the world knew except them. So it took him three years. But uh, it looks like the same uh, crack detective work was done here, taking a month and a half to arrest an attempted murderer. So they arrested uh, young Romel Buckley, now, interestingly, 
I decided to Google the people involved, as I always like to do in these type of stories. And I found a pretty prominent story about a person named Shaquille LaFond, also born in 1993. Now, it may not be the same person. It's possible it's a different person. But there was a Shaquille LaFond in Texas who, in 2016, was arrested for a road rage murder. And then I couldn't find whatever happened with that case. I couldn't find if uh, he was convicted or, or what happened. So... Obviously, if he was convicted of a road rage murder in 2016, the murder was in 2016. If he was convicted, which would have taken some time for the trial, uh, I doubt he would have been free to go to the Rio in January 2021. So it's possible Afand uh, was not convicted and it was the same guy. Now, this was in Texas. Now, keep in mind, he was not the shooter. This was the victim. (laughs) I mean, it looks like he instigated the altercation. But he didn't deserve to get shot. He was just mad that uh, some dude was walking with his girlfriend and came down and confronted the dude, and they had words, and then he tried to punch him, which he shouldn't have done. But, uh, yeah, that that doesn't justify the guy going back to the room and shooting him. And by the way, you can't even say this shooting was self-defense because uh, Romel Buckley walked away. He walked away fine. I mean, maybe he got punched once, but he, he walked away and everything was okay. And then he went up to get a gun and came back with it. So this wasn't a matter of like pulling a gun because he was afraid he'd get beaten to death. Like he, he was already out of the situation when he went to go get the gun. So it was really just revenge. Like, I'm going to go shoot this guy, F him. I don't know if the same Shaquille LaFond who was alleged to have killed someone in Texas or if it's a guy with the same name who was born the same year. I, I didn't get the exact birth date on both of them. I think one of them I had the exact birth date and the other one just said it was 93. So I, it wasn't interestingly enough for me to really look into it that deeply. But there's a good chance it's the same guy, given the same name and same birth year. And same just ending up in violent situations, even though he wasn't the shooter. Again, he, he did originally try to punch the guy. Now, I have a side story to this from not 1993, when Shaquille LaFond was born, but a year earlier, 1992, before any of these people were born. It was an accompanying someone to the store during a party story. And I don't think I've ever told this on here. So in 1992, I was 20 years old. And I was at a party with a girl I was going out with at the time. And the party was at a private home that was owned by a a middle-aged couple. And they had two kids. They had a girl who was about 14 and a boy who was 18. The boy was obviously gay. He had a very uh, effeminate demeanor. It was, it was very clear just from listening to him like right away when he talked that he was gay. And he was gay. I wasn't just guessing this. He really was gay. So, unfortunately, he took a liking to me right away. And keep in mind, this is when I was 20. So, he was, he was 18, I was 20. So, we were, we were close in age. But, unfortunately, he had an interest in me. And I did not like that fact. <laughs> so, Not being gay, that's the last thing I want. So he didn't overtly hit on me or say anything sexual, but he kept following me around the party, kept attempting to make small talk. It it was so obvious what was going on there. And I knew what he was trying to do. So I was trying to give him like one word answers and move to a different part of the house. I didn't want to be rude and say, get away from me. I know you're trying to hit on me. But uh, 
I I was just trying to extricate myself from the situation to just kind of give him the hint that I'm not interested in get away from me. <laughs> so so I I just like he asked me something and I'd give a really abrupt quick answer and then walk away. But that didn't deter him. He kept following me. Then somebody told me that one of the headlights on my car was out and they noticed that when I pulled up, which I, I didn't know before. It must have just happened. So I went out to go look and sure enough, whoever told me that was right. So I'm like messing around with the headlights, trying to see if I can get them to come back on and seeing if it's just you know something that's just not making good contact. So kind of screwing around with it. And uh, then this this kid appears, this 18-year-old uh, boy appears and he's like, do you need any help? I'm like, no. He says, are you sure? And he, he kept over and over and over asking me if he can help. And I just kept saying, no, I don't need help. No, I'm just checking some things, the headlights. There's nothing anyone else can do. I kept trying to convince him I don't need help. He just was not taking no for an answer. He kept telling me all the different reasons that he can be helpful here. So <laughs> I quickly ended that and went back in the house. Then uh, shortly after that, he found my girlfriend. I, I don't know if he was aware prior to that that I was with her, but he definitely became aware. And uh, he had a conversation with her about me. And he told her that I was really cute and that she was lucky to be with me. <laughs> so that, that erases any doubt that uh, he wasn't just being friendly. I think obvious, it was obvious, super obvious to me that he had an interest. And I, she thought this was so funny. She thought this was hilarious. I didn't find it was so hilarious. I, I found it annoying. I, I wanted this to stop. In fact, I was getting close to finally being rude to the kid and telling him to quit this because I was, uh, as I said, he hadn't done anything overt yet, but... Uh, it was very clear what was going on, and I was tired of it. I, I should have been very clear by how I was acting that I was not interested, and I was there with a girl. So, like, what the hell? Then he came up with what he thought was a brilliant idea to finally get some alone time with me, and that's why I'm telling this story. He came up to me and asked, can you walk with me to the store? Hmm, sounds familiar, just like that 19-year-old girl. Can you walk with me to the store? So I said, why do you need someone to walk you to the store? He said, well, this isn't a good neighborhood, and I'm afraid to walk alone here, so can you walk with me? Well, that was kind of like half true. Like the, the neighborhood was okay. It, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't like great. It was, I could understand where maybe someone could be nervous walking alone there, but he's a guy. He was like a tall guy, 18 years old. Like he wasn't likely to be mugged going to the store. This It's not like you're walking in a, in a, yeah, in the ghetto. This was uh, just kind of like a lower middle-class neighborhood. So, it wasn't particularly dangerous. But anyway, that the whole thing was a ruse. His parents wanted him to go to the store to get something, and then he realized that's an opportunity to be alone with me and walk with me. So I was really close to just finally laying it out for him to that I'm not interested, please stop bothering me. But especially because his parents were the ones holding the party there, I decided to still be polite. So I was trying to make various excuses. I was going, well, my back hurts. I don't want to really walk very far. And uh, you know, every time I walk more than a few steps, my back starts to really ache. I, I don't want to do it. But he kept pressing, pressing, pressing. Well, finally, my girlfriend was uh, feeling bad for me. She thought it was funny at first, but even she got the idea at this point that this was getting annoying. So she went to go rescue me. She... Uh, heard what was going on and she quickly grabbed this like heavy set 40 year old guy and said hey hey this this kid wants someone to walk with him to the store because he's kind of afraid to walk alone can you walk with him <laughs> and the 40 year old guy's like oh yeah okay like he he just thought he was being asked to 
walk with a kid to the store. So <laughs> anyway, this kid was very unhappy because now he no longer had the excuse to ask me to go because now this older guy said he'll go. So he wasn't interested in a heavy set 40 year old. He wanted me. <laughs> so uh, he realized that uh, this whole ruse has now flopped and now he's, he's stuck walking to the store with some older dude that he doesn't like about uh, 10 minutes later, maybe 15 minutes, whatever, something like that. The 40 year old dude comes back alone. And my girlfriend said, Hey, what happened to the kid? Where'd he go? How'd you get back so fast? And he said, well, I don't know. We were walking for about 10 minutes, and uh, he looked pissed off the entire time. He wouldn't talk to me. And then uh, at one point, he just took off. He just actually took off running. So I just came back here. <laughs> so the kid was so pissed off that this little ruse to get me to walk with him failed that uh, he couldn't even bring himself to walk and be friendly with this older guy. He just like... He's just like walking, going, oh, I hate this. I hate this. This isn't what I want. I don't want this guy with me. I hate this older guy. I don't, this isn't what I wanted. This is what I wanted. Ah! He just ran off. So, now, fortunately, that seemed to get the message across because then the kid didn't bother me for the rest of the night. I think he finally got the message at that point that this isn't going to happen. But look, walking to the store is serious business. I mean, this proves it. Someone says, can you walk to the store with me? That might be an advance. So if you related to this story now, 29 years later, Romel Buckley, the 18-year-old, was, I don't know if he was approached about walking to the store by the girl or if he just heard she said she wanted to walk to the store, but uh, he saw the opportunity. He knew that uh, being able to walk to the store with an object of your affection is an opportunity to get closer to them. And he was probably right. That's probably why her boyfriend became so enraged. In fact, if her boyfriend only knew what had happened involving me a year before he was born, I bet he'd even have been angrier. <laughs> you know, one good thing about getting older, one good thing about uh, not being a 20-year-old anymore is this doesn't happen to me. Like, I, I can guarantee if I were at that same party, you, you, you take the existing version of me and drop me at that same party in 92, uh, that kid would not have bothered me. So, like, uh, the unwanted advances from gay men not that this happened very often to me but it never happens anymore like it, it happened sometimes back in those days and i didn't look or appear gay i just it, just it just happened because i was younger and i guess i was more attractive to them but since i got older no never happens anymore so that's a, it's one ad, one advantage of aging i'm also like wondering why bother like once you're once you're really getting the impression that the guy is not warm to this that he just doesn't have any interest and uh like why, why keep persisting like is the guy's mind gonna change like, that's why i wasn't understanding with this kid i know he was only 18 but like i i don't care if he found me attractive or not he, he has to understand that the vast majority of men are not attracted to other men so once it's appear, once it's clear that I'm not one of them, like, why, why persist? I'm not going to say, well, okay, you know, if uh, now that you put it this way, yeah, let's go walk to the store together. I don't know what he was thinking. I hadn't thought of this story, but walking to the store with a or the offer to walk to the store with this gay kid, I haven't thought of this story in a very long time. But the second I read this about about the girl being asked to walk to the store, asking to walk to the store, and then this whole altercation, I go, oh, that brings back memories. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes just I forget about some story. Not like I forget the details, but I just 
don't even think about the fact that it happened because it's inconsequential. And then something comes up that was similar to something a long time ago. I go, oh, I remember this. It wasn't a happy memory, but it's kind of a funny memory the way it ended. It was kind of entertaining. So there's always a few advantages you get from getting older. Many disadvantages. More disadvantages than advantages, but there are a few advantages to getting older. That's one of them. I have to imagine some women feel that way too. Women who are like tired of dudes hitting on them all the time and then they get older and it stops happening. And, uh, you know, like as long as they're satisfied with whatever relationship they're in or whatever and they don't want guys interested in them anymore, like it might be a relief to not have to deal with that anymore. Okay, let's move on here. Virgin Hotels Las Vegas had its grand opening on March 25th. And that's not the main story here. I am going to talk about the opening a little bit, but that is not the main story that I really want to talk about. The main story here involves some of the rules of Virgin Hotels Las Vegas because it's, it's pretty outrageous. Virgin Hotels Las Vegas is the former Hard Rock, and uh, it had a few delays in opening because it closed for a little while. And then it was supposed to open in January, but because of COVID, it was pushed back by two months. They opened officially on March 25th, which was just yesterday. It is being run by Mohegan Sun, which is the same Mohegan Sun as in Connecticut. It's an Indian tribe, and this is the first casino they are running in Las Vegas. In fact, the casino portion of Virgin Hotels Las Vegas is actually called Mohegan Sun Casino. So the weird thing is you'll hear someone went to the Mohegan Sun Casino in Las Vegas. If you were to drive around Vegas, I, I don't even know if you'll see anything branded Mohegan Sun Casino. Maybe it'll be somewhere on the building, but it's actually inside Virgin Hotels Las Vegas. So the hotel is Virgin Hotels. It's you know part of the Virgin Hotels group. And then the Mohegan Sun is the casino portion. And that's actually operating under uh, the Mohegan Gaming and Entertainment Company, which, as I said, is uh, one of those Indian tribes. So it opened on March 25th. And it has uh, 60,000 square feet of gaming space, which has uh, 44 table games and 650 slot machines. So it's not huge, but it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's not tiny either. The hotel has uh, 1,504 rooms. They're all renovated. These are not new rooms. This is the former Hard Rock, as I said. The problem is, since an Indian tribe has never run a hotel in Las Vegas, or a casino in Las Vegas, they aren't quite, uh, they're not quite up to speed with the expectations in Vegas. Because Indian casinos, they just pretty much do what they want. They're their own market. There aren't usually that many uh, competing casinos nearby. In California, that's not the case. In California, there are some that are close to each other. But uh, a lot of times in the East, they're pretty far from each other. They make their own rules. They answer to no one but themselves. And as a result, basically, the customer has no rights. And these Indian tribes will very often screw the customer and not care. 
they really just don't care. Even the big ones will ultimately screw people if they choose to. Like they they really don't care very much. And often they're very short-sighted. Often they don't care that much about their reputation. Often they don't care that much about the word getting around on social media. Often they just uh, are short-sighted and they do whatever they can for short-term profit. That's very true at the smaller Indian casinos. But even at the larger Indian casinos, it is true to some degree. So Mohegan Sun, they are operating the casino. And uh, basically the way this works is they are the ones who are not only running it, but they're taking all the risk. The casino is really theirs. They don't own the property, but the casino itself is theirs. Everything that happens in that casino, uh, win or lose, is on them. And Virgin, they're the ones who run the hotel. And uh, I'm not sure about this, but presumably they're the ones who are uh, renting the casino space to Mohegan Sun. So... The problem here is that Mohegan Sun is very paranoid about uh, people using them and not being uh, worth it to the tribe to have these people present. So what they're particularly worried about is that uh, people are going to stiff them on comp rooms. These people want to visit Vegas. And maybe they will have earned play or earned, earned comp rooms from their play in Connecticut. So let's say you play at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut and you play enough to where it justifies giving you a comp room based upon the amount of play you typically do when you go to Mohegan Sun, Connecticut. However, let's say you live fairly close to Mohegan Sun. So when you go there, you're really going to gamble that you wouldn't go there as a destination because you live fairly close to it anyway. Kind of like when I go to Commerce, I don't just go there uh, to have fun. I go to Commerce to play poker, and then when I'm done playing poker, I leave. So I never visit Commerce not to play poker. Whereas uh, when I visit Las Vegas, I will visit Vegas without gambling sometimes or without gambling much. So this is exactly what Mohegan Sun was worried about, that since most of their visitors are local or semi-local, they tend to come there to gamble. But Las Vegas is kind of a destination place. So Las Vegas, people may want to come there and not gamble. So they were very worried that people in Connecticut who have already qualified for comps based upon their Mohegan Sun play in Connecticut might use this for a free trip to Vegas, basically. They'd have to pay for their flights, but uh, they they get some cheap flight to Vegas, especially during times of COVID. Fly there. And then uh, stay in the comp room in the new renovated hotel and not play and then go back. And then the Mohegan Sun is left holding the bag. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. I thought that Virgin owns the hotel, so why should they care about that? Well, because they obviously have some kind of agreement where when the Mohegan Sun comps rooms that they reimburse Virgin Hotels. And this is where it's a bit different than most hotel casino operations, which while they have separate departments, the reimbursement is all kind of just uh, on paper, that they're actually not losing money from one department to the other because it's all the same company. So when the casino reimburses the hotel portion for the comp room, uh, the company's not losing money there. But here, if the Mohegan Sun 
is reimbursing Virgin to put people up in comp rooms, which they are doing, then if the people don't play, then Mohegan Sun actually loses hard money. They not only don't make money, they actually lose hard money that they paid to give someone a room that they ended up uh, not holding up their end of the bargain by gambling enough to, to justify it. Now, the way comps have always worked in Vegas and pretty much everywhere is that once you have earned a comp, that uh, you're be given this comp free and clear regardless of what you do in the future. Now, if you screw them and don't play them and don't play there or don't play enough, then they will either adjust down or deny you comps in the future. But it has been long accepted in the industry that a risk that the casino takes is that when they give you a comp, since it's based upon past play and what they are projecting to be your future play, that if you don't play what they're hoping you play, then they just eat it. They just eat it and they don't make the same mistake again. That's the way it's always been. Well, Mohegan Sun was so paranoid about this. They're so paranoid that individuals might screw them this way, especially given that people will have a different reason to visit Vegas often than they would the Mohegan Sun in Connecticut, that they put forth a horrendous rule that, to my knowledge, is still in place. So listen to this. This is going around on social media. They stated, you agree that you are liable for for all charges until the balance of your account is paid in full. You authorize Virgin Hotels Las Vegas to place a $100 per day hold on your credit card or debit card to guarantee charges. You understand that the complimentary casino stay is based on your relation with the Mohegan Sun Casino during this visit and the comp may be revoked and charged with the credit card or debit card on file if the casino play is not sufficient. Uh, yuck, 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 yuck. Hate it. Hate it. Now, this was on a uh, PDF file that was stored on uh, Amazon's web server. I don't know where it originally was linked from. All I can see is is an AWS page, which doesn't tell me much. Now, it does look like it was an official page on virginhotelslv.com because... Looking at the address of this, it's s3.amazonaws.com, which means uh, Amazon uh, web servers, and then slash virginhotelslv.com slash content slash upload slash 2021 slash 01 slash blah, blah, blah. So right on Amazon's own uh, AWS site, the next directory below that is virginhotelslv.com. So unless someone made a fake one there, which I doubt... I have to think this is an authentic document. Why the person didn't link directly where it came from, I don't know. But this looks like uh, an authentic document, an authentic PDF file that uh, they actually put up on the Virgin Hotels website. So yeah, they actually are taking $100 per day hold against your credit or debit card. And they're going to charge you the amount of what they feel you still owe if you don't earn it back from your play, which is crazy. And who knows? They could charge you even more than 100 if they think you're using up more than a $100 room. They're just saying they're going to place the $100 per day hold, but that doesn't mean they can't charge you more. That just means they're guaranteeing at least $100 that you have it uh, available on your card. 
So that is really, really insane that they would do this. And again, this really, really shows the thinking a lot of the, of a lot of these Indian tribes. They hate so much of the idea of any individuals getting over on them. And when I say getting over, I mean coming in with the intention to use them for free stuff. See, most casinos look at this sort of thing as a numbers game that most people they're going to make money from and a few people they won't. Now, they don't. most casinos don't want to allow advantage players because advantage players can keep coming back over and over and hitting them. So they, they want to put a stop to that. But as far as uh, regular customers who just uh, use up comps and don't continue to play, this has long been just uh, part of the cost of doing business. Because remember, to have earned these comps, these players played before at negative expectation games and presumably lost. So you're hoping they continue and you're giving this as an enticement to get them to continue. Much like you could walk into Costco and do nothing but take all their free samples and not buy anything and walk back out. And you could come in every day and do this and eat a lot of free food for a year. But they assume that most people are not going to do this. And that if a few people do, it's no big deal. That they're, they're not going to stress over it. That used to be the policy, though strangely enough, not as much anymore, of downtown Las Vegas properties and the parking. Like Binion's, for example, they had a machine that you could walk and stamp your own parking ticket to have free parking in their lot. So technically, they were a pay lot, but all you had to do is walk into Binion's, stamp it on that self-serve machine, and uh, it doesn't cost you anything, and then you can drive out for free. So were people coming to Binion's only to park, and then just walking in there to get that stamp to walk back out? Yes. But they were okay because that also brought people into the place, and some percentage of them would stay in and gamble, would stay in and eat, or whatever else that gives business to Binion's. So it was worth it to have the freeloaders because a certain percentage of people parking there, even ones intending to freeload, did not freeload. So by similar standards, casinos understand that at some point, people are going to stop gambling. At some point, people will, after losing a lot of money, just decide, hey, this is it. I'm just going to use my comps but not gamble this time. And there will be visits where people underplay. In fact, I know some degenerate gamblers who've lost tons of money in casinos, ones who, if I owned a casino, I would love to roll out the red carpet for, like high-stakes negative EV gamblers, that occasionally just show up and don't feel like gambling. They're just not in the mood. So they have to figure that out, too. They have to figure out, do we take away this person's comps or just understand this kind of like a one-off thing and give them another chance? And that, that all goes into like a mathematical formula that's used as far as uh, copying people's play. And then some hosts have some discretion as well as to uh, what they think the situation is. Now, of course, the more times in a row you do this, or let's say three out of four times you stay and don't play, then uh, they're probably not going to comp you anymore or comp you much anymore. But it, it's all a numbers game. And it was never done like this to where they're making sure that nobody ever comes and stays without playing. That's just never been done anywhere. At least not to my knowledge. So Mohegan Sun, so paranoid that people were going to go across the country for a free Vegas trip on their dime that they put in this ridiculous policy. And to my knowledge, it still exists. Now there's a second policy 
that does not exist anymore. And that was also stated in that same PDF document that was sent to me. The second policy, which again is no longer in effect, and in fact uh, was rescinded before the hotel opened, was no outside food and beverage allowed on property. Now this one I can't even blame on the Mohegan Sun. This one sounds like a hotel policy. This sounds like Virgin Hotels decided that they are going to be cheap and that they are going to be money-grubbing and that they are going to treat this like an amusement park. They're going to treat this, in fact, worse than an amusement park. I've, I've seen amusement parks which allow you to bring in food. They're going to treat this like a movie theater, actually, that you can't bring in outside food or drink. That's insane. That's insane. I've never heard of that before at a hotel in my life. The reason this is so insane is because a hotel is lodging. Now, yes, they have restaurants on premises. Yes, they hope you use those restaurants. And yes, they can sometimes make more money from you on the restaurant portion of their operation than from the hotel portion. But with all that said, a hotel is a hotel and it is not considered a venue for eating. And human beings need to eat. Eating is not a luxury. Eating is not something that you can choose to do or not to do. That if you are staying overnight somewhere, that unless you're on a starvation diet or on a fast, that you are going to need to eat at some point during your stay. A lot of people will use the on-site restaurant. But some people won't. Some people will go out to eat elsewhere. Some people will grab snacks elsewhere. And some people will bring in their own food. But you know what's funny about hotels? Very few people bring in their own food. And if they do, it's usually like snacks. Like they'll bring in a bag of chips. It's very uncommon, not unheard of, but for the most part, pretty uncommon, that someone brings outside food or drink on their own. I guess drinks sometimes. But how often do people bring in like a full meal to eat at a full-service hotel. I'm not talking about like a, an extended stay type place. I mean, like a Vegas Strip hotel. How often do you see someone strolling in with a full meal they got elsewhere? Yeah, it can happen. People can go pick up meals somewhere, especially fast food, but it doesn't happen that often. For the most part, people either go out to eat at an off-site restaurant or they eat at the hotel restaurant. Or... In some cases, they ate very late the night before. They ate the night before. They, they get in late. They go to sleep. They leave early. They never eat there. But for the most part, if someone's there for any decent length of time while they're awake, they're going to want to eat. And often, they're going to want to eat the hotel. Not everybody. And because eating is a necessity, to require that people eat at your place, or at the very least, if any food enters the premises that has to be your food, is crazy. It's crazy. This is different than if you run a restaurant and you don't want people bringing food into your restaurant. That makes sense because a restaurant exists only to serve food. So it is not fair to the restaurant owner that you walk in with food bought elsewhere and eat at their tables. So they should not have to provide you a free place to eat other people's food. That makes sense. But when it's lodging, when it's a place for you to live and sleep for a day or more, 
then yeah, of course you should be able to bring in your own food if you want. But the good thing for them is that it's not very easy for you to bring in a lot of food and you're not going to have a way to cook it anyway. I don't even think there's like microwaves in these hotel rooms uh, or if there are, you know, like how much can you really do? So like how many people are, are bringing in food instead of uh, going to eat at the hotel restaurant? Probably not many. And beverage? What the hell is this? The beverage thing is even more outrageous because you have to drink more often than you eat, if you think about it. You can actually go without food, believe it or not, for a month and live. A lot of people don't know this, but you can you could actually starve yourself for a month. It's not healthy. But uh, you could starve yourself for a month and probably live. A lot of it depends upon other factors, what your overall health is, uh, if you're you know, what your current weight is. Like if, if you're bone thin, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to survive that long without food. But bottom line is human beings can actually go quite some time without food. And that's true of all animals. Drinking is a different story. If you drink no water for like three days straight, you're dead. If you drink no water for two days straight, there's a decent chance you're dead. So it's very important to stay hydrated. That's why sometimes people will die of dehydration and not even realize it. Like when they get sick and they're throwing up constantly, uh, if they don't get hydrated and they let this go on too long and they can't keep liquids down, if they don't get to the ER and get an IV, then they die. And there's been cases of this. So, in fact, uh, in third world countries, this happens a lot. In Western countries, it happens too. It happens in the US, but in, in third world countries, this happens a lot where people get sick and die of dehydration, often not even realizing how quickly you can die of dehydration. So the, the point I'm making here is that you, you definitely have to drink something while you're at the hotel. Even if you come in late at night, having already eaten dinner, uh, you may not eat, but you're definitely going to drink at some point during your stay. So to tell people that you have to buy drinks there is insane. And what if they don't have the beverages that you normally drink? What if, uh, you know, what, what if the brand of things that you drink and, and that uh, they don't have that there? Just tough luck on you. You have to drink what they provide you. You, can, you. you are only allowed to drink in that hotel what they will sell you. And again, that's different than a restaurant. A restaurant, you can say, okay, I don't like what they're serving to drink. I'm going to walk out. The hotel, you're staying there the whole night. You can't just walk out. I guess they could say, well, you can go to have a drink elsewhere. But hey, how stupid is this to not allow food and drink into a hotel? I've never seen a hotel anywhere. Forget Vegas. I've never seen a hotel anywhere that says I cannot bring in food or drink to the hotel. Never. Never. So that was actually the policy, and then I got a lot of bad press because this started going around on blogs. It was so outrageous because everybody could relate to it because people have been to hotels all around the country, all around the world, and nobody has ever been told before, hey, you can't bring outside food or drink here. So they actually backtracked on this. They actually (laughs) backed out that policy about the food, and they put a correction that you are allowed to bring food. They, they, they put, if the mood strikes, outside food or drinks for personal consumption are okay with us, catering your own event is not. That's still obnoxious. Now, I'm not saying people should be able to cater their own event. If you're going to hold an event there and they want to have to provide the food for it or you can't have the event, okay, that's reasonable. But the way they put it's even really nasty. Catering your own event is not okay. It's not okay. What the hell? If the mood strikes outside food or drinks for personal consumption are okay with us, catering your own events is not. 
you could tell they wrote this really pissed off that they had to roll this back. You could tell they they so badly didn't want to roll this back, but they were afraid the negative press about this was going to snowball and that it was going to pretty much take away the attention from their grand opening. So they didn't want this to be the narrative of their grand opening, the grand opening of the hotel where you can't bring in your own drinks or food. <laughs> so they, someone wrote this who was very bitter. You can tell. If the mood strikes, outside food or drinks for personal consumption are okay with us. Catering your event is not. How about just writing, bring your own food or drink, uh, always allowed on premises. Uh, only exception is uh, catered events. Uh, m- food must be provided by us. Something like that. I mean, if, if I was asked to sit down and write this, I could have, I could take like five minutes and write this out in a very non-offensive way. Because that's pretty standard. I I have no problem with venues that say, if you're going to hold an event here, we have to cater it. I probably would choose to hold it elsewhere, unless their catering prices are reasonable. But I can understand that policy. That policy doesn't bother me. That's pretty standard. To say you can't bring your own food or drinks and to write this obnoxious message when people bitch about it, when they backtrack. I mean, it's off to such a bad start there. And what this really indicates is a nasty managerial, managerial attitude. If you already start out hostile toward the customer where you're constantly on guard that they're screwing you, and not even screwing you, but just you believe they're screwing you by just uh, traveling frugally, by choosing to save money or choosing to spend the least money possible, of course you want to attract the type of customer who's going to spend more. That's business, okay? I understand trying to appeal to those you think are going to spend the most money on property. But to actually set policy against things like this that are totally allowed everywhere else is crazy. And what this means that if anything else comes up, they're going to be very difficult and very nasty. So I could picture if anything goes wrong with the room and you call up and ask the manager, hey, can I have a partial comp? Can you comp off the resort fee? Can you comp off... uh, you know, 20% of the charge. I'm sure you're going to get a big fat no. Because if they're this difficult about the food and the drink and about the comp policy, can you imagine how they're going to be about you asking for money off the bill? And you may say to me, well, you know, why should anybody get any money off the bill? That's like uh, cheap juice stuff. No, it isn't. If the hotel doesn't deliver on what was promised and you go through substantial inconvenience, then yeah, they do kind of owe you money back because you, you didn't really get what you paid for. So, uh, for example, uh, let's say that the toilet barely works, or let's say the, the faucet's uh, dripping all night, or let's say that the heater doesn't work right. Like, you're, you're going to have a bad stay that you weren't expecting because of these maintenance problems, and you are due some money back. So there's, there's a wide variety of reasons that hotels can uh, take money off, and I have had hotels take money off and I've only asked for it when I felt it was really deserved. I, I don't try to angle to get free stuff. But if I feel that something was substandard or something didn't work right or there were maintenance problems or whatever it was, then I will ask, hey, can you do something here? So I have a feeling at Virgin Hotels, they're going to say no. And the funny thing here is this is kind of running counter to the whole Virgin brand. The whole Virgin brand is meant to be customer-friendly and classy and uh, where people feel like they had a good experience. 
that's always been what Virgin has been striving for. It's it's not like they are a budget brand where it's like you know you take what we're giving you, it's cheap, don't bitch about it. It's not it's not that model. I realize certain budget models of of certain products, certain travel products, it's expected to be kind of shitty. You're paying very little, you're getting something kind of shitty, and they're not likely to give you much of a refund if you're unhappy because you're going to get what you pay for. But that's not what Virgin is doing here. Virgin actually, uh, the whole point is to have a respected brand that's supposed to be classy and has happy customers. That's my impression of Virgin, and this is a very odd way to start. I don't. I still don't understand the food and beverage thing because that came from the hotel side to me. I mean, I can't imagine this part of the casino. In fact, if anything, it might save the casino money because people won't be uh, asking for food and drink comps as much. I don't think it's going to matter that much, but I, I can't see where the Mohegan Sun doesn't want you bringing your own food into the hotel. Now, it's possible that... Um, if the Mohegan Sun comps someone a room and then they spend money elsewhere on property, maybe they don't have to reimburse Virgin as much. I guess that's a possibility that Mohegan Sun said, hey, yes, you're giving the hotel room to these people and it's your hotel, but these people we're bringing to you are going to spend money elsewhere on your part of the property. They're going to spend money in the restaurants and the gift shop and whatever. So, you know, shouldn't we get some allowance for that? So maybe they have some kind of agreement. I'm just guessing at this. This may or may not be true. But maybe they have some kind of agreement that the casino gets back a certain percentage of what the customer spends on property from whatever they pay the hotel. And then maybe the Mohegan sense that, oh, shit, what if these people just like bring all their own stuff and spend nothing? And the hotel's like, okay, well, we'll take care of that. We just won't allow food and drink on property. Like it could have been like that. This kind of seems like it was driven by the casino in some way because of that other policy, which is definitely a casino policy. So it seems kind of coincidental that a shitty casino policy about the comps that can be revoked, that such a policy... And uh, a shitty hotel policy by a totally different company about the outside food and beverage, that these would exist together by coincidence. It looks to me like maybe the casino was directing both of them. But as I said, a bad start and gives me a very bad impression of the place. Now, some people have said, look, this is not a huge deal because of two reasons. Number one, I bet most properties probably have a no outside food or drink policy that just is never enforced. So that's probably all they're saying here is it's just never enforced. Well, I don't believe it. I've never seen this anywhere in any fine print. Never. I've never seen anywhere. It's not like I've seen it, but they don't enforce it. I've just never seen it to where you're told in a hotel that you can't bring food or drink. That was a shock to me to see. And uh, another point that was brought up was, hey, as long as they specify this, as long as they are upfront with it, then this isn't a problem. Well, that is uh, BS. That's BS. Because uh, unless something is really, really prominently disclosed, if it is non-standard and then buried in the fied print, then it's pretty much a scam. 
because people make assumptions about things. People assume based upon past experience that they're going to have a similar experience with your product, with your company. And if uh, the way you do things is substantially different than the rest of the industry, you can't uh, surprise people with it at the end. So you need to make it very, very clear up front, not buried in the fine print, not buried in a terms page. I'm talking about what's ethical. I'm not, I'm not talking about legalities here. I'm talking about ethical. You need to make it very clear. Say, um, you know, before you book this hotel, are you aware? And not just bury this in like a long thing that people are going to miss, but very, very clear by itself. Are you aware this comp room is not going to be honored as a comp room if you do not meet the level of play you previously had at Mohegan Sun that allowed you to get this comp room in the first place? Do you understand? Yes, no. Like something that clear, not not a five-page thing where it's buried at the bottom. And also about the food or drink, even though that's gone now, but when it was there, that would be another thing they have to state very, very clearly because it's so non-standard. And this, I've always hated what I call terms and conditions monkeys who are people that defend companies that bury super standard, super non-standard things in the fine print. They go, well, as long as it's in the terms of service, you should have read the terms of service. No, no, that's unethical. You don't bury something in the terms of service if it is non-standard. You bury in the terms of service the standard stuff, stuff you have to say, but everybody knows is the case. That's fine to bury in the terms of service, not stuff that people wouldn't expect. And I don't care about the legalities. I'm talking about what is ethical, what is right, and what I consider a scam. And if people are staying at your place, at your hotel, and are believing certain things that they can do that they actually can't do, because your rules are very non-standard and you don't make it very clear to everybody, then you are tricking them and you know it. And that's why it's unethical. So I've always really called out terms and conditions monkeys. And the terms and conditions monkeys, I'm not talking about people who work at the company who have to defend it. I'm talking about outsiders analyzing the situation. So you post about it complaining on the forum and then some terms and conditions monkey goes, wait, 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 wait. Is it in the terms? Yes, yes. Oh, well, you're wrong. It's in the terms. Too bad. You should have read it. Should have read it, stupid. The funny thing is these terms and conditions monkeys, they never read the terms. These are not people who read the terms themselves. They often run into this themselves and then they convince themselves that it's their fault. I think it's people who like being victims or who like, uh, who are too obsessed with rules and not common sense. Rules have a place, but common sense also has a place. And when rules exist to trick people, or to mislead people or to scam people, they are bad rules and they're unethical and they are just as bad as lying. So this is a bad start. This is a very bad start. And I don't know if I'll ever even set foot in the place. Maybe to take a look at it, but not very impressed so far. 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. Got a text from the 702. I've seen the Cosmo literally checking people's bags upon check-in for alcohol. Packed in normal luggage. They only do it to people without status, but I've seen it numerous times. Interesting. Um, 
That I can kind of understand. They're probably doing it for money. I'm not going to deny that. But uh, that's alcohol, and they can at least justify it that they don't want just people bringing in tons of alcohol and getting so drunk that they become disruptive or destructive on property. So they could just say, look, we, we don't want someone becoming sloppy drunk here. So if we're serving it to you, we can control it. If you bring it yourself, we can't see what you're doing. So uh, we're not allowing it. So, And that might be part of the reason. I, I have a feeling they're just doing it because they want to sell expensive drinks. But at least there, there's some justification. Because alcohol is not a necessity. I think for some of you, maybe it is. But uh, it, it's not a necessity to actually live. Uh, food and beverage are necessities to live. And by the way, I'm not arguing with you, Mr. Uh, 702, who texted me. I'm just uh, giving comment. But that's interesting. I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. But that still doesn't change my opinion. It's still very different than food or drink. And I'm not even saying this as a non-drinker, because I am a non-drinker. But even if I was a drinker, I'd be kind of annoyed by that policy. But I would not, uh, I, I would not say this is like super crazy. The food and beverage thing super crazy. I still have not seen it anywhere. Like, like how far were they planning to take it? I, I kind of wish this was the policy so I could see what they were going to do. Like, if you brought in bottled water, would they have confiscated it? If you brought in uh, grape juice, which you probably can't buy on property, uh, would they confiscate it? If you brought in, uh, like, six granola bars to snack on, would they confiscate your granola bars? <laughs> like, like, they probably would have. It's crazy. You know what started uh, disallowing any kind of uh, outside food or beverage was uh, Norwegian Cruise Lines. And I was very disappointed about that because I I would bring my own drinks on board. And one pleasure I had in cruising was, was bringing the drinks I wanted and uh, having them in the room, in the refrigerator, which they provide you. And, you know, just relaxing in my room on the balcony and drinking my own drinks. And uh, and also, when I would go on uh, shore excursions, I would have my bottled water because they don't sell like big 24 packs of bottled water. So I'd bring, I'd bring my whole family on a cruise and we need a bunch of bottled water because there's a bunch of us and it's hot usually. So, you know, you, you go out on a port in the Caribbean, it's hot and humid and you want to have water with you and you have a bunch of, you know, you have several people. So I, I would bring cases of water aboard that you can't buy there. You can buy individual bottles for like six bucks each, but it's, it's not only is it a ripoff, but you, you can't buy them in packs. So I would, buy, I would bring on these uh, big 24 packs of water. And yeah, it was a pain in the ass to carry it on, but it, it was only a one-time thing because I'd carry it on and then it could just sit in my room for the whole week. So it wasn't any further effort. And then we would drink it all so I wouldn't have to carry it back off. And whatever I would have left over, I'd just leave there. I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't carry back off. And usually I wouldn't have much or any at the end anyway. So they did away with that just to make more money because they charge for drinks on cruises. So they decided that uh, can't bring any beverage on board. They, they were really, really obsessive about it too. Like if you had a partially open water bottle that you were drinking that you got on shore, you couldn't bring it back on. Even if you could prove it came from the ship initially, you could not bring it back on. So that was really annoying. But yeah, that's a cruise ship. It's a different story. I've never seen a hotel do it. So we shall move on. Another Las Vegas topic. 
A lot of Las Vegas topics tonight. Wish I had Brandon. I like having him here for the Las Vegas topics. He's probably sleeping. But anyway. Caesars has decided they're going to sue their various insurance companies for over $2 billion over COVID losses. It's a huge lawsuit, obviously. And it's really going to test the way insurance companies are going to be expected to deal with results of the pandemic. So it should be an interesting suit to follow. It's not going to affect us as customers, really. But uh, I don't believe there was anything like pandemic insurance prior to COVID. Because there had not been a significant pandemic in the U.S. in about 100 years. Meaning that everybody who is uh, presently alive in the U.S. was either not alive during the pandemic, which is almost everybody, or was a tiny kid at the time. So there was there were literally zero adults who are who were alive for the last pandemic that are alive today. Not one, because the last pandemic ended like in 1920. So anybody who was 18 in 1920 is now dead today. Every single person. Nobody got a pandemic insurance. Because if, if, if you talked about, uh, you know, a pandemic's going to shut down Las Vegas, people would have laughed at you in 2019. Today, nobody's going to laugh at that because it happened. But uh, this is just something nobody considered. And I know Bill Gates occasionally talked about it, but this is one of these things that people don't really take seriously until it actually occurs. So the question is, when these hotels buy insurance, kind of like general insurance policies that predict uh, that, that prevent uh, losses that can occur in various ways. If they have business disruption due to a pandemic, which probably was not stated in the policy either way, it was not stated in the policy probably that it is covered or that it isn't, it's probably ambiguous, then is it covered? Now, in some cases, it's obvious. Like if Caesar just buys uh, a fire insurance policy that they'll only get paid if the place burns down. Well, then if anything happens to the property or to their business from anything but a fire, then the insurance company does not have to pay out. That's pretty obvious. But uh, when there's a more generalized policy about the business, about just things that disrupt the business, then does a pandemic count is the question. And I don't have an answer for you. If you think I'm going to give you the answer, I'm not. I don't have the answer. As you guys know, I am not an attorney, and uh, I have not seen these policies. Even if I were an attorney, I still couldn't give you an answer. Though I could probably give a better opinion about this if I were one. I kind of wish we had Eric on for this segment. I should have thought about this. I, I knew I was covering this, and I put it near the end of the show. I should have, I should have had him on before he went to sleep. Ugh. Okay, well, anyway. As you guys know, Las Vegas took a massive beating over the past year. It was about a year ago when the casinos were ordered shut down. And even though they reopened in June, they operated at much lower capacity. Many revenue streams, which existed before, just were outright shut down. There were no more clubs. There were no more conventions. There were... uh, no more shows. And then even restaurants were operating at such low capacity 
and the hotel was operating at lower capacity and was charging lower prices. The casinos were much less busy and there were uh, fewer high rollers there and just everything was going wrong. So the ho- this trip just took a beating. Now, non-strip casinos actually did okay because they pretty much just exist for gambling. So locals would go there to gamble and they still had the urge to gamble even uh, during the pandemic. In fact, these people had less as far as choices of what to do besides gambling during the pandemic. So that made up for those that were staying away because of the pandemic. And they weren't losing out from those who weren't coming into town from elsewhere because those people don't typically go to the locals' casinos anyway. So locals' casinos did okay, but Caesars' properties, almost all of which are aimed at tourists. In fact, the one that they call the locals' property, Rio, isn't really a locals' property. So they really don't have any locals' properties in Vegas. So Caesars took a beating, as did any other company that had uh, a property on the Strip. So Caesars claims that they took uh, $1.6 billion in bank loans and $722 million in new debt as a result of their massive losses in 2020. Caesars said that they lost $1.8 billion in 2020, and yet in 2019, they made $81 million. So $81 million is a lot smaller than $1.9 billion, but one was a profit, one was a loss. The lawsuit that Caesars filed, which was filed in uh, Clark County District Court in Las Vegas, it said that uh, they have not received one single penny for the business interruption. Now, there was actual business interruption for about uh, two and a half months between like mid-March and early June when the casinos were forced closed. They were allowed to reopen in early June, but as I said, there were so many aspects of the business that either couldn't run or at lower capacity that they were not the same. And not all the properties reopened because of demand was not high enough for all of them. So some actually did remain closed even though they had the ability to reopen. Caesars alleges that they purchased insurance companies to protect against, quote, all risk of physical loss or damage and resulting business disruption. They claim that they paid more than $25 million in premiums, which should have covered more than $3.4 billion in coverage limits. They're saying that they paid it for the year 2020, not overall, but that for 2020, they coughed up $25 million in premiums and the insurance companies... Uh, when they went to them for the $2 billion or so that they said they uh, lost over the whole thing, they were told that they are getting 0.0. It was an 80-page lawsuit, and this was discovered because it was in a filing with the SEC. They named 60 insurance companies as defendants. They claim that the insurers should have covered losses because uh, they were uh, unable to uh, continue operating with uh, that. The basically business was shut down. That they had their business interrupted, and that uh, these policies should have covered that. They said that these losses actually should have been covered for all of the U.S. properties. So that's why the lawsuit was for over $2 billion 
rather than just the 1.8 million they lost in 2020. They claim that they furloughed and placed on leave a substantial number of their workforce. They claim they had to reduce the salaries of management. Now, this is not the first time that there's been uh, litigation involving COVID-19 and uh, business shutdowns, as you might imagine. More than 200 U.S. businesses have filed lawsuits against insurers for uh, losses related to COVID-19. And in gambling, Circus Circus and Treasure Island owner Phil Ruffin also filed uh, a similar lawsuit. Circus Circus said they lost, uh, that they had up to $600 million coverage in what was called an all-risk policy. However, their lawsuit against AIG Insurance was dismissed last month. So that is not looking very good for Caesars, I guess, if it's along the same lines. It sounds strange to me that an all-risk policy wouldn't cover COVID, but it's possible that there were exceptions written in that, while not mentioning pandemics, would have been covered well enough. That's a pretty quick dismissal, too, because obviously with the pandemic only being a 2020 thing, they filed the lawsuit after taking the losses and it got dismissed by uh, February. Wow. February 2021, that is. So we'll see where this goes. Uh, This could be a shot in the dark. This could be the Caesars figures, hey, we lost so much money. Let's see if we can get anything out of the casino, out of the insurance companies, even if there's a small chance of success for such a large return, we might as well give it a shot because $2 billion is such a large number that, like, let's say there's even a 1% chance of that succeeding. That's still $20 million uh, of uh, expectation there. If there's a 5% chance, it's $100 million. And they made $81 million in all of 2019. So you can see why... Uh, a lawsuit like this, even if they think it only has like a 5% chance to succeed, is worth their time. But I have to imagine that uh, if a similar lawsuit has already failed, that this probably will too. I wonder if there's some sort of like act of God provision in there that would prevent this. Because that, that's often uh, in these type of policies something that is uh, considered like a natural disaster that they don't have coverage for. Or if there is, that they it's named specifically what they have covered and everything else is not covered. For example, I know this is very different, but uh, most homeowners insurance policies do not cover earthquake damage. So you may have insurance for your home if uh, fire were to damage it, but uh, not earthquake. So if a big earthquake happens and the house falls apart or takes substantial damage, then you're on your own. You've just suffered the loss. You can buy earthquake policies, but usually your homeowner's policy does not cover earthquake. So it may be the case here. They may have it listed specifically enough, even if not mentioning pandemics, to where it's very possible that these lawsuits don't have any merit, but they're just 
taking a shot. If Caesars really did lose this type of money, now they could be exaggerating. They could these could be kind of paper losses where they didn't really lose that much money. Yeah, you know, who who knows what the true story is? But I do believe they lost a lot of money in 2020. There's no question. So they could be looking to recover money in any way possible. And if they can do it from the insurance companies, then great. Great for them. I'm not saying great overall. I'm really not rooting for either side here. I'm rooting for the side that is in the right. If the policy would imply strongly enough to where it could be inferred that they were that they believed that they were uh, purchasing coverage that would cover something like a pandemic, and they were kind of misled into believing that, then I want Caesars to win. If it's pretty clear it doesn't cover that and they're just trying to take a shot, then I want the insurance company to win. But I'm guessing the insurance company is probably in the right here. Usually in these cases, the insurance company is in the right and the one suing them is just delusional or greedy. Though with big payouts, a lot of times insurance companies will act shady and attempt to find ways not to pay. They're very happy to take your premiums. Then when it comes to covering something big, then they balk at it and try to find a way out of it. Actually, in the 90s, this is not related to anything with hotels or gambling or pandemics, but in the 90s, there was a big problem with individual insurance policies for healthcare. That as long as it were it was uh, small things that you needed covered, it was fine, and they paid with without balking at all. But if you had a big bill coming for something like cancer, then they would go back into your history and retroactively find a reason to say that you shouldn't have had this insurance in the first place because you didn't qualify, and retroactively deny you coverage to where you're no longer covered where you, you do not get the cancer treatments covered or whatever it's going to be that's going to be really expensive to cover. And that's crappy because really the burden is on, is on them to either accept you or not accept you. And unless there's like a really blatant case of lying about your condition that is very relevant to uh, what happened to you later, then they shouldn't be able to do this. And that's that's one of the portions of Obamacare I was actually for, was the end of the denial of people for pre-existing conditions, because this became something that was abused on two ends, where people would lie about pre-existing conditions in order to get insurance and then sock them with a huge bill. So people would pay no money for premiums until they needed something expensive and then sign up for insurance, pretend they're healthy and go, oh, wow, I just got this terrible uh, diagnosis here a month after I got insurance. Wow. Lucky I happened to get insurance when I was healthy a month ago. (laughs) The insurance company knows what's going on, but they can't prove it. They can't prove that you knew you had cancer a month ago. So they're stuck paying. So they were so paranoid this was happening that they started just finding reasons to deny people coverage, even when the people hadn't done anything wrong. And it was really crappy. So it was, you had crappy people that were taking advantage of insurance companies and you had crappy insurance companies that were taking advantage of people. And it was like a constant game of roll and re-roll between the customers and the insurance companies in the individual market. And that is one thing that Obamacare fixed was since they can't deny anyone for pre-existing conditions, now this can't happen anymore because people don't have to lie about their pre-existing conditions when they sign up for insurance. 
So I've got my problems with Obamacare. I've got a lot of my problems with it, and I, I have it myself. I, I have no subsidy, but I'm, I'm on the same individual-type plans. But I will say that was a good thing to eliminate. And there were actually people who were incentivized, who worked for these insurance companies. They actually got bonuses based upon the amount of money that was saved by retroactively finding denials, which is really nasty. So people were incentivized to deny you care. They'd actually get bonuses for denying you care. Can you believe that crap? So that was happening. So that shows you how the insurance industry can be. But I'm not going to pretend that people don't roll insurance companies or that businesses don't roll insurance companies because they do. And like in that healthcare situation, it was going both ways. And I knew people who rolled them, who rolled insurance companies that like had no healthcare and then they had a major thing come up and they'd sign up and pretend there was no pre-existing condition. And I know people who got screwed in that, in the opposite manner. So sometimes you just got to look at the policy and figure out who is likely trying to roll the other here. Insurance companies don't exist to give you free money or to bail you out for things that aren't their responsibility. But they also need to do what they promise to do or what they seem to be promising to do. Okay, moving on here. Driverless cars. I don't like them. I mentioned it in the intro. But driverless cars, I've never been in one. I don't think I'd want to be in one. It feels weird. It feels weird, and I don't trust them. And maybe it's from my many years of programming computers and using computers and seeing how often they can malfunction and fail, even after operating normally for a while. Like, how often have you had it where you're using your iPhone, for example, and it just starts malfunctioning? And then you power it down and power it back on, and it works normally again. Well, you didn't do anything to fix it. It just, and you didn't do anything to cause it to malfunction. There can be many causes that would cause this to happen, but all you know is it's not working right and it's acting in a fashion that it's not supposed to and turning it off and back on fixes it. So if it's an iPhone, it's no big deal. You just turn it off and back on. If it's a computer, same thing. But if it's a car, (laughs) then it can be a pretty damn big deal if it crashes. So I don't think I would trust a car that's constantly having to make a lot of decisions because you don't realize you take it for granted. You get used to driving. You're taking for granted the fact that you are making a ton of decisions as you drive. Some decisions are pretty easy, like when you're just driving on the highway and there's uh, nothing in your way and no other cars around. You've got to keep the wheel straight and keep yourself on the road and keep your eyes on the road. That's pretty much it. But there's many other decisions that you do have to make when driving about uh, what to do when other cars are close to you, when cars approach from behind that are faster than you, um, when, when a car is in front of you that's slower, when a car seems to be driving a little, erra- a little erratically, or uh, when a turn is coming up, how, how long before the turn that you start to slow down and brake before turning. And... Uh, how much time you spend looking at the sidewalk to see if there's anybody about to start crossing the intersection. You know, how, much, how long do you take your eyes off the road to do that? Or how, how long do you stop and, and look around? How much looking around do you do? So there, there are endless decisions you're making when you're, you're driving. 
And uh, as I said, some are complex decisions, some are simple, but a lot of decisions, a lot of perceptions, and a lot of times there's kind of subjective decisions, which you as a human being can do effortlessly, but machines cannot do effortlessly. Machines, uh, they can calculate, they can calculate way better than you can, but they can't feel. They can't feel and they can't reason. So for that reason, uh, for driving, where there is some feel and human reasoning to the whole thing, I have my skepticism how well driverless cars can handle things. I'll I'll give you an example. Let's say at uh, two in the morning, right after all the bars close in LA, you're driving in the 405 freeway and there's a a drunk driver on the road kind of weaving back and forth. Well, you as a human being says, oh, it's 2 a.m., the bar's just closed, there's a lot of drunks on the road, this guy's acting drunk. You know what? I'm not going to pull up alongside of him. I'm, I'm going to go as far away from him as possible. Uh, I'll either try to get by him quickly all the way on the side, or I'll just kind of hang behind him because I, I don't even want to get like to his side and have him slam into me. So like, I can tell this guy is drunk, so I'm going to be very cautious around him. That's what you as a human being who knows what a drunk driver looks like and, and why they would be on the road at that time, will notice. What about a car? Will a car notice this? If, will a car notice that somebody ahead of you is kind of erratic and that they uh, maybe, maybe you better stay away from them? Like I, I don't know if they'll be able to reason this out. I don't know if the cars even are programmed to analyze this sort of thing. So these are the type of things which will start happening where there'll be accidents like that that a human would have avoided that the car won't, because the car won't understand what's going on as well as a human would have. And uh, I think we're going to have a lot of bad stories like that as these start to become more common. Now, we will have a decrease in accidents in other ways. For example, when driverless cars become more common, we will have a lot fewer drunk driving accidents. Can you imagine how nice it will be when drunks, who often will stagger to their car and just try to drive home and not get caught and not hit anything or anyone, but sometimes not do so and something very bad will happen. What if these drunks can go to the bar and get as smashed as they want and they can just go into their car and say, yeah, drive me home. And they're driving home and it'll drive them home and then they will safely arrive at home and they can stagger into their house and collapse on the bed. That would be a lot safer than that person getting behind the wheel. So that will bring those type of accidents down. People driving tired, same thing. It'll no longer be the choice between uh, stopping on the side of the road or getting a hotel room or or trying to make it home with how you feel. You can just uh, close your eyes and let the car do the driving the rest of the way. So these are ways that there will be accidents that are decreased. Also, maybe some people who aren't very good drivers, people who are getting frequent accidents, but say, hey, what can I do? I've got, to, I've got to drive. So, sucks I get in all these accidents, but what can I do? Well, now they'll have something they can do. Now they can have a car that drives them. So, th- there will be a lot of ways that accidents will be uh, decreased. Also, people who have suspended licenses that uh, now they'll still be able to be driven places in their own car without having to get someone else to drive. So, there's a lot of advantages these can potentially bring. But for someone like me, who isn't in these situations, someone like me who, aside from occasionally being tired, and I, I will actually stop, I will and actually have stopped on the side of the road to sleep if I'm too tired, 
I don't like doing it, but I, I've done it before. But aside from that, I don't ever drink, so I don't have that problem. And I don't have a problem getting into accidents. So, like, I feel more comfortable driving myself than a car driving me. Again, unless I'm really tired. So I don't really like that idea, at least for myself. If I was a big drinker and went to bars, I'd probably love it. I've talked to other people who aren't drunks to see what their perspective is. And some people have told me they love the idea. Some people have told me they hate driving. It's a burden. They don't enjoy it. They've always wished that if it would be lovely if, uh, like, for example, instead of a, an hour-long commute from work where they've got to keep their eyes on the road the entire time, if they could just sit in the passenger seat and uh, you know use their phone <laughs> and browse the web or, or play games on their phone or whatever for that hour, it'll pass by a lot faster than having to drive back and forth in traffic to work, to and from work every day. But I, I'm the guy who would not want that. In fact, I'd feel nervous <laughs> just, just sitting in a driverless car. I'd be waiting for it to fail in some way. I couldn't relax in such a car. As I said, I'd really only use it in an emergency where I am too tired to continue driving. So anyway, the reason I'm going into this whole speech about driverless cars is that, like it or not, they are the future. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, a few decades in, it'll become very uncommon to see people at the wheel at all. If most cars will become automated and it just becomes the way it is, that instead of you getting behind the wheel and driving somewhere, that your car drives you. Who knows? Maybe even at some point in the future, it will become illegal to drive your own car, except in emergency cases. Who knows? And you may say, oh, come on, that's crazy. Well, think about as people grow up, as kids are born into a world where there are so many driverless cars out there, and then they never learn to drive, and cars drive them. You know, They get a car, but their car drives them. They don't drive it. It may seem weird to them to drive at all. And as those who grew up driving and spent most of their adult life driving, like me, as we die off, and the people whose cars drove them from when they were 16, or even from when they were little children, it will seem very natural to have the car drive you. To these people, it will seem fine. It will seem normal. So that, that could be the eventual end point from this transition. And we're not going to have that right away. And for quite some time, we're going to have it where most of the cars on the road are cars with drivers. But we do have cars on the road now that are driverless cars. In most jurisdictions, these are illegal. In fact, maybe all jurisdictions, but I know at least most jurisdictions, these are illegal except for testing purposes. So companies are allowed to test a limited number of cars on real city streets. But other than that, you can't get one. So I don't believe, I, I think there's not a single jurisdiction in the US where you can buy one right now and have it drive you anywhere. But I know that for several years, driverless cars are on the road. There were or are a lot of them in Northern California. In fact, uh, Poker Fraud Alert listener Jstat posted a YouTube video at one point where 
he actually witnessed a driverless car that was owned by Google. It was on the 101 freeway and it was speeding. (laughs) Which is baffling. (laughs) Why would a driverless car speed? Like, what's the hurry? Was was the driverless car getting impatient? <laughs> Did someone program it to speed? It was really weird. You you would think it would go the exact speed that it's told to go, and it would never violate that because why would it? The machine does what you tell it to. Maybe it was a bug. I don't know. But he he showed his own speedometer driving the exact speed limit and the car going faster. I, I guess the only possibility is that his speedometer was off and he didn't realize it. But it was an interesting video. This was several years ago, by the way. But the reason I'm bringing this whole thing up is that Uber and Lyft have announced that they are going to have driverless cars operating in the year 2023. And in the meantime, they are testing these driverless cars in Las Vegas. So on the streets of Las Vegas right now, there are driverless cars. A company called Motional developed these driverless vehicles for the purpose of operating for Uber and Lyft, which of course are uh, apps where you can get rides. They're the competition for taxis. And they have been uh, testing these vehicles in Las Vegas. And they're going to be testing for uh, two to three years. I'm not sure when in 2023 they're going to be in operation, but in 2023, these will actually go into operation provided the tests are successful. Now, this will somewhat alleviate the problem with Uber and Lyft where you get drivers that either aren't good, meaning that they're dangerous drivers, or they're just kind of trashy, or they sexually harass the women. I mean, there, there's been a number of reasons that uh, one would not want an Uber or Lyft, especially if you're female and alone. So I've always advised females, by the way, like females who are by themselves, just not to take Uber and Lyft because you never know who you're going to get. And the last thing you want is to be alone in a car with just like a strange dude. I mean, Sure, I guess you could track him down if anything bad happens, but what if it's too late? What if, what if he uh, murders you? Like To be alone in a car with someone, if you're a woman, I, I think you have to trust them at least somewhat. And you can say, well, what about taxi drivers? Well, taxi drivers, they have to put substantial uh, time, effort, and expense into getting their medallion to be able to drive. So they're less likely to just on a whim decide to do something bad to a woman. I'm not saying it doesn't happen ever, but it's much less common where Uber and Lyft, you just got to sign up and you're there and you're a driver. So there's no vetting process or very, very, very light vetting process and really no work put into it. So the effort to get there is much less. So that's uh, why it's much more dangerous for women to go on Uber and Lyft alone. But even as a dude, you know, you... You could have a bad driver. You could just have some driver who's weird and says or asks you awkward things or someone that smells bad. There can be a lot of stuff going on there that you're not going to like. So if a vehicle picks you up, as long as you're okay with being driven by a driverless vehicle, there 
is an advantage in several ways. Now, here's a press release from February 22nd, 2021 from Motional, which is, the con- again, the company that is operating the vehicles. They said, earlier this month, which is February, Motional became one of the first companies in the world to operate driverless vehicles on public roads. Our inaugural testing took place in Las Vegas and consisted of multiple driverless vehicles safely navigating intersections, unprotected turns, and interactions with other road users, including pedestrians and cyclists. To an outsider, it was simply another car correctly following the rules of the road. But it took extraordinary innovation to engineer those ordinary miles. These miles were built on the bedrock of a million and a half more, uh, uh, on, uh, the bedrock of a million of a half more, I don't know what they mean by that, and decades of ingenuity, grit, and determination for some of the brightest minds in t- technology. Two years ago, we embarked on our road to driverless, which they put like a hashtag, road to driverless, not very catchy, and set off on a rigorous safety evaluation process. That process went far beyond our external assessment and took hundreds of emotional employees more than 100,000 hours to complete. Throughout this journey, our technology safely interacted with human-driven cars, other autonomous vehicles, pedestrians, cyclists, and other road actors. We navigated busy intersections, unprotected turns, and experienced a wide range of traffic and road conditions, and we safely tested edge cases on closed courses. We used foam props to test our vehicle against sudden unexpected actions from pedestrians, cyclists, and other vehicles. Okay, that's good. I mean, like they're, they're saying here that they set up situations in uh, private areas that they had for themselves where things suddenly happen and see how the vehicle reacts, but that... The obstacles they put in were like foam, so no one would get hurt. That's good, but again, like in the drunk driving case I mentioned, I don't think the vehicle is going to be able to tell that it's something they have to watch out for. It's one thing to react to a sudden motion by another vehicle. It's another thing to know the vehicle is likely to make sudden motions and stay away from it. That's where I think uh, machines will do poorly. We put our technology through its paces, and it passed with flying colors. We built a culture around safety because it's foundational to all we do. Yeah, sure. We have a sizable and skilled safety team, and we embed safety principles across all functions with purpose, precision, and rigor. Anyone at any level at any time can press our figurative red button to report a safety concern. I don't know what that means. (laughs) What red button? They say a figurative red button. How do you do it? Like anyone at any time at any level, where? In the company, outside the company? I don't know what they're talking about. While developing a driverless system that can safely navigate roads is a monumental undertaking, it's only part of the equation. The technology must have a clear, scalable path to reach passengers, and we're uniquely positioned to do exactly that. We are the sole driverless technology provider to have partnerships with two ride-sharing leaders, referring to Uber and Lyft. In 2023, we'll launch a scalable, fully driverless multi-market service, the largest agreement of its kind with a major ride-sharing network, and a quantum leap forward for an already successful partnership that's delivered more than 100,000 rides. So I'm not sure what they're talking about. Are they telling me that they already gave 100,000 rides to people in their vehicles? Yeah, I didn't think that's allowed at this point. That's kind of confusion. confusing. When that service launches, while groundbreaking, it will be extraordinarily ordinary. Decades of innovation, a million and a half miles of testing. Oh, that's the million and a half. They've been testing a million and a half miles. And rigorous safety checks and balances will give way to a ride that's remarkably unremarkable. 
Whenever that happens, we'll be on the road to saving millions of lives. We know it's possible, and we're not stopping until we get there. Isn't that inspirational? I wonder what's going to happen to the drivers on Uber and Lyft. Those people are going to be out of a job? Because I'll tell you something. Uber and Lyft have really changed how a lot of lower-end workers have made ends meet. There are a number of people who used to have kind of crappy, menial, low-paying jobs, yet had a functional driver's license and vehicle, who said, hey, you know what? Screw this. I don't want to work this shitty pseudo-minimum wage job, with which is uh, tedious and unfulfilling and degrading. I will be my own boss and work for Uber or Lyft. And then they sign up, and they notice that they are making as much money or more money than they were before in less time, and they don't have uh, the various unpleasant parts of the job that existed at their full-time 9-to-5 job. And they can choose their own hours, and they don't have a boss breathing down their neck, and uh, some of the time they're alone because they, you know, they're dr- driving between places to pick up people, so in the middle they can listen to music or relax, and it's just a totally different environment. And here they have a constant stream of people coming through that they can pick up and they can work as much or as little as they like. So they said, okay, well, this is much better. And I don't blame them. This is what I would do in that position as well. And I know personally some people who have gone that route and are very happy with it. There are even others who had better paying jobs and decided to go to this. Even people who surprised me that went to college and had a real professional career going. I'm not talking about one where they're pulling down 300K a month, but I'm saying people who were making decent money who decided that they're just going to quit and just drive for Uber and Lyft. And nowadays, also people driving for Instacart. That's the new thing that started last year because of the pandemic that ticked way up in business. Things like uh, Instacart and DoorDash and Postmates. So a lot of that going on too. So a lot of these people who sign up for these gig apps to drive in some way, they're either to drive people places or to deliver things. This wasn't possible before, and it has moved a lot of people out of jobs they didn't like that weren't paying all that well. And that's fine because some of these jobs are disappearing anyway to automation. But what's going to happen to these jobs when you don't need to hire human drivers anymore? When you can just have cars that uh, drive themselves and when large companies provide all the vehicles and take on all the maintenance and everything else with them. So where Uber and Lyft can eventually just cut all the contracts they have with all the actual drivers and have one contract with a big company that just provides them with the vehicles and takes care of the vehicles. And Uber just provides the app and the service and that cuts out all the workers. <laughs> it's going to knock out a lot of jobs. We've heard this argument for years. We've heard this fear-mongering for years. There's old uh, reports from the 1950s that automation in the 1950s was on the way to pretty much making almost everybody unemployed. Automation and computers, it's going to take over everything. 
and so many of the jobs are going to disappear and it's going to be mass unemployment. But what ends up happening is just everything shifts. People end up uh, in different careers because new careers develop where others disappear. Now, maybe eventually we'll get to the point where so much is automated and can kind of manage itself that there will be less and less need for human beings to work these jobs. And at that point, then it'll have to be addressed where you can't just tell everybody to starve. But we're we're still far off from that. And as I said, we've been dealing with this threat for uh, 100 years now that we're going to be automating ourselves out of an economy that has workers. But I will say in the short term for people driving for Uber and Lyft, uh, that little gravy train is about to derail in a few years, I think. So nothing lasts forever. The world is constantly changing. I don't know, I still feel weird. Like I wonder if this will knock taxis out of business too. Right now, taxis still can make a living because some people don't trust Uber and Lyft for the reasons I was saying. Some people just want to be picked up by someone who is uh, licensed and regulated by the government and who puts substantial uh, time and effort and money into getting where they are. And even I feel that way. So once it's just the car picking you up or you don't have to worry about the driver being irresponsible, is anyone anyone want a taxi or is everybody going to get Uber and Lyft? Because if I had to decide between a taxi and a driverless vehicle and the driverless vehicle was cheaper, I would go with the driverless vehicle. Like I would not normally want a driverless vehicle driving me around, but I wouldn't be so scared of it to where I would never get in one. I would just prefer to drive when I could, meaning normal driving I would do. And occasionally if a driverless vehicle needed to drive me, I'd be fine with that. So I wonder if that's going to completely decimate all humans working in that industry, at least as drivers. But yeah, Las Vegas is where it's being tested. I I don't know if it's being tested on the strip. It's possible that they agreed with the city of Las Vegas that they're not going to put this on the strip. So they won't have the bad press of if one of these things like hits a tourist, that it doesn't scare people away from coming to Vegas. It's a very, very different story if one of these vehicles hit a local than if it hit a tourist. So if some guy came from uh, Indiana to gamble and while trying to cross the street to go between casinos gets hit by a driverless car, that's going to be really, really bad press for Vegas. Whereas if it's just a local there, it's not going to be covered outside of Vegas. We'll see where this goes, but it's definitely going to happen. My girlfriend has told me that She's one of the people, and she's never been anyone who's uh, driven drunk or likes to go to bars or anything like that. She she will drink sometimes, but not all that often. I just don't drink at all. So it's not about alcohol consumption, but she just would prefer to have one of those things drive her. She would just prefer to relax and do her own thing and not worry about driving, where I actually enjoy the driving experience. And I trust myself more than I would trust those vehicles. I always like to say, I want to control machines. I don't want machines controlling me. 
I say that about everything. That's why I have a jailbroken iPhone. I do not like telling having machines tell me what I can and can't do. I don't like machines operating uh, in a way to where I can't direct them. So that's along those same lines. I kind of just like having control. Like not control of other people, but control of things that affect me. Okay, so let's talk about our final non-coronavirus topic, and that would be the current state of legalized online poker. I do this every so often just to give you an update on what's going on. Remember that online poker had an uptick in activity because of COVID, because fewer people were going to play live. In fact, for a while, you couldn't play live at all. Now you can play live some, but it kind of sucks, and you can't play full tables in a lot of places, and you have to wear masks, and uh, the whole thing's very unpleasant. Then a lot of people are just afraid to play because of COVID, including me. So online, which I was playing anyway, but some people started online or returned to online that had not been online. And that gave somewhat of a boost to the legalized online poker sites. It definitely gave a boost to the illegal online poker sites, but even to the legalized ones, they, they got a boost that they didn't have before. However, it seemed like they still weren't capitalizing on it. it. They increased in traffic, but not as much as they should have, and they just didn't jump on it. It just seems like they, they're always making the wrong moves. It just seems like they're never doing it right. So I decided to take a look at how they are doing today, about a year after the shutdowns began. And we'll take a look at the five states that currently have legalized and regulated online poker. Those five states are Nevada, Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Now, in Nevada, they only have WSOP.com, but it does share a player pool with WSOP.com in New Jersey and Delaware. And same story with Delaware. New Jersey, of course, also has WSOP.com and it shares that player pool. But in addition, they have two other sites that are not sharing a player pool, Poker Stars New Jersey and Party Poker New Jersey. Pennsylvania has only Poker Stars Pennsylvania. That's it. And Michigan, which also is currently not sharing its player pool, has two sites, Poker Stars Michigan and BetMGM Michigan. So let's take a look at how they're doing. Now, these markets are all fairly similar in size because of these combined pools. So the Michigan market is 10 million. That's how many people are in Michigan. Pennsylvania has about 13 million people. And then New Jersey, Nevada, and Delaware combined have uh, 13 million. And New Jersey itself is the majority of that with 9 million. So there is no site operating on this list that has a smaller player pool than 9 million, which is a lot smaller than you think, because that, that doesn't mean 9 million players. It means 9 million population. So first you have to eliminate those under 21, and then a lot of the people over 21, in fact, most of them have no interest in playing online poker. So it's not like there's the potential to have 9 million people. It's much, much, much smaller than that. But those are the populations we're dealing with. That's each market that I'm going to list to you here ranges between 9 million at the lowest for the New Jersey only sites 
to 13 million at the highest, which is those combined sites and PokerStars PA. So here's how we go. Here we go. The one that's most popular is actually one with only a 10 million population pool. And that is PokerStars Michigan, the newest one, or the second newest one. They have an average of 425 players and a peak of a little more than 1,000 players. So they have around 1,000 at the peak. But if you average throughout the day between the most popular times and the least popular times and times in the middle, you have 425. That's in cash games. I'm not counting tournaments. So that's not a big pool. This is the most popular of all the sites that are legalized and regulated. Poker Stars Michigan. 425 cash players on average, 1,000 at the most. That's pretty small. Poker Stars Pennsylvania is a little behind that. They're averaging 350. And they have 879 as the peak, according to PokerScout.com. But they have a bigger market with 13 million. So it's interesting that this uh, Poker Stars Michigan is doing them better than Poker Stars PA, which is 30% uh, more people that could potentially play there. WSUP.com, which is the combination of Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware, 13 million people total. They're a fail site. They are averaging 220 people online for cash games with a peak of 416, less than half the peak of PokerStars Michigan. That is a tremendous fail. And we've heard Brandon talk about it. Brandon has been very frustrated because he wants to play online poker. And then he opens up WSB.com and it's a fail site and has nothing he wants to play. And he is uh, a PLO and mixed game player. He doesn't really like No Limit Hold'em. I don't even think he plays No Limit Hold'em at all. He knows how to play, but he doesn't like it and doesn't play it. So he's not interested in No Limit Hold'em games anyway, which already lowers the number of games he's going to have available to him because it's got to be the limits of what he wants and the type of game. So PLO is the second most popular game at the moment. But anyway, he was complaining that WSB.com is just a huge fail. And there it is. I mean, with the three states combined, there's still only 220 players average across all limits. Party Poker New Jersey is a huge failure. 85 players on average with a peak of 180. (laughs) The best they're doing all day is 180 on Party Poker New Jersey. I'm sure they're real happy with their investment there. And that's with a player pool of 9 million people. Poker Stars New Jersey, very similar. Average of 80 players, so that's a little bit less, but then their peak is more of 284. So they seem to be more uh, varied throughout the day where they have a better peak, but then on average, they actually have fewer people. So it kind of looks like they have more players during prime hours than it's like a ghost town after that. That's what those numbers would suggest to me. But even when they have the most, 284 is very few. Then bringing up the rear... Probably because it's newest, but this is not a good start for it. Uh, Bet MGM right now in Michigan, which oddly enough, uh, PokerStars Michigan is doing the best. The other Michigan site is currently doing the worst and may never catch PokerStars Michigan. Uh, Bet MGM is averaging 32 cash players on at once. <laughs> with an average of 129 players. They did just open, but that's pretty bad. So what does this say? 
Uh, this says that whatever gains they got from the pandemic have pretty much faded. That people may have guided Jones for online poker when they couldn't go to the poker room, went on there, didn't enjoy it, and quit. And that was that, and then people aren't coming back. So they're pretty much returning close to their pre-pandemic levels. I think the WSMP.com is doing a little bit better, but I remember numbers sort of similar to this in 2019. So they've really gone nowhere overall. They could have done much better with marketing, and I've had my complaints about them. They just they, they seem to blow everything. I don't even understand who's in charge there. Uh, supposedly, it's that Danielle Burreal girl, but who even knows? And she doesn't make herself visible. And, you know, it, it's one thing to work behind the scenes in a certain department. It's another thing to be the director of the whole thing. And while Bill Reaney was passive-aggressive and kind of a jerk... This Danielle chick, she seems like she's probably nice, but she's definitely not like a leader type, in my opinion, from what I've seen of her. And I'm still not seeing good leadership at WSB.com. She's a different type of person than the previous leader, but bottom line is that uh, we're just not seeing a lot of leadership here. The fact that she didn't even want to present herself as a leader is not a good sign. And look, not everybody wants to be the public face of a site. Not everybody wants to be the public leader and deal with all the criticism. I understand that. But if you don't want it, don't take the job. (laughs) Like, you know, if I were there, I I would do it. I wouldn't mind putting myself out as the public face. And I'd be a visible leader of the whole thing. And I wouldn't hide from people and block people on Twitter and get insulted if people didn't like the way things were going. But that's where we were. And now we're kind of in a different spot that isn't a whole lot better. So big fail over there. But really, uh, there's only so much these sites can do given the population limitations and the amount of interest there is in online poker because we're just not in the poker boom anymore. So there's only limited interest in online poker. And so what you just need are sheer numbers of people that can potentially play that will just put more people in seats because there's more people that uh, a certain percentage is going to want to play, so the bigger the pool, the more people will play. Also, action causes action. So you have somebody that may want to play, they open it up and their desired limit is not going, or there's one person sitting there alone, you don't want to just go sit play heads up with them, so you close the software, and eventually after seeing that a few times, you never open it again. So an active site, that by itself, will create more action. It's kind of a snowball effect. So... What they really need is a very large population feeding into it, and then you might start to get some big numbers. So right now, not a single market has more than 13 million people, and that's not going to cut it. The U.S. population is about 330 million. So 13 million is a very small percentage of 330, if you think about it. It's like 4%. So 96% of of the country cannot play on each of these sites, 96% or more. So you see why they fail sites. So what do we need? We really need a big state and preferably more than one big state to enter the legalized online poker market and then combine player pools with other big states and with existing sites that are there right now. California has 40 million people. Texas has 29 million people. Florida 
has 21 and a half million people. New York has 20 million people. These four states combined make up one third of the U.S. population, 110 million. So if you got these four states on board, you'd already have a third of the country that currently can't play legalized online poker that would be able to play. Right now, 36 million people in the U.S. can play legalized online poker, but not together. 13 million is the most in any market. So it's not even like it's a pool of 36 million. It's a pool of 13 million that's chopped up from 36 million. But what if you put all 36 million together, these four states that cur- the five states that currently offer online poker, Nevada, Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Michigan, put them all together to make 36 million. Then you add them to California, which would then make 76 million. Then you add New York, make it 96 million. Just that alone, that'd be a nice pool. 96 million people, that, that could produce some active sites. You add Texas and Florida, which is another uh, 50 million or so. That puts you at like 146 million. You've got almost half the population. Not quite, but getting close to half the U.S. population in those uh, states alone. If you just had the five existing states and the four big states, you'd have 146.5 million people out of like 330. So it's not quite half, but it's getting close. And then you can add more and more. So that could really create some action The problem is it's not going to happen on its own because something has universally been seen and that is that online poker just is not a big money maker. That a big site like PokerStars that spanned globally and to all 50 states when it was operating illegally, that made a lot of money from the U.S. market. But ones that are state by state, it's a different story. Because as I said, action causes action. And we're not in a poker boom anymore. So the big money now is in sports betting. And casinos, you know, online casino games can also bring in money. Poker is a distant third. So for online poker to be added to these other jurisdictions, for these other jurisdictions to be even interested in adding it, because the jurisdictions are not going to want to add online poker unless it's something in it for them. And that's going to be tax revenue. So if the tax revenue is going to be tiny, then California is not going to want to hassle with it. Texas is not going to want to hassle with it. So in order for the states to be enticed to add online poker, it would have to be part of other online gambling, which fortunately, there is a big sports betting revolution going on right now where sports betting is rapidly expanding in the country. And in some cases, online poker rides along with it. That is what happened in Michigan. That's the only reason online poker is legal in Michigan is because sports betting is legal in Michigan, where it was not before. So there's a lot of money still to be made in the sports betting world and will continue. People love sports betting. And this was really a market which was long inhabited by shady offshore sites and sleazy bookies. And then finally, the U.S. said, wait a minute, (laughs) this should be going to licensed and regulated operators and should be taxed. We're losing a lot of money offshore and to uh, sleazy bookies. 
So, and then once you do that, then it can start being, you can start having all these partnerships with the sports leagues and and they can get more interest in their product too through the betting and uh, the possibilities are endless. And that's what's all happening now. So the sports betting is rapidly growing. That is a, an emerging industry right now, legalized sports betting. And for the moment, poker has been riding along with it, or at least they've been trying to, and it has been in some places. So all poker has to do is show it can turn a profit. It doesn't have to turn a huge profit anymore. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to justify existing on its own to change gambling laws. It just has to show that it can ride along and be worth bringing along. And that's very different than before. Remember the Poker Players Alliance, which basically failed at their mission in the 2000s, their whole thing was, oh, well, poker isn't gambling. Poker is a game of skill, so it should be carved out and made legal. And that wasn't going over well. I mean, it's it's sort of true, but that message wasn't going over well. It was a bad message. It was a bad justification for legalizing online poker. So it, it went nowhere. Now, in their defense, it's possible that no argument would go anywhere at that point. But at the time, it was sold that online poker itself is going to be worth being made legal on the state level and on the federal level. And that's why Nevada legalized it, believing it was going to bring in all kinds of revenue. That's why New Jersey legalized it. New Jersey was smart enough to also legalize uh, casino games at the time. They couldn't legalize sports betting yet because that was against the law federally everywhere except for Nevada. But once that got rolled back, then they added sports as well. But there's still a long way to go. Still a lot of jurisdictions which are considering sports betting legislation, including these bigger states. And all online poker has to show is, hey, just add us along with the whole thing. And we'll make you a profit. We'll make more profit. So hopefully that will be the way things go. And if things go that way, we should see a lot of better games. The reason we will see a lot of better games, despite the downturn in interest in poker, will be the sports betting and poker connection. Most people who bet sports also have some kind of peripheral interest in poker. Not all, but most of them do. And most of them suck at poker. <laughs> so you want the sports bettors in your poker games. And you've probably seen this before. You've probably seen it before where uh, people who win money at the sports book, even either online or live, that go bring it over to the poker table, tend to be lousy poker players, and you're very happy to have their money there. Some of the biggest fish I have played with live have been ones that I have seen win uh, at sports, and go cash out at the sports at the sports book and then walk the money back over to the poker table and buy in for more. So whenever I hear a sports bettor's coming to the table, I'm very happy. I used to play on a lot of sites that were associated with sports books, online poker sites, not legalized ones, but I played on online poker sites associated with sports books. I used to like to do that because same thing. The sports bettors would win sports and bring the money over to the poker table and they lose it to me and to other pros. So you want the sports bettors at your table. Basically, when you're playing poker, you want anyone coming to the table who has won money anywhere else but your type of game. 
So you're happy if you're a uh, limit player. You're happy to have a no limit player who just won a bunch of money in no limit at your table, or vice versa. If you're a no limit player, you're happy to have a a limit guy come to your table who isn't really a no limit player. Even sometimes uh, mixed game winners coming into a single limit game, even though they're both limit, sometimes they won't be able to compete as well with the specialists in that one game. I've seen that at Limit Hold'em, where some good mixed players just aren't that great at Limit Hold'em. They're good enough at all the games to where they're a decent mixed player, but at Limit Hold'em against people who just play Limit Hold'em, they're not that good. So, in general, I welcome anybody at my poker table that doesn't play that form of game very often. Whether it's uh, that they just don't play poker that much and mainly bet sports, or that they play a different form of poker and come to my table. I'm always happy in World Series of Poker Limit Hold'em events when I see No Limit Hold'em specialists sit down. I see these No Limit Hold'em tournament studs sit at my table and go, good, (laughs) I want this guy here. I don't want him here during a No Limit event, but I want him here for this event. But then when I see one of the uh, Limit Hold'em Minnesota All-Stars sit down, then I'm not very happy. So you should want poker and sports books associated anyway, not just to bring the legalization, but also to bring fish into the game. Because you need fish in the game, you need money in the game. And you don't even need winning sports bettors. You just need temporarily winning sports bettors. And almost every sports better will go through some hot streaks. I've known some big-time losing sports bettors that have gone on some very nice streaks and have won some very large parlays at times. So for the moment, they they have cash. It doesn't last very long, and they will lose it back to the sports book. But it's kind of nice if, if you could uh, get there in between before they lose it to the sports book and they lose it to you, because they're going to lose it somewhere. The positive expectation sports gamblers, believe it or not, tend to be not bad at poker. They tend to either be decent or they just don't play. Like they realize that they're just not that good at poker and they don't bother to come to the table. Or they they put the effort to learn how to be at least decent at the game. The reason for that is because winning in sports is not easy. So you, you have to put a lot of effort into becoming a positive expectation sports better. And if you're willing to put that type of effort into becoming a positive expectation sports better, then usually you're also willing to put the effort into not being efficient poker. Not always, but sometimes. But that's not who you're looking for. You're looking for just the recreational sports better who fired on some game and happened to win, or maybe even fired in some game and lost and trying to get it back in poker. And then they just compound the losses by getting beaten poker as well. So, It's possible in the 2020s that the future of online poker will be looking up. Maybe 10 years from now, there will be these mega sites that have everything. That have legalized sports betting, legalized casino betting, and legalized poker. And that span over many states and cover a large portion of the U.S. population. And that there's a lot of poker games going. A lot of good games going. And that will be very nice. Be almost like it used to be. I don't think it'll ever be like it used to be because 
there just isn't the interest in poker there was at one point. But we can have a lesser version of it. That would be nice. So that's on the horizon, but we're not all that near it yet. And the fail sites that exist right now are really not doing very much, as you can hear by the numbers I gave you. We got some text here at 775-372-8355. From the 860, kids will first have sex in moving cars instead of parked ones. <laughs> That's true. I wonder who will be the first person to have sex in a moving driverless car. Hmm. I wonder if we're going to have a problem with that, people doing that. Because there's no driver to worry about seeing you. There's other vehicles, but people may not care about that. Hmm. Didn't think of that. I'm glad we have at least one pervert listening to the show who thought of that for me. Then, from the 480, about Uber and Lyft, he said, Incorrect. Uber and Lyft do national criminal background checks every year on drivers as well as driving record inquiries. Yeah, I know, but uh, a lot of scumbags end up uh, working for them anyway. I, I don't know how stringent these checks are or what standards they hold these people to. And then he says, at least they're supposed to. Uber was so slow, I was unable to drive for three weeks. When I went to start driving again to get my background check run again, it lapsed while I had stopped driving last year for a while. Okay, so I guess this guy drives for Uber sometimes. And then... From the 805, all risk still says direct physical loss to physical property, meaning property damage. There's no direct physical loss to trigger, trigger coverage. That's in reference to the Caesars topic about the suing the insurance companies. Yeah, I noticed that too about the physical loss. And I wasn't understanding how COVID was physical loss because there was ne- nothing actually destroyed unless you count the... Uh, gang element that came to town and was uh, destroying things on the strip because they lowered the prices of the room so much. (laughs) But uh, other than that, uh, nothing was destroyed because of COVID. So, okay, let's move to our COVID topics, by the way. So all states are not created equal as far as the speed of disseminating the vaccines. And I'm unfortunately in a state that has been probably the worst as far as getting the vaccine out. California has been a disaster. Why haven't you heard about this in the media? Well, come on. Do do I have to even tell you? (laughs) If you look at... uh, which side of the political aisle controls the media and then tell me if they are going to criticize the California government, you'll have your answer. But rather than just take my word for it, go look it up yourself. I always encourage people to do that, by the way. I I don't just like people believing me and thinking that I'm just stating something that may or may not be true. I always encourage you to go look up what I have to say. But if you go look up who can get the vaccine in the various states, you'll see that some states already have it open to everybody. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody who is 16 and older can go get the vaccine in certain states. For example, Arizona. They just opened up the vaccination eligibility 
to everybody 16 and over. Not just people who have conditions or who work certain jobs. Any person in Arizona who's 16 or older can now get the vaccine. And there are other states like this as well. It's not just Arizona. The one that's the worst is California. At least that's the one I think is the worst. California still is only vaccinating the general population of 65 and over. That if you're under 65, you have to be in some category that qualifies, such as certain medical conditions, certain high-risk settings, holding certain jobs, whatever. But uh, they're still stuck on the 65-plus phase, which is crazy given that next door in Arizona, 16-year-olds can get it. And here in California, a normal 64-year-old who doesn't meet the other eligibility requirements, these special categories, still cannot get vaccinated. Isn't that crazy? And and 64 is fairly high risk. So a 64-year-old cannot get it in California. Next door in Arizona, a 16-year-old can. California apparently has been botching this badly I've read that one-third of the vaccines that were provided to the state have been disseminated. That two-thirds are still sitting around. Why, I don't know, but something has gone wrong. Something has not been done right if they've only used one-third of the vaccinations, of the vaccines, and uh, if they're way behind in the categories that they are vaccinating at the moment. Now, it's understandable that larger states may have a harder time uh, vaccinating everybody as fast. So I understand that California has a much bigger population than Arizona does. I know that Alaska, I, I believe, was the first state to be open to everybody to get the uh, vaccine. Yeah, they were. On March 9th was the first state that they were that was allowing it uh, for everybody. But Alaska also has the smallest population. Actually, either of them are Wyoming, but it's it's one of the smallest populations. It's one of the two smallest populations. So fine. I'm not saying California needs to meet Alaska's uh, results because they're two very different types of states. But California is behind everybody else. They're blowing it badly. So in fact, I'm going to go quickly go through all 50 states. Alaska, as I mentioned, renewed alphabetically. Alaska, as I mentioned, everybody, and that's been since March 9th. Arizona, since March 24th, everybody. Arkansas, they're actually uh, screwing up too, I guess. I guess they're still stuck in the same uh, situation of California of only 65 plus with younger people only in special categories. Colorado, 50 plus. Connecticut, 45 plus. Delaware, 50 plus. And let me just stop here. You noticing all these 50 pluses and 45 pluses? That's doing it correctly. You know what's not doing it correctly? Is when you do not have a 50 plus, 45 plus, or 40 plus category. And California does not. California has 55 plus, 65 plus, 75 plus, and that's it. Under 55 is general. So if you're 54 in California, you have the same priority as a 16-year-old. Isn't that dumb? But that's the way they're doing it. That's another idiotic thing in California, that uh, middle-aged people are not uh, prioritized over young people. 
which is a huge mistake. You see other states, <laughs> they're, they're making a 50 and older, 45 and older at the current phase. That's right. That's, they should be doing it that way because that's who is more at risk. The oldest people are most at risk. The people middle-aged are in the middle, and the people who are younger are least risk. Okay, so Delaware, 50 plus. Florida, high population state, third most population in the country, 50 plus. Pretty good. Georgia, uh, everybody, everybody as of March 25th, they just did that. Good job, Georgia. Idaho, 45 plus. Illinois, they are not doing very well. Same as California, currently 65 plus with the exceptions, just like California has. So they're tied for the worst. Indiana, 40 plus. Very good. Iowa, another one that's not uh, handling it well, 65 plus still. Kansas, 65 plus. So it's interesting. Some of these are red states, too. It's not even just a red and a blue thing. Some of these are just not doing it well. Kentucky, 60 plus. That's not very good, but not as bad as as, uh, the ones at the bottom. Uh, Louisiana, 65 plus. They're also uh, not particularly good. Maine, 50 plus. Okay. Maryland, 60 plus. Massachusetts, 60 plus. Michigan, 50 plus. That's interesting. Michigan has blown COVID pretty badly. They were they all they made the same nursing home mistake as Cuomo did. Just for whatever reason, they're not getting the publicity that uh, New York is about this. Probably because Cuomo is more of an outright jerk than Gretchen Whitmer is. They also had a, an overly restrictive lockdown policy, and uh, the governor's husband uh, broke the lockdown policy and tried to get special favors done for him. So uh, they really handled it pretty poorly in Michigan, but at least vaccination-wise, they are doing pretty well. 50-plus is currently the category there. Minnesota, 50-plus. Mississippi, they were the second state to make everybody eligible. So um, it's on March 16th. They did this a week after Alaska, so they've done a great job. Um, Missouri... um, I'm confused what Missouri is. Um, Is it really true that they're actually the worst? They may not be doing it by age. It says high-risk individual. I'm not sure about Missouri. Whatever it is, it's not very good. It's it's got a confusing thing here. Uh, Montana, 60-plus. Nebraska, 50-plus. Nevada. Nevada's weird. So Nevada is listed as 65-plus, like all the worst ones, but... Apparently, they have a very, very uh, broad list of exceptions to where a ton of people I know in Vegas have gotten vaccinated, like a ton, who are not 65. They say certain pre-existing medical conditions, so I, I think it's like a very, very, very broad list of that. And that's how some people are getting around it. But still, it's pretty messed up. They should... It's, uh, and we'll get to that in a second about the, the broad list of, of exceptions. And that's been some of the problem in California and some of these other states as well. New Hampshire, 50 plus. New Jersey, another bad one with 65 plus. New Mexico, 60 plus. New York, 50 plus. I guess one of the few things Cuomo's done right. North Carolina, 65 plus. North Dakota, 65 plus. Uh, Ohio, everybody. Very good over there. Oklahoma, 65 plus. Oregon, 65 plus. There's more 65 plus here. I thought California, before I went through this whole list, I thought California was more unique here. So 
I won't apologize to Newsom, but I'll say that there's other governors who are equally as bad at this. <laughs> Pennsylvania, 65 plus. Rhode Island, 60 plus. South Dakota, 65 plus. Tennessee, 55 plus. Texas, 50 plus. Good job to them. They're a big state. They are the second biggest state. Uh, Utah, everybody, as of March 24th. Great job. Ver- Vermont, six, uh, 60 plus. Virginia, 65 plus. Washington, this is Washington State, 65 plus. Um, but then also uh, 50 plus if you have anybody in your household who is, uh, I don't know, if it says multi-generational household. I don't know if that includes people younger than you. I think what they mean is people older than, like people who are 50 who have somebody uh, that lives with them that's over 65, but they have that exception in there. West Virginia, everybody starting March 22nd. Wisconsin, 65 plus. Wyoming, 50 plus. I don't have D.C. down here. They're not listed. So you'll see that some states are doing this well, some are not. So why, why such a difference? Why are some states, like everybody right now, and, and some of them are uh, still 65 plus? And I have to imagine this is inefficiency. I have to imagine, like in California, where two-thirds of the vaccines are just stuck and they're just not being distributed for I have I don't I don't know the reason behind that, but that's that's happening. I read about it. I have to imagine this is happening in other states. Now, some of the reason for this, in addition to just incompetence and bureaucracy and typical government inefficiency, some of the reason for this comes from well meaning but uh, incorrectly implemented exception groups. I've always said, if you're going to make an exception, if you're going to make exception by policy, that is, then you need to either have it be very restrictive and be very, very clearly stated and enforced or not have the restriction at all. I always like to cite the whole riverboat gambling thing, which morphed originally from boats offshore that weren't even on the river to boats on the river to boats that were, uh, or, or to boats moving on a river, to boats that would at least be on the river parked, to things that weren't even boats that were just next to the river, to structures that were near the river but not next to it, to structures that were within a few miles of the river. And then, you know, when do you say, why are we even bothering with the whole water thing now? <laughs> because it's, it's totally defeated the purpose. So that's what happens when you make exceptions is that uh, people find ways to make the exception apply to them and stretch it. After, after it gets stretched and stretched and stretched, then all of a sudden what it's become is not what it was supposed to look like in the first place. And where the people who are following the rule to the letter are the ones who get screwed, and the ones who stretch it are the ones who uh, get to dodge the rules. So that's happening very much with the vaccine. The smartest way to have done the vaccine would have been to vaccinate healthcare workers who directly deal with people who have COVID and only them, nobody else, and then do the rest by age. So start with the healthcare workers who directly deal with those who have COVID and the nursing homes, and then go from there. Then go to 70, from 75 plus to 65 plus to 55 plus to 45 plus to 35 plus, and then everybody. Something like that. That would be the smartest way. 
And you don't try to overcomplicate it. You don't try to start inserting, quote, essential workers, because that gets abused. You don't start to introduce racial equity into it, because that never works out the way you intend for it to work out. You don't try to complicate the distribution method. You have a very clear pattern that the older you are, the more you are at risk from bad complications of COVID. And the younger you are, the safer you are from it. It's very, very clear. It's a straight line up. So it should be very simple to decide who gets priority. Now, the good thing about using age as priority is unless you have a fake ID, age is very absolute. You're either that age or you're not. For example, in a 50 plus group, I would not qualify. I'd be close. I could make the argument like, why does it matter if I'm 49 or 50? But the bottom line is I'm 49. And if the group were to start at 50, then tough luck on me. I've got to wait till they go down to the, uh, the 40s. So age is something that people can't get exceptions for. You're either that age or you're not. And very specific jobs like healthcare worker directly working with those who have COVID. That is something that can be defined pretty well. And you could write it into the law where it's very, very well defined. You have to present such and such proof that uh, you have this and require all places distributing the vaccine to stringently check on all these things. Now, the reason to do it this way is because it actually does move through the priority groups faster. The problem going on in California is that there are so many people who are getting the vaccine that really shouldn't be getting it. When I say shouldn't, I mean both those who are cheating the system and those who are actually going by what the system actually is who qualify it for for stupid reasons. So they're not doing anything wrong, but to be honest, they really shouldn't be priority if you think about it. So the more people who are getting it who really shouldn't be priority, the more spaces they take up from those who should have some kind of priority. So the reason California hasn't been able to move yet to the 55 plus group is because there's so many people taking up appointments who are not 65 plus and are in one of these exception groups that are way too broad that allow way too many people to get the vaccine, either because it's too broad and too broad and allows it or it's too broad and it becomes impossible to verify whether people are telling the truth or not. And uh, this causes the problem to where the priority groups move very slowly. So the smartest way to do it is to just uh, do it by very, very, do it by importance. Just, Just figure out by absolute importance of who should get it and then do it in that way. And stop trying to capture everyone that you think might deserve it a little bit earlier than others. And the funny thing is you take a state like California that tried all these different things to make all these different exceptions of when you qualify before you're the age group that's come up, that they neglected to even make age groups below 55, which, as you see, most states have age groups below 55, like 45 and 40. California doesn't have that. So to have to do, put all that effort into making all these different exceptions of why you can get the vaccine early, and then at the end to have a general group where 54-year-olds are competing with 16-year-olds is insanity. And that's the way they're doing it. Very dumb. And keep in mind, this is a state which 
has about uh, 12% of the entire nation's population. So almost one in eight people in the U.S. live in California. That's affecting a ton of people. So if Alaska does it well, great, but that doesn't affect that many Americans because Alaska has such a tiny population. So as we've seen, we have big states like Texas that are doing well with this. Here you have Texas that is uh, distributing the vaccine to people who are 50 plus and have been doing so for quite some time. And by the way, by the way, on March 29th, everybody in Texas will be eligible for a vaccine. So right now it's 50 plus, but then they're jumping right to everybody. They're doing so well that on March 29th, everybody can get it. Now that is efficiency. That is a great job. And they can't even say, well, you know, that's a small population. That's the second biggest population in the country. So here's what I mean by priority groups that shouldn't exist. Healthcare workers. Now, before you panic and say, whoa, 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 come on. Healthcare workers, they're working with people with COVID. No, I said people who have, who work with COVID patients should get it first, but the problem is healthcare workers is super broad. So in California, anyone even associated with healthcare can get it early. I know somebody who got the vaccine early because he provides equipment to healthcare and not essential equipment for COVID. Just someone who sells equipment to healthcare, uh, he is considered a healthcare worker and he got the vaccine early. Why? I mean, uh, it's not like he's got the only company that does it. So it's not even like if he were to die that uh, wouldn't be able to get equipment. I mean, he just happens to have a company that sells equipment to uh, to doctors. And he's considered a healthcare worker. Even worse than someone like him, uh, billing administrators who work in healthcare qualify for it. So people who process uh, healthcare billing, as long as they're a healthcare employee, they they got to get it very early. People who work at vet's office, not veterans, but veterinarians, they got it early. I'm not just talking about the vets themselves. The the any worker at a vet's office gets it early. Why? <laughs> why why should they get priority? What does this have to do with COVID at all? And then there's the whole essential workers, which includes grocery store workers, and uh, that was only done for uh, racial equity reasons because it's perceived that uh, more people who are minorities work in those type of jobs, and this way it gives more minorities access to COVID early, and this makes up for previous wrongs against them in in healthcare in previous years. I mean, it's so stupid. This is the wrong time to start looking to, to... make up for past wrongs it should be just distributed in the manner to where it's going to save the most lives so some states are doing this right and some are doing wrong and you can see how come texas is about to be open to all adults on march 29th and for quite some time has been 50 and over and california is still stuck on 65 and over when they're both big states one has 40 million, one has 29 million. It's because one has done it efficiently and one has screwed it up. It's not that Texas didn't have exceptions 
But it's not even all about the exceptions. It's all about the, the distribution. I mean, why is California not distributed such a large percentage of the vaccines? There's something wrong. So there's a lot of things they can do behind the scenes to make sure this all runs smoothly. And some governments are better than others. There's so many different exceptions people have utilized to get the vaccine early. There's another problem, and that is health conditions. So a lot of these uh, vaccine distribution places have an exception by state law to where if you have certain health conditions that you get it earlier than others. The problem is how do you verify this? And the answer is you can't because it violates privacy laws. So it's this weird situation where they're not allowed to make you verify that you have the health condition you claim to have, but that's who's eligible. So it becomes the honor system. And you're told that you have to certify that you qualify, but that, that has no teeth to it. So people who claim to have conditions they don't have, uh, nothing's ever going to happen to them. This is never going to be investigated. Even if it is, it's just going to be for like data purposes. They're never going to prosecute anybody. So that's a mistake. You should never have an exception that people can claim that there's no way to verify it. And that's why it's important to have easily verifiable priority groups. Like age is the best one, but even like very specific jobs where you can show proof of employment. That becomes a lot tougher to fake and you're going to have a lot less incidence of it. But the more and more broad you make it, then the easier it is for people to outright cheat or stretch it a little bit or whatever it might be. And if there's no proof that can be provided by law and you have to just take people's word for it, then, then why even have this? Then why, why not just open up to everybody? And that's the problem. You never want to penalize those who are trying to do the right thing by following the rules. If you incentivize people to skirt the rules, then you're penalizing those who follow the rules. Now, you'll always have people who try to break the rules, but if you make it super easy for everybody to break the rules, which has been the case here, a combination of people breaking the rules and people who don't even need to break the rules because they qualify for a ridiculous reason. If you're going to have that type of situation, like why even have these priority groups at all? Like just in that case, just vaccinate the very, very most vulnerable people and open up to everybody. Now, if you qualify, you qualify. I don't begrudge anybody who qualifies for a stupid reason that gets it early. If you qualify, then great. Then go do it. You may not deserve it, but if you qualify, you qualify. Kind of like if, uh, let's say, the government passes a, uh, a tax cut that is kind of defies common sense, and then they send you a refund for it. Well, you're not going to send the money back to the government and say, hey, I don't deserve this. You, it, it, it's passed into law, so whether it's fair or not, the money's coming to you, and that's that. And the same thing here. If, if they pass a law that makes you part of a group that's early, then if you can get it early, then go get it early. And I understand that. But it's on the government to make sure this is done in a sensible and fair fashion 
and to where they minimize the abuse and also minimize the ascension into high priority groups where it doesn't belong. It's an interesting situation because this all spawned from trying to take care of too many people at once. When I say take care, I mean try to take care of the concerns of too many at once. So you have the essential worker saying, oh, what about us? Come on, we work all day in the grocery stores and customer-facing positions. And and how come, uh, how come we don't get it earlier because we have so much exposure? Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. And you know what? Most of you, we have a lot more minorities working in these positions anyway, so it'll help that way. Yeah, yeah, okay, sure. And then healthcare workers are like, yeah, well, we got to get it totally first. We have to be like group 1A because you know, we're on the front lines here. Yeah, okay, okay, healthcare workers get it. And then you see these people working in billing getting it. Uh, then you have people who uh, say, well, you know, I'm in childcare. You know, child, I'm in education. I should get this. You know, teachers are super important. Okay, teachers can get it. Well, what about me? I'm in childcare. That's just like education. Okay, fine. You can get it in childcare. Well, then what's childcare? Childcare can be a lot of things. So then you get all these other people, all these people qualifying, uh, if they can claim they're, quote, a child care uh, provider, when they're really not. They're just you know, taking care of a kid occasionally or claiming they do. Like There's so many different ways around this. This was done wrong in a lot of places. Okay, final topic. Final topic of the evening. We have COVID vaccines, but what about COVID treatments. COVID treatments have been mostly ignored in recent months as we've been looking towards the vaccines. Treatments were discussed a lot in early and mid-2020 because the vaccine seemed so far off. At the time, nobody believed the vaccine would be ready at the end of 2020, even though Trump said it and turned out to be right. Uh, People didn't believe it. So it was assumed that we wouldn't even see the start of the vaccine until mid-2021 or maybe early to mid-2021 at the best. So everybody in the meantime was thinking about, okay, can we at least get some way to treat this thing? And there were a lot of different uh, possible cures or treatments being floated out there. The most controversial of them was uh, hydroxychloroquine, which uh, Trump pushed for some reason. But to be honest, none of them were particularly effective. They're not useless, but uh, some of them are controversial if they're useful at all, and others have some moderate benefit, but are by no means a real treatment. Something that it's worth trying, it might help some, like remdesivir. That's known to speed up recovery, but it hasn't made a dent in the death rates. So it's if you're destined to recover rather than die, then it's going to speed that process up, which is good. But if you're destined to die or end up on a ventilator, then it's not going to stop that. So that was kind of like a, a, a fast forward button for some people, but it was not a stop button when we really need a stop button on the uh, disease. So really, the situation was, and for the most part still is, that If you get COVID, you just have to pray that you're not going to be one of the bad ones, that you're not going to be one of the people who gets really bad complications that either uh, causes major long-term harm or kills you or puts you on a ventilator. So some people are destined to barely feel it 
or to not feel it, or to have it mildly or moderately, and then recover and everything's fine. Some are destined to have a pretty bad bout with it, but get over it, but then have some kind of damage afterwards. Some are destined to be on a ventilator and eventually get over it, but have a lot of damage afterwards. And then some are destined to die. And there's not much you can do to stop it. Like, even if you could see the future when you catch COVID that you are going to be dead of this within uh, three weeks, uh, even if you could see that future, there would be little you could do to stop it. And that's the scary thing. That even if you knew your own future with COVID, once you caught it, uh, it's not like you could do something to stop it. You could try some experimental treatments, but really, uh, you'd be screwed. Like if you caught COVID today, and if God came down and told you in three weeks you're going to be dead of COVID, unless you can find a way to stop it, uh, you probably would not be able to stop it. You'd probably be dead. So that's why treatments are important. Also, we don't know how long the vaccines will work. We don't know if variants will eventually be able to dodge it. There's a lot we don't know about the future of COVID. So it is important, and I said last year, and I still stand by it, more important to have effective treatments than it is to have a good vaccine. Now, we do have a good vaccine, so obviously we shouldn't uh, throw that away or ignore it. We should use what we have, but the fight's not over. We need to have a good treatment. Now, if the disease were completely eradicated and gone, then yeah, sure, then we don't have to worry about treating it. But since it probably won't be completely eradicated or gone for a while or ever, then we need to have a treatment. And that's been kind of overlooked by the general public. Most people think, okay, well, I'll get the vaccine. Okay, I'm fine. I won't get it. Okay, no worries. But really, we need a treatment. So the good news is that treatments are in development. And there's three that have some promise. So one is by Pfizer, and I'm not sure of the name of it. I'm not even sure if it is named yet. But there's a treatment by Pfizer that's in uh, current trials, which is showing promising results. And again, this is after you get COVID, you go in and get this treatment to prevent it from getting bad. That's, that's what the goal is here, to... Uh, actually be able to treat existing COVID and stop it from harming you. So uh, Pfizer is currently actually testing a pill that is an oral treatment. And uh, the good thing about the pill is that you could get this as soon as you're aware you have COVID. So it does not require you to be hospitalized or in critical condition as soon as you know you're COVID positive, you pop the pill. Similar to um, like if you have shingles that you immediately get on uh, the medication for it and that will uh, significantly reduce the severity of it and the length of time that you will have to deal with the, the pain from it. I, I took that as soon as I knew I had shingles 11 years ago. So it'd be similar with covid that as soon as you come to realize you have COVID, that you just pop this pill and then it holds back COVID from progressing. So if this really comes to pass, then uh, that will be very, very useful. So they're currently in an early stage trial in a three-part study 
with 60 adults between 18 and 60 years old in the U.S. And uh, they said that they've already shown that uh, multiple doses of this uh, showed decreased coronavirus activity in a lab. So they're trying to see if that actually works inside of a human, not just in the lab. And they said the early stage study has shown the antiviral works against other coronaviruses as well. So believe it or not, this will also work against colds. Not all colds. And by the way, there, I, I read an interesting article about colds and vaccines. Some people have asked for many years, way before COVID, why is there no vaccine for the common cold? How come with all the medical advances, we still get so many colds every year? The, the average adult actually gets four colds a year, believe it or not. So why are we dealing with all these colds, even though they don't kill people? But why are we dealing with this, with all the advancement in medical technology? How can we still be struggling to stop the common cold? The reason for this is that the common cold is a number of different viruses, the main cold viruses are either rhinoviruses or coronaviruses, but they, they're different from each other. Even different coronaviruses, different rhinoviruses. And they're mutating a lot. And then about 20% of all colds are unknown viruses that have not been identified. So even if you were to stop all coronavirus colds and rhinovirus colds, you'd still have 20% of all colds happening. And that would still be almost uh, one cold per year average. And the concern was that even if, uh, even if there was a vaccine against the common cold that were to stop both rhinoviruses and coronaviruses and effectively stop them all in all mutations, that people would still get like one cold a year on average from these other viruses and declare that the vaccine didn't work and not bother taking it again. So it was determined that people are going to be too frustrated with a uh, cold vaccine and won't understand very well that the cold is so many different types of viruses that just kind of present all the same way that uh, they decided just not to bother with it because it's, it's not a deadly disease. So screw it. Just let people have their colds. That's, that's really how it happened. Well, there's been a lot more zeal in the last year to tackle the common cold situation, not for the cold itself, but to kind of develop uh, full antiviral drugs that are safe to take as, in vaccine formats that would uh, really prevent uh, any type of these viruses. They're trying to kind of come up with these, uh, these catch-all drugs that could be vaccines against all of this stuff. They haven't successfully produced one yet, but there's, there's now research on that that would stop a lot of colds as well because the the problem that's been discussed is well what about you know mutations of covid that will dodge the current vaccines and and what about maybe other pandemics that come in the future that aren't even covid what if we have those then we do do we do this all over again and shut down for another year until we come out with the vaccines again like you know we've got to have a better response to all this we've got to have better prevention of all this and now there's a lot a lot of this being discussed which wasn't before but anyway, back to this. Because 20% of all colds are coronaviruses, and because most of colds between December and March are coronaviruses, that it is believed 
that uh, a treatment and maybe even the vaccines for COVID-19 could also stop these coronavirus colds. Now, the current vaccines you're taking were not developed for this purpose, but they may happen to also work that way as a side benefit. But they're actually saying with this Pfizer treatment for uh, the coronavirus, uh, for COVID-19, that they believe that it actually works against all coronaviruses, not just COVID-19. It's, it would be a catch-all treatment against any kind of coronavirus. So that includes coronavirus colds. That includes uh, the COVID-19. And it also uh, would include any other kind of coronavirus, which is uh, more serious than a cold, but less serious than COVID-19. Or even future coronaviruses, which could maybe even be worse than COVID-19 or different forms of COVID-19. So they're not sure how effective it is, but they have seen that uh, it's definitely helping in early studies and that this or something similar to it could be the future in stopping COVID as long as you jump on it quickly. But they're not the only ones who are developing a treatment for COVID. There is a pill that's getting some attention called Malnupiravir. I'm sure that's going to get a different name when they release it, but uh, Malnupiravir, which is by Merck, which is a pharmaceutical company. And they're already studying this. And it's being found that people who uh, have coronavirus, who have COVID-19, that take this pill get better much quicker than people who received a placebo. Now, they didn't give this yet to people in hospitals who have COVID, but people who got COVID and it has not progressed to the hospital phase yet, that it clears it uh, much quicker, almost like it's uh, curing it. I don't know how how quick it is, but they're saying that uh, this is something that could also be used as a treatment to basically uh, shut down the uh, COVID from getting worse. So they're, they're still studying it. Now, of course, with any of these, they have to clear safety hurdles. Now, believe it or not, the safety hurdles for treatments are not as stringent as for vaccines. The reason for this is that... Uh, When you are taking a vaccine, you're injecting yourself with something when you're healthy. So they really do not want to make people sick by giving them a vaccine when there's nothing wrong with them. Whereas when you're getting a treatment, it's much more acceptable to have side effects and risks because you already have a problem. So it becomes a risk-reward thing. It becomes, well, yes, the treatment can harm me, but, but the disease itself is worse than the treatment, so I'll go for the treatment. So that's why, like you heard in the song I played to open the show, uh, there are so many different side effects that medications have, and it's deemed acceptable because uh, as long as it's not more serious than the malady itself, it's worth doing. So since COVID is pretty serious that even if these treatments do have some side effects and risks, 
uh, it's worth having them and in many cases worth taking them rather than just letting COVID get you, especially for people who are very vulnerable. So if you're 85 and you get COVID, you're not going to worry too much. Hey, is this treatment going to hurt me? You're going to be thinking, I, I want to get, get rid of COVID because I'm 85 years old and this is killing a lot of people my age. Yet, if you're 25 and get COVID and the pill comes with a lot of side effects, then you probably don't want to take it. So they do have to uh, do studies on the safety, but it's not as important as it is for vaccines. And it's not going to be as uh, stringently evaluated for that. So there's this, uh, as I said, there's this malnupiravir from Merck, which is uh, further along than this Pfizer pill. That may be the one that uh, comes out first of the two. They're claiming in its uh, early trials it's doing well. So that's another one that they're rapidly working on. These, these are going on as we speak. And they're, they're racing to get these tested and approved. Then there is a third option. The third option actually involves an existing drug, believe it or not. It's called fluvoxamine, and it's an antidepressant. So it was made before COVID, long before COVID. And they actually found that it might hold back what they call the uh, cytokine storm. Cytokine, I don't know how you pronounce it, but that's what's known to probably kill people, is basically when the body overreacts to covid it ends up killing you. And this antidepressant, fluvoxamine, was actually found to hold that back somewhat. So while this is not a cure, this fluvoxamine seems to be a treatment that uh, might really help prevent COVID from progressing to become really bad. And they're still studying this. Now, again, this is something they do. This is not a new drug that they have to make sure is safe. That's the good part here is this is something that's already in use. So that's the fortunate thing. And in fact, you know, if I got serious COVID, even if I didn't get serious COVID, I may want to, I may want to take fluvoxamine if I started to notice it was even getting like to the moderate level, the seriousness of the COVID, because this is a drug that has already been tested. This is a drug where there's a lot known about it already. It's not like this new one by Pfizer or by Merck where you, you, you don't know what harm it can do to you. Fluvoxamine, if you have depression, it, it can be prescribed to you. So if you can take it for depression, you probably want to take it for COVID. So the, my question is, why, why not allow people to take this off-label for COVID if it's just an antidepressant? But I that I probably want to try to obtain this if I had COVID and I started to noticing it rapidly worsening, even if not worsening to where I needed to be hospitalized. So that is being looked at as well as a possible COVID treatment. So there's a number of these on the horizon. By the way, the Merck one is not a COVID drug. This was one that was actually in development in 2019. And that was actually in development to uh, fight the flu. And then when COVID started, they're like, oh, hmm, yeah, maybe we can use this against, uh, against COVID as well. So it was really being developed more as, as this like, 
catch-all, stopping all these harmful virus type of pills. And then it was uh, kind of adapted into being a COVID drug. So the research on this had already begun before COVID even was known about. I believe the Pfizer one is more of a new development that that's specifically aimed at COVID. And that was why it was conceived. But look, this is all fairly quick. All of uh, these new drugs they're coming up with, I don't know if these are going to pan out, but so far they're looking decent. And the vaccine at this breakneck speed. And really this might change the conversation about big pharma, which for a long time was seen as the enemy and vilified. But sometimes what is good about something can be what's bad about something, and sometimes what's bad about something can be what's good about something. And fortunately, with these companies being as large and well-funded and as uh, having the talent that they had on staff. Because remember, to uh, these companies are only as good as the scientists working for them. So they, they have to attract the best and brightest to come work there and compensate them appropriately. And uh, they have to have the capacity to do this type of research. There's, there's a lot of money that has to go into all these things. And in general, private industry does it much better than the government. There's just much less bureaucracy, so much more efficiency. And yes, there's a lot of abuses in the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, there's a lot of ways that Americans get screwed where drugs are sold by U.S. companies to other countries a lot cheaper than what they're sold to Americans, which absolutely should not be occurring. And I know there was some talk during the Trump years, I don't believe it ended up happening, but uh, there was some talk about allowing Americans to buy drugs from uh, any first world country mail order, and that really should be allowed. Then that would put an end to that problem with Americans being gouged. So I'm not saying there shouldn't be reform to the way we do things with pharmaceuticals in the U.S., but pharmaceutical companies kind of proved themselves in the past year that when it comes down to it that they can be our saviors in a situation like this can you imagine if we had to count on the government to come up with these vaccines it wouldn't have happened i mean it would have happened eventually but it would have been very slow and maybe not nearly as good this is tremendous record time not just by a little bit but by a very wide margin Now, some of this was at the expense of safety. And that's important to know. It's important to understand that usually they spend years evaluating vaccines for safety, monitoring long-term results, and we don't have those years to wait with COVID, so that couldn't have been done here. But that does also make the vaccine more dangerous, more potentially dangerous, especially for long-term. So... Might there be some long-term problems we start to notice months and years down the line? Yeah. Now, they did have trials earlier in 2020 of these vaccines. So it's not like we're just trying them for the first time, but 
we have not had long, long-term or even medium-term observations of the effects of these vaccines. The longer time that passes, the more we'll know, and the more people that take it, the more we'll know. But yeah, we might see some unexpected stuff happening here that isn't very good from these vaccines. So that's why it's not a trivial thing to decide to give it to your teenage kid or to give it to your young child when that's approved, if it is approved, and why it's not trivial for a young person, a young adult in their 20s to take the vaccine right away. So you you can't shame people who are saying, oh, I don't trust the vaccine. It came out too fast. I mean, they're right. It did come up too fast, but we needed it to come out too fast. So it's one of these cases where they're right. And then also those saying that you should take it are mostly right, depending upon the age we're talking about. So someone who's 55 and says, hey, I don't trust the, the vaccine. It came out too fast. Yes, you're right. It came out too fast, but you need it too fast because you're in a vulnerable age group. So take it. I mean, that was uh, it was still amazing how fast they came out with it. And so far, the safety profile is looking good. We don't, we don't know what's going to shake out long term, but so far, the safety profile is looking very good considering the speed it came out. There was a death in Utah of a healthy 39-year-old woman that took the vaccine. So you're going to have some of these. But it hasn't been common. It's been very uncommon that people are dying from the vaccine. I'm actually happy that... uh, I'm not happy they did this as uh, guinea pigs for me. That's not why they did it, of course. But uh, I have uh, immediate family members, of course, my parents, who uh, took the vaccine already. Of course, my brother got it being a, uh, a doctor. And I got to see how they did it. I, this wasn't on purpose. Just the order of things came, the way they came, the way the priorities were. So while they took it when it was more of an unknown, when I'm taking it, I can at least look and say, all right, well, my immediate family, some of them had some bad effects for a day or two, as, as some people do, but then it clears. So that that's probably the worst I'm going to get is some... Yeah, pretty bad sickness for a day or two. A a sometimes listener to this show, she goes by Alaska Gal on Twitter. And I know she listens sometimes. She sometimes messages me about the show. But uh, she just took the vaccine. She's right around my age. And she said, like, she had a miserable day. (laughs) I think she took it yesterday. And then today she just had an awful day. She said she could barely get out of bed. So to her, it kind of felt like COVID. Like I've described to people, even without having taken the vaccine, but I described to people that some people are going to feel like they have COVID for a day or two, minus the breathing problems. So it, you'll, get, you'll get a little taste of it. You'll get a little taste of what you're going to be avoiding. But it's much easier to deal with knowing it's going to be gone soon. So I'm not looking forward to that second dose when I get that which is going to probably cause that for me. And my mom had that. So <laughs> I think there's a decent chance I will get that type of reaction. But at least if you can look and say, okay, in this many hours, it'll be gone. 36 hours will be gone. Then it's more tolerable. It's when you don't know. If you don't know if it's going to be here a week or two weeks or five weeks like or months, like when you have something like that come, you just, 
even like with a cold, you don't know when it's going to disappear. Like I, I've had colds that vanish within two days, and I've had colds which uh, have sat for six weeks, and I, I never know where it's going to go. So there's always that unknown factor that's unnerving. But with this, there's no unknown factor. You, once you feel the effects, you know they're going to be gone within about a day and a half or at most two days. So that's a small par- price to pay. If, that, if that's all that happens, it's fine. But at least I, I can have some confidence that if my immediate family didn't have bad reactions to it beyond uh, temporary illness, that I probably won't either. Because a lot of this is genetic. I'm, I'm a believer that genetics explain a ton a ton of things and that if you want to see how you will handle things especially health wise like you'll handle how you'll have a medication or uh, what problems you're likely to have uh, look at both of your parents look at your siblings and uh, you'll get a good idea it's not always that way but a lot of times you follow along those lines but yeah it's a little scary a little scary to get a vaccine that has not been tested for long-term effects. And, you know, if you get the vaccine and then you get bad long-term effects, you'll feel like a chump. Like, you get the va- imagine you get the vaccine now and it damages you long-term. It doesn't kill you, but it, it causes something pretty bad long-term that you're stuck with the rest of your life. And then by, let's say, September, COVID just gone. COVID just fades away and it turned out you didn't need the vaccine at all. Because, <laughs> like, by then it would be gone. It just vanishes like the swine flu did. Like, wouldn't you feel stupid at that point for having taken the vaccine instead of waiting? I know I would. But then the other side, which is more likely, is where I'd feel really stupid if I refused the vaccine and then got COVID and COVID harmed me long term. I still don't know what illness I have right now. There, There is a small chance that this is actually COVID, like uh, that person texting me was saying. They were saying they had similar symptoms to what I had in a similar progression and they tested positive for COVID where I I tested negative but uh, those tests are not that reliable on the negative side that is but he had a fever and I didn't that's that's the huge difference here if I had a fever I would be very suspicious that I really have COVID and I'm just not testing that way in fact there's a listener to this show who had a really bad version of COVID He, he didn't die he wasn't on a ventilator but he ended up in the hospital he's around my age actually a little younger than me And he had a really bad version of COVID where he had breathing problems and everything. I felt very bad for him when I heard his story. And he never tested positive for it. So he's one of the people that the test never showed positive. So some people it just never shows positive. It's not a good test. That's why all that nonsense. Oh, we had early testing. Yeah, we had early testing that catches 50% of the cases. That's not going to stop it. But the fever, if you have a fever and you don't usually get a fever then that is a pretty strong sign you have COVID. The strongest sign is the smell and taste. If you if you lose your smell and taste, then 100% you have COVID. It's a super strong sign. The fever, if you don't typically get fevers, is a fairly strong sign. And uh, the rest of the stuff, there's too much overlap with colds and other viruses. So the sore throat, the cough, the, you know, any, the fatigue, the body aches, that's... I've had all that stuff before, way before COVID. I've had all that stuff from colds. So the one thing that the, the, the two things the colds didn't bring to me were the smell and taste lost, except when my nose would get so stuffed, but that doesn't really count. 
So I would have taste still, I just wouldn't have smell. But uh, I didn't lose a sense, it just was blocking my passages. And then the, uh, the fever, I wouldn't get that either. So, so far I haven't had a fever and I haven't lost smell and taste at all. And I've had this for about a week and a half now. But I, I guess there's a small chance this is some weird form of COVID. So I guess we will see where this goes. I just want it to clear. It's really weird. You know, if it was the takeout food, I'm going to be frustrated with myself. Because I, I've, I've been saying all this time I don't want to get takeout food. And, you know, if... if now, you can say, well, if there was no COVID at all, I would have still gotten the takeout food. Actually, I probably would have gone out to dinner that night. But same thing, you know, like... Yeah, I, I'm, I've gotten sick before from food from restaurants. So it's not that I got sick from it. It's this that... Now it leaves this like unknown here. Like, what is this? Where normally I wouldn't worry. Normally I just go, okay, whatever. This is some, some kind of lingering cold or lingering cough or whatever, and then it vanishes. I've always got the back of my mind now, like, what if this is COVID? Now, now that it's been here a week and a half, one thing COVID never does, at least to my knowledge, is it doesn't just hang there for a week and a half with symptoms and then rock it up to be terrible, to be like, hospitalization like that doesn't happen usually it's gonna if it's gonna hospitalize you it's gonna ramp up pretty fast and hit you it's not gonna just sit here almost dormant and then pound you but uh still you know this could be a mild case i've got this cough that won't go away very weird but i tested negative so what can i say i did a long radio show for you guys it's done never even got a co-host this is the first show we've had in a while with zero co-hosts and zero calls. You notice that? Zero co-hosts, zero calls. At one. Just me talking the entire time. I didn't even play many things. Like, did I play anything? No, see, I didn't even do that. I didn't even play any recordings where I could relax. Wow. Like, usually I at least get breaks from that, where I'm playing recordings of things I want you to hear. And then I can stop every so often. I don't think I even did that. Okay, well... Next planned show will be on Friday the 3rd of April. Sorry, Friday the 2nd of April. Saturday would be the 3rd. Friday the 2nd of April will be the next show. And we will start to see in the coming months whether things will be opening up quickly and if there's going to be a World Series of Poker anytime soon. Daniel Negranu said on his show, his Dat Poker podcast, that he has inside information that there's going to be a World Series and that they're going to have a lot of events. He said like 90 events, but he couldn't say anything more. Nor could he say exactly when it's going to be, just it's not going to be the usual dates, which is pretty obvious at this point. Otherwise, it would be two months away, which we know it's not two months away. But there will probably be one. We'll find all this out, and we'll find out what the rest of the world is going to be doing as people get vaccinated and numbers start to go down even more, and 
things open back up. That is all. I will talk to you later. This has been Poker Fraud Alert Radio. See you next week. Shalom. Shalom.